question number 56. This is a four-hour live stream commencing every Wednesday at 6 p.m. UK. This evening, we've got the first two hours on YouTube, and then we've got the second two hours on Patreon. The evening's lineup is as follows. Every Wednesday, we have an eclectic mix of guests, and this evening is just the same. We try to range over a broad, broad amount of topics. And in the recent ones, we've had anything from Flat Earth debates to Assange, Johnny Depp, Alec Baldwin, and all the big news stories, politics, things that are going on around the world, as well as weaving in some of our traditional true crime, which we will be doing tonight as well. All right, so first guest is going to be Ryan Robbins from the Post Disclosure World YouTube channel, which is all about the coming disclosure that will happen very soon. Pre-disclosure world days are numbered, that's for sure. He goes on to say that humanity has a right to know the truth, that we are not alone in this universe. <laughs> so tonight we were exploring the unknown and talking about unidentified aerial phenomena including the existence of secret UFO programs within the US government. How do you say Area 51, baby? <laughs> so that's, that's the first one. Second one then, many of you have been following Julian Assange over the years. It's absolutely heartbreaking that somebody whose journalism has been 100% accurate has sacrificed. His life is being sacrificed on the altar of truth by the evil authorities who have just determined now that he's, he is going to be extradited to America. So our second guest tonight, Elizabeth Leah Vos, is going to be stopping by to give us some updates on the case. And she is a contributor to Mint Press, where we had Whitney Webb on uh, a few years back. All right, so third guest of the night, unfortunately, Ryan Dawson had to postpone. We're going to try and get him back next week. But in his place, we've got John Guy, who spent his early childhood in the gifted and talented education program. However, when he was 19 with a pen knife, he stabbed a man, refused to cooperate, and they gave him 17 years in prison. Wow, he's got a book out called Think Straight, an owner's manual to the mind. Then, if you like your UFOs, secret societies kind of stuff, fourth guest is David Whitehead. He's come back to the show multiple times. He's going to be discussing whether there is an advanced civilization that once existed on Mars. He's going to be covering Mars, the connection with ancient Atlantis, and probing humanity's origins. <laughs> wow, I can't wait for that section. That's going to be yeah, you're mind doing that, aren't you? Yeah, yes. that's you. Yeah. And then first one on Patreon is Lee Camp. He's been banned from everywhere. I've been watching his stuff all week. He's bloody funny, but he does get deep on the NWO. He was the former host of the show Redacted Tonight. And it was let's say it was the only anti war, anti corporate comedy show on American TV. In the same week, his podcast Moments of Clarity was removed from Spotify and Redacted Tonight YouTube channel was banned worldwide. He's going to be speaking about the deeper meanings behind some of the current world events. If you want to join us on Patreon, link is in the description box. If you want to see that live? Then we've got William Stone, 
who was a high-end jewel thief. He was going into the mansions in South Florida where Who Killed E lived with the M-Trial woman. We can't obviously broadcast that on this channel, but he interacted with them in some very bizarre ways, including sexual ways, watched videotapes with M, the M-Trial, uh, including viewing certain famous people in these tapes and... Yeah, there's a lot to that one. I can't expand in detail, though, on this platform. Then Andrew's got Mike Rothschild. What are you going to be talking to Mike Rothschild about, Andrew? Well, he's a Rothschild. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Uh, I mean, he's a... <laughs> that's <laughs> the, the, isn't that the biggest, that's the biggest keyword in the world? Because people are always saying, get, 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 you know, talk about the Rothschilds. I know, but how, this is a thing, isn't it? Because, you know, how big is the family? And it could be... You know, when it, and I'm not talking about this particular Rothschild, but I'm saying there could be a Rothschild anywhere. But it's a big name. It's a big, big name. So I'm in, really interested to talk to him about debunking conspiracy theories and who's better placed than Mike Rothschild to do so. He's probably been plagued by it his whole life. We'll have some back <laughs> and forward about, you know, because some conspiracy theories do turn out to be true. Most of them are not. That's the, that's the nature of the game, isn't it? And it's about picking the ones that are very difficult to do. His latest book, The Storm is Upon Us, is, is about all that stuff. So we're going to be looking at the complexities of the well-known conspiracy theory in question, the Rothschild one, I suppose, and give our valued patrons the chance to ask Mike plenty of questions about other hot topic conspiracy theories. I do hope people are pleasant and polite while addressing Mike with their theories, but it's going to be really good. It's going to be a good one. Well, I'm a conspiracy theorist. And what about the conspiracy theory that mm. the term conspiracy theory was a creation of the CIA to ruin the reputation of people who were like activists or criticizing the US government and the CIA? Could be true, couldn't it? That's the type of thing that people do, isn't it? It's the type of thing that things... They all could be true. That's the beauty of them. I'm not going to... dis. I think, I think it's not good to discredit them off the bat without knowing more about them. And that sounds very plausible. Let me rephrase that. I'm a conspiracy researcher. I am a, I am a obsessed with conspiracy theories. I like to probe conspiracy okay. theories with my research hat on. All right. You yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Clickbait. Yeah. So, I've been told, by the way, by our producer, Ash, that my camera's gone weird, but I, it looks all right to me. On your absolutely side. Absolutely fine. Right? Nothing wrong yeah, with your camera whatsoever. Oh, what, whatsoever. What a maniac. Hey, so the first on, guest... Continue. The first guest is coming in at 6, 6 or 5 approximately. So let's just recap, Andrew, before the guest comes in, on the big themes of the week that we've had on the recent shows. I know one of the themes has been the hackers. Um, I've, I've been uh, with my internet service provider now. I was on the phone for hours with them. We have now got internet security engineers on standby. We've got enhanced internet security now from my internet service provider and it was confirmed denial of service attack they said it was a rare thing to happen that it's not through my computer it's through the actual internet service provider the hackers tried to shut this show down and also they tried to take control of my youtube channel as well 30 minutes before the show i think it was last week so all our security has been enhanced this is the show they are trying to shut down but we are fortifying ourselves to maintain everything. And the other big thing that we were t talking about, which has uh, been developing news every couple of days, was Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. 
Now, I know this morning we talked a bit, Andrew, but hmm. we perhaps we might have to repeat all that because we've got a lot more viewers uh, on this section. And my perspective was, you know, when you're a content creator and you spent years building up all these followings and you say one little thing wrong, after all that, those years, you know, of, of, of building and building and building, and then you wake up the next day and your platform is gone, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And since I had problems last year, two terminations, you get a guest on, especially if it's a live stream, and you can see they're veering down a road where they could get you in trouble. And it, you're like, <laughs> you got to stop them and put the brakes on. You, you're on eggshells all the time. And I'm hoping that if Musk, this bastion of, is going to, to convert Twitter into a bastion of free speech because he's claiming he is a crusader of free speech so will that cause the tide to turn will all the platforms then be forced to stop shadow banning to stop just kicking people off for the slightest little thing to stop having these sinister political agendas what do you think andrew um i think it's impossible to know at this point isn't it we don't even know that elon musk is definitely going to do all of those things we we imagine he is and it looks like he's, he's all about his free speech and all that stuff i think what another interesting point around that is some people uh very much misunderstand cancel culture and like blocking free speech and stuff so a lot of people have been retweeting or, or showing screenshots of elon musk who has blocked them so saying look elon's not such a champion of free speech he blocked me and that is a failure to understand what free speech means. Free speech means that you're allowing somebody to have a platform to address um, anyone they want to. It doesn't mean you have to listen. And by blocking them yourself, you are totally entitled. You know, you're, you have the the right to block that person out of your life. So that's been happening a lot. I see on Twitter people are having a go at Musk, saying, "Oh, yeah, you like your free speech. Well, obviously not when it's mine because you've blocked me and all that." But he hasn't blocked you from speaking to other people. So that's the main thing. And I think what you say is a really good point about. I think we have quite uh, an ex maybe a unique viewpoint as as content creators. Uh, we're not that unique. There are more and more of us now. Um, you know, but it it is heartbreaking. I've had it. I've had it myself. Where I've woken up and there's been a problem. You know, most of my podcast is audio on the edge with Andrew Gold. It's the audio podcast, and I've had days where I do wake up and it's not working for some reason. The algorithms, whatever, and the panic that go. It's like anyone listening. Imagine your business. You wake up and you go to your place of business, whether it's online or in real life or whatever. And it's just not there one day. And in Sean's, what you're talking about is because somebody you spoke to said the wrong word at the wrong time. And it, it is very, I, I agree, I agree 100% with you. It's, it's very worrying. So hopefully this might buck the trend. I'm not too optimistic. Yeah, you know, when you're on a mission to improve the world and you've got guests coming on with uh, similar missions, but they criticise a certain part of society that I won't mention, and next thing you're zapped. It is absolutely <clears throat> ridiculous. So hopefully, well, uh, society's like a pendulum, isn't it? You see it swing to an extreme of one thing, such as the war on drugs, then it goes back, and hopefully this censorship stuff, the algorithmic strangulation, the fascist fact-checkers, hopefully now that's been an extreme and we're going to start to come back from that because I will be so much happier and feel safer instead of being on these eggshells. Yeah, yeah and huge thank you to all the people watching on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you are in the world, loads of... Loads of people join us right now in the chat. So, <clears throat> where is the Musk takeover app? 
The shares went down to about forty-five. When he confirmed, he had the, and then and then because it, when it when it when he the takeover was first announced, the shares shot up from the forties to mid fifties. Then the poison pill was produced by the Twitter board, and the shares slid back down to forty-five. Then he showed that he had his financing, and there was pressure on the board to commit to a deal, the fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. It shot back up into the 52 level a couple of days ago. But now it's gone back to 48, and that's called the arbitrage spread, if you're a stock market person. So the offer price is 54.20, and now it is 48. So you could buy it at 48, and if the deal goes through, you will get paid 54.20. How long is it going to take for the deal to go through? So a, a, a takeover like this can take anywhere from three to six months. Hmm. So that, you know, you, you can make uh, $6. What's that? 10% within three to six months. But there's also a risk premium in, factored into an arbitrage spread whereby the deal could fall through. Regulators could get involved and mess it up somehow. So, so there's, all, there's like a random uh, black swan event variable factored into the arbitrage spread whereby nothing in the stock market is ever a given. So you can't just buy it at 48 and think it's 100% guaranteed it's going to be 54.20 in three to six months. There's all kinds of external factors that can get in the way. But I'm, I'm seriously hoping that it's going to go through. Have you watched um, Jack Dorsey's been getting the digs in on the Twitter board? Have you watched any of that? I haven't really been following that close. I was just going to say, like, you know, the, we get a lot of expert information from you, Sean. Look at all this stuff. It's all over over my head. I'm pleased you know about it. Well, that was my thing, wasn't it, from childhood? Yeah, it was. the, the, the Wolf of Wall Street. Greed is good. Gordon Gecko. I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. This is the meaning of life, making money. Lunch is for wimps. If you take you... lunch... Other brokers are calling your clients. If you call your girlfriend, other brokers are calling your clients. You're only as big as the numbers on this board for the month. That's what it was like, man, at our six oh. o'clock in the morning sales meetings in, in Phoenix, Arizona, circa 91 to 96, 97. Did you make it as a millionaire by 30? Yeah. Was it good? No, because I <laughs> melted down, didn't I, and went off the rails and started... Throwing raves and importing naughty pills. Yeah, so it was good. <laughs> Look, Andrew, I work in drugs education. I've done school stocks this week. Yes, I've got one at, be careful. I've got one on Friday. I've got a school stock on Friday in London. Good. Don't, don't be getting me in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll be, I can be naughty, though, because I don't, I don't do any talks of any educational kind, unless somebody would like to hire me to do an educational talk for them. On what subject, I don't know. <laughs> how to start a podcast yeah there you go if you need me in schools i will help you do that all right so the next guest is going to come in any minute andrew are there any of, of the big news stories of the week that we've been covering that you want to do a quick recap on before he comes in mm, i don't know because we've got a minute don't we oh, but he's not actually in the in the back right now um i don't know i mean what 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 have we been covering i mean the stuff johnny depp about... johnny depp's a big of a big one isn't it yeah the, th the depth depth's, are, depths are a really interesting one because I, I can't recall ever seeing a case that is so one-sided in terms of uh, public um, you know, support and everything. We're all on Team Depp, aren't we? I mean, no, I haven't heard anyone not be on that. Yes, and the, the poo incident with the uh, teacup. What was it? The teacup poodle. That was, you can't uh, poo yeah. on, a, on a bed. 
I've been gripped. I've been gripped by it. I know it's it's yeah. people are saying it's a distraction and all that, but it's it's interesting to see you know someone you've seen in such massive films just has the foibles of the rest of us. The arguments and the uh, addiction issues and <laughs> well, alcohol. Not quite the rest. And... <laughs> Hang on, not quite the rest of us. He's he's turning. He's coming home and having his girlfriend take his shoes off for him, and it's not quite what the rest of us are getting up to. But I, I wish you could get that. Are <laughs> you going to start I've taking to my tell... shoes off for me, Andrew? <laughs> well, I've been doing it for a while. I wouldn't want to step on on Ash, Ash's producer Ash's shoes. I know that's his role at the moment, and I have told him about what he does in your bed about the uh, you know what. What, what Amber Heard did as well, and he shouldn't do that anymore. Right, let's keep within community guidelines, please. So, all right, yeah. I'm going to bow out then and hand cool. you over to our next guest, which is going to be Ryan Robbins from the Post Disclosure World YouTube channel. And we're going to be getting into the existence of secret UFO programs within the US government. I imagine Area 51 might come up on this, etc. And this is always fascinating content back when i was in america i was just listening to coast to coast and get really tuned in to this kind of stuff but yeah so all right good luck guys enjoy cheers thanks mate oh i both clicked it hello there how you doing uh good and thank you for inviting me on your show i appreciate it you are very welcome i'm pleased i'm always so happy to see like a proper microphone and all of that stuff it's like oh this is gonna be smooth <laughs> and nice so where are you where are you talking to us from today i am in orlando florida okay cool that's where they've got like um um like theme parks don't they yeah yeah that's what i know about it so tell me a little bit about your youtube channel and what what you've been uh looking into and, and finding out yeah so for about the past four years i've been covering uh uap or ufos because um on december 16th 2017 there was a huge article in the new york times revealing that the american government spent 22 million dollars in tax money to study uh uap it, it was initiated in 2018 with a ufo program called OSAP, advanced aerospace weapon systems application program and interestingly OSAP was not just looking into UAP exclusively, they were looking into also paranormal phenomena associated with UAP, such as cattle mutilations and uh, poltergeist activity and things of this nature. So it was a very broad spectrum uh, program. And then that went to about two, uh, three months beyond 2010. So we're talking about uh, two years, three months. And there was opposition in the Pentagon because there were people who thought it would be bad public relations if, if the public found out that taxpayer money was going into a program like this. But there were also religious fundamentalists, as, is, as at least has been reported, who felt like studying UAP and the associated phenomena would open open the public up to, to the, the forces of Satan, if you will, because they perceived that this phenomena was satanic. And, and so, that, so, so the OSAP program, the funding for that desisted, was taken away. But ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, persisted or began basically in 2010. Basically, never went away. And then recently, that morphed into the UAP Task Force. And now we have a new UAP program, which is the most impressive, arguably the most impressive of them all, officially mandated by the United States Congress. Um, the... Hey, oh. 
It's called AOIMSG, Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. Now, this is an amazing, this is an amazing UFO program coming out of the United States uh, government, sanctioned bipartisan support by the American Congress. This this effort is going to look into the biological effects that people potentially receive when they come close to these objects, radiation poisoning, what have you. It's going to look into incidences where objects have come into close proximity of nuclear installations, such as uh, ICBM installations and power plants. It's going to have a rapid response team that if there is a UFO incident or a pattern of UFO observation, people will get on the ground and do research into it. It's going to look into the question of whether there actually has been previous legacy efforts looking into back engineering UAPs from, from crashes or material collection. And it's going, it's, it's going to look into the science of how UAP work, the propulsion system, the material science. So basically we have entered a phase where it's no longer a question of are UAP real? The U.S. government has unequivocally said they're real. Not real in the sense of, well, they could be weather balloons or they could be they could be sat Venus or they could be uh, a weather phenomenon. No, real as in unknown technology of unknown origin with unknown agenda. So you don't have to have me to tell you that UFOs are real. The U.S. government is telling us all that UFOs are real and that they are a profound mystery and we really don't know a whole lot about them. We should just, um, for the lay people or or those sort of passing by and, and don't know much about the UFO stuff, UAP is unidentified um, unidentified aerial phenomena. Is that right? That's correct. So, wow. And why? How did you get into this? Because it sounds like you're very passionate about it. And I suppose we should be if this is being hidden from us. So, is it being hidden from us? Well, you know, in the uh, the close of Broad Project Blue Book in 1969, which was a investigative um, effort by 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 the Air Force, but it should be noted that Project Blue Book was a was not insulated from the public, right? We knew about Project Blue Book. OSAP and ATIP were secret and insulated. We did not know about those until 2017. So the Air Force, uh, in my opinion, lied to the public. In the close of Project Blue Book in 1969, they said, UAP do not represent any scientific interest. They do not represent a potential national security risk. And that's it. We're done with UAP. But as it turns out, we have learned that there actually were official taxpayer-funded uh, operations within the U.S. government investigating UAP from as early as 2008. Uh, actually, the the former head of ATIP, Luis Elizondo, has stated that in a meeting he met someone who said that he had his job in the 80s. So I think it's very likely that OSAP and ATIP are only the tip of the iceberg, and there are other... Um, programs ongoing right now, taxpayer funded, potentially in the billions, that are researching and investigating the, the, these mysterious this mysterious phenomena. Because the military has a, an inherent interest. If there are technologies that are in our airspace mm -hmm. and in our oceans that are using a completely different kind of technology, or at least it appears that way, they can outmaneuver our best F, uh, our best equipment, our best hardware, whether it's an F-18 Hornet or an F-35 or an F-22. Of course, the military is going to want to know how they work so that they can hopefully be able to create technology that duplicates, replicates their capabilities. So, yes, I think it's very important that the United States government uh, is transparent on this mystery because what's happening, in my opinion, is 
from all the lies that have been told by the American government and potentially other governments, most likely, because they have they have sensor collecting mechanisms as well. They have satellites, they have air forces that pick up this data as well. What's happened is we we basically live in a we live we live in a false world. We've had the wool pull over our eyes, in my opinion, because for it's just a fact that there are mysterious objects operating in our airspace. We don't know where they come from. They, we don't know what their agenda is. This should not be something that's relegated to small little pockets in the United States government or small little pockets in other governments. This should be something that is that it, that 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 the totality of our institutions and our scientific community is looking into to try to get to the bottom of it. This should not be exclusively a military uh, um, objective and kept from the rest of the world. That's just unethical, in my opinion. Do you think if they were to discover something that they know for a fact, like this is some alien technology, aliens have been here, are here, that would be the biggest story of all time, wouldn't it? Like in the newspapers and stuff like that. Would that be an exciting day, or do you think it would be hidden from us? Uh, well, I think they know. I, I can't prove they know. I can't prove it. But in my opinion, they've collected enough sensor collecting. They've connected. They've collected enough sensor data over the decades through, through many different platforms, corroborated, whether that's electro optical or video footage, if you will, or radar data, or collected it from even satellite systems and other probably mechanisms that are classified and we don't even know about. So in my opinion, they, the United States government has known we are not alone for decades. And it appears we're moving in a direction where that's going to eventually uh, be common knowledge. We're not there yet, but it appears we are moving in that direction. Much more transparency has happened in the past four years within the United States government on this issue than every year combined prior to that. If and when it does come out, and if I'm right, because look, I could be wrong about this whole thing. I don't think I am. But if and when it does come out, that we are not alone and there are non-human intelligences engaging our our species in our airspace and in our oceans yeah i think that's going to be the the biggest story in human history and i think it's going to have an incredible impact upon human civilization our culture our philosophies our science everything and i think that for whatever reason and we can speculate why that is there, there have been many many hypotheses put forward but for whatever reason uh, the u.s government has never really wanted to to broach this it's never really wanted uh, the American public or the world at large to have the discussion. But I think that's wrong. I don't think they're the ones that get to decide or should decide when we have that discussion or if we have that discussion. It's uh, it's not something that should be classified. Why would you classify a scientific fact about our universe? That's wrong. And I look forward to the day that uh, this comes out in full, like maybe because maybe they'll release a high resolution video that that seals the deal or, or uh, a, a bunch of material and evidence that seals the deal. And then we can finally finally, you know, grow up as a species and have that conversation about uh, a mysterious, unknown presence in our biosphere that we don't know where it comes from and we don't know the agenda. But what we do know is that it's technology that's not stemming from from human ingenuity. Mm. And, and what is it that you've seen that you know, like, for, what's an example of a couple of things that have been seen where it's like, okay, that is, that is something that's clearly alien technology? Well, I don't think there's ever been anything that we, we could consider a smoking gun. Uh, nothing right. that I'm aware of has come out that we could say, oh, that 100% that seals the deal. But what I can reference, of course, is the USS Nimitz UFO event series that happened in 2004. Uh, what was witnessed, according to the expert witnesses, we're talking, uh, one of them was a Top Gun pilot. So there were two planes, uh, and they were called to check out a mysterious object. And they ended up seeing it, all four aviators with their eyeballs. There was one plane up high. 
one planet low. So we're talking two different vantage points, looking at the same object, unlimited visibility. It was a sunny day. And what they saw was a tic-tac-shaped object with no obvious forms of propulsion, no wings, uh, no, nothing that you would normally see with, with a jet propulsion uh, missile or plane or drone. And furthermore, it was captured on video. Uh, when they landed onto the carrier strike group, another aviator took off named Chad Underwood. And he had a gun camera mechanism on his plane, and he took footage footage of it. Now, that footage is not that great. It's a little bit grainy. However, I would argue if you look at that Tic Tac, that does not look like a plane to me. All of the corroboration points into it not being a plane. All of the aviators, all of the technicians, all of the radar uh, operators, including Chief Operator Kevin Day, all of them from that incident have gone on record, or at least the ones that have gone on record, they've all been in unison that whatever that technology was surpasses all known technology. Does that prove that it comes from a non-human source? No, but it makes it plausible. So hmm. from what I've seen, that's, this is probably the, the absolute best uh, UFO historical event that we've ever had. However, I will tell you that multiple witnesses from that event said that the original video was higher resolution. And what we've been given by the government is lower resolution and therefore not quite as impressive. I really wish the United States government would have given this slightly higher resolution version so that we could have a clear, a clear evidence on what exactly we, we were dealing with back then that most likely, does not, in my opinion, does not come from China, does not come from Russia, but comes from something else. Hmm. The thing is, it's a very appealing idea, isn't it? Because for the same reason that people are religious, we like to believe in a higher power or a different power or just something exciting that we're not entirely alone. Do you, in your research, try to guard against, for example, that, that cognitive bias, that desire to, to see something that might... I mean, as you say, you think it's not Russian or Chinese, but it could be. And, and if you don't know what it is, surely that's the first place you'd look like, okay, well, then maybe it is something Chinese or Russian or something and not alien. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, you always have to guard against confirmation bias. And I would never rule out that it's Chinese or Russian. It could be. Uh, I would mm -hmm. argue it's unlikely uh, for a few factors. For one factor, I would argue that if that technology existed all the way back in 2004, we would start seeing it uh, show up in, in industry, in my opinion. I, I think it's unlikely that those that have that capability would hold it back and, and, and leave all that money off the table. I think we would see it, whether we would see it in the theater of war or we would see it uh, in other manifestations. Um, I mean, if China, let's just say China, if China actually had that kind of capability, I hate to say it, but I think they would have invaded Taiwan yesterday. Uh, so I don't, so, so that's one of the reasons I, I'm, I'm not convinced it's Chinese technology. Another reason is, is that we're not, 2004 was not the first moment in history that we started seeing these kind of objects, tic-tac-shaped objects. Though these go back to the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. Um, patterns have emerged over the decades of credible witnesses, corroborated UFO events of people saying they're seeing the same shapes over and over again, doing the same kind of flight maneuvers that don't comport with, with how airplanes fly. So I think the evidence is very compelling that, that, that it's likely that the most, the most extreme manifestations of UAP doing extreme maneuvering without wings or obvious forms of propulsion. I think it's likely, it's just my opinion, I could be wrong, but I think it's likely that we're actually dealing with non-human intelligence.
Hmm. And then this would just be speculation, of course, but who are these aliens that have travelled vast distances that we thought were, were impossible physically to, to, to travel? Uh, so who, they've come all the way here and with their amazing technology that we can't... And they're just sort of just buzzing about every now and then in the sky and stuff. What are they doing? It's a great question. Well, one thing I'd say is that we, we it's a very old universe. So they actually could get here physically if if they traveled for a long enough time. Um, hmm. Because if you're going like, you know, the space shuttle, what goes like 20,000 miles an hour, you go 20,000 miles an hour over decades and decades and decades, they could be probes. They could be self-replicating probes that have no biological uh, creatures inside them. So, so it, even with our, even with the, the technology we know about, things from light years away could still get here, because it's a very old universe. They could have been traveling for hundreds of years, and also there's also the proposition that they don't come from other planets, that they're native to the Earth, that maybe they they live under our oceans or they live in some sort of um, shadow biome, if you will, and maybe they live in a, a different kind of of we live in the present moment, but maybe maybe the way they live is is more complicated than the present moment. Another, I don't want to say another dimension because I don't even know what that means, but another form of 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 reality, but still native to the earth. There's a lot of possibilities on the table, and the extraterrestrial hypothesis where they come from other planets is only one of them. As to why they would come from other planets to here, I guess the same reason in a hundred or five years, if we ever develop the capability to travel interstellar distances, we'll be doing the same thing. We'll be going to other planets because the human mind is is very inquiring. And we we study whales, we study ants, uh, we, we study the animal kingdom, we study physics. And, I, and I, it's, it's just as possible that other intelligences in other parts of the universe would want to come here and look at what our reality is all about to to further their scientific understanding of the of the vast universe. Oh, I just had like a funny thought, like it's us from another you know i guess like that's another that's another this. hypothesis Tra time yeah, travels is, from... time travelers is... oh i like that one so that's interesting and i can also imagine us as you say sending out those kinds of probes and maybe in what we would consider to be by our calculations billions of years time or millions of years time there's some other planet off really far away in another galaxy that's getting these probes from us and we're long extinct by that point and they're having a little skype conversation or zoom conversation going oh what are they and the government's not telling us and it was just <laughs> us guys exactly you know, we were around for a couple hundred thousand years and then we were gone i don't know man what an exciting idea but there this are is leaks, why, this is why the, this on. is why the lack of conspiracy upsets me so much because i'm not going to tell you i know what this is it could be china it could be russia but it also could be a lot mm. weirder and that's why Whatever data the United States government has, they need to start sharing it so that our scientific community can take a look and so we can have a broader conversation and um, objectively look at the data and and try to understand our universe better. Like, for example, if the United States government had one crystal clear video of a flying saucer with, with absolutely no obvious forms of propulsion, doing right angle turns, stopping on a dime, why not share that with the public? Then, then, then we could have a new conversation. But by the way, there are new scientific efforts looking into UAP, and that is is largely the result of the government's change in stance on UAP. Because for the longest time, the U.S. government was saying nothing to see here. They've changed. They've literally changed their stance. They've done a 180. So now we have, for example, uh, Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard University. He he initiated a program called um, the Galileo Project, and he is. To developing telescopes with algorithms 
so that it, it filters out birds and stuff like that, but looks for truly anomalous stuff going to maybe hot spots where UFOs are known to appear often. So he's literally starting to quote unquote, look through the telescope, if you will. And, 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 and cause ultimately we've never really had a long-term systematic scientific investigation into this enigma. So anyone that says it's extremely unlikely that we're being visited by non-human intelligence to me is being slightly disingenuous. We cannot, we cannot proclaim it's extremely unlikely until the scientific method actually starts to apply to this mystery. And that has not happened yet. And it's starting to happen with people like uh, Harvard scientist uh, Avi Loeb. It's starting to happen with outfits like UAPX and others. So after that happens over decades potentially, and we and, and then we find nothing, then people can proclaim it's highly unlikely. But you cannot possibly proclaim it's highly unlikely when the scientific method hasn't even uh, even been in, invested into researching this enigma here's my my little uh qualm with this it's just that of course you know outside of the states there are many other countries many large countries where you know big big, big skies and things and of course there are reports of ufos all over the place i i went to a village uh called capilla del monte in argentina where they all believe in aliens and it's like this alien town we went looking for aliens together uh, and all that stuff but to say, okay, so the government in the US has been hiding this. Okay, they've been hiding it for a century. But has every single other government in that time in every other country for 100 years all conspired to hide anything that they've seen in their skies and not looked into it scientifically? That That's what seems unreasonable to me. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair rebuttal. So what I would say to that is, is <clears throat> I would say that th there must be something built into our psychology when it comes to people in power that do not want to broach this. Maybe, maybe think of it this way. Let's say you're uh, the head of the Air Force or the head of uh, uh, NORAD or whatever, and you have scientific data showing that, that you can't defend yourself. There, there's something out there that, that can infiltrate highly restricted military airspace with impunity. Are you going to be motivated to broach that? Are you gonna be motivated to reveal to the public that, hey, guess what? I, I have some news for you. There's technologies out there. We don't know where they come from. We don't know what their agenda is. And oh, by the way, they're known to to meddle with our nuclear um, infrastructure, which is which is a, which is part of the historical record. Uh, you you can go ahead and read Robert Hastings' books, UFO and Nukes. There have been many many corroborated events with 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 personnel, guards, and those. That, that are trusted to actually launch these nuclear ICBMs going back to the 60s, 50s, 70s, and, and up until today, where they, they report UAP have come over these installations, surveilled these installations, and in certain instances, it's been reported they've actually turned them on, turned them off. Now, mm -hmm. if that's actually happening, that may be a big reason governments don't want to touch this. They do not want to have to tell the public that, oh, not only do we have forensic proof that there are non, that there are unexplained technologies out there, but by the way, guess what? They're also interested in our nuclear technologies. I would argue that people in power are, are psychologically not motivated to go there. And therefore that would be a motivation to keep it secret. Now to your question of how has that not leaked out or, or another, I'll give you another rebuttal. I've heard there's many good rebuttals. There's security cameras all over the place. There's people, there's billions of people with, with, with smartphones, right? Why have they not picked these up?
just from happenstance? And the answer to that question is, I don't know. But what you have to keep in mind and what you cannot turn your, what you cannot ignore is that what happens when what, when what you're dealing with is, is thousands of times smarter than you. We cannot make assumptions about how this, these intelligence would operate. Would they want to be caught on camera? Would they want to be studied? Uh, maybe, maybe they see our, our biosphere as fascinating and they don't want to, they don't want to nudge the natural order of things. They want to see how we function without this paradigm shift. Now the rebuttal to that would be okay, but how does, how is the government getting the forensic proof, even if the public and mm. private organizations are not? And my answer to that would be, I don't know, but that's where the evidence points. I, I think we have to be careful about making assumptions about the motivations of something we don't even understand. It, it might've developed on another planet through another, through, through its own unique evolution because of the, uh, the temperatures and the, the foods and, and, and all of that. I don't know, but whatever we, whatever we might be dealing with might be thousands of times uh, uh, more intelligent than us. And so if it has decided that it, it wants to only have our civilization recognize it to a certain extent, I think with artificial intelligence, it could potentially pull that off. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is for the past 70 years, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of witnesses all over the world reporting the same kind of shapes, whether it's uh, saucer shaped, triangular shaped. We have corroborated UFO events. We have FOIA documents that have been acquired through the Freedom of Information Act. <clears throat> where government documents report that government insiders take this very seriously. And now we have an, a situation where the American government has changed their tune on this. Why would they do that? I, if I was in the government, I would just keep denying it. I wouldn't be like, okay, by the way, we weren't completely, we, we weren't completely honest with you. You got to recall, there was a UFO report that came out in June. I think it was June 25th, 2021. And if you read that report, it says that, uh, explicitly says that 18 incidences show technologies that uh, stay stationary in the wind, have kinds of propulsions that don't make sense, uh, does, doesn't show obvious means of propulsion. That's corroborated by the, for example, the USS Nimitz UFO event series. So I'm I'm not saying skepticism on this doesn't make sense because it does, and we we don't have we don't have scientific proof. But what I am saying is you really have to think in a nuanced way because you're not dealing with something that you can really compare to something else. You're dealing with something, quite frankly, that could be very alien. It's complicated, isn't it? And, and I, I don't deny that there's so much we don't know about. And, and to suggest we did know everything would be profoundly arrogant and uh, would be mad to ignore it. And I can imagine right now, again, I'm imagining this being in a, a movie about the sort of an apocalypse or whatever. And you're telling, you're the truth sayer. And we're all going, oh, yeah, but what about this and that? And then turns out you're right, but it's too late. You've just been gobbled up by an alien. But I mean, the thing is, I, yeah, that is the that is my sticking point. It is like I I can't believe that Trump wouldn't have come out with it by now, especially he's no longer president. I feel like he would have started telling everyone just because it would have given him popularity. Well, Barack Obama been... did. Barack Obama <clears throat> did. Barack Obama explicitly yeah. says we have footage and records of objects yeah. maneuvering ways that are not easily understand. Now the thing is, yeah, um, they may have kept it secret during the Cold War. If you recall, during the Cold War, nuclear exchange was not outlandish. So think about it. You're a government official. You're a military official. Do you really want to, on, on, in addition to the proposition that we're going we're gonna to eradicate the world because of a nuclear exchange, oh, and by the way, there's aliens. And oh, and by the way, they're messing with our nukes. So what might have happened is during the Cold War, they came to the, to the, the, to the decision to keep this hush-hush because we're already dealing with, with, 
with the, we're already dealing with the proposition of a nuclear exchange with Russia. We don't want to add this to 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 the table and and freak everybody out. What might have happened is the secrecy became so institutionalized that once the Cold War started to wear off a little bit, it just it just this, the, the truth never came out. What I think is happening, and I could be wrong. I think the truth's coming out now, and I think though I could be wrong within the coming years. You will see more transparency and more data that's very and more compelling than than we've seen up to this point. Very exciting. I would love that. Wake up one day, read you know the what? paper. Let me just say one last thing. One thing <laughs> yeah. we can unite on, whether you're a skeptic, yeah. a believer, or somewhere in between, which I think is what I'm, what I, where I'm at. I'm not a hundred percent. I would never be. I'd have to see the smoking gun evidence. You're but pretty one thing far we, along. I'm, I'm, not I'm in over between. 50%. I'm over fifty yeah. percent. I'm over fifty percent, okay. but I would not say I'm a hundred percent because I don't 90. have the smoking gun evidence. I, yeah. I don't feel like I need to be explicit and say, well, I'm 90% or I'm 80, I'm over 50% and my mind changes from day to day. But what I wanted to, so, so you're right. I'm not quite in the middle. I'm above the middle, but I'm not also, I'm not at 99% either. I wouldn't go that far okay. because I know that I have a fallible mind and I could be wrong. But what I wanted to say is, is that uh, we can all unite, whether you're a staunch, a knee jerk skeptic or a rabid believer, we can all unite in, in wanting greater transparency from our governments. That we can yeah. all agree on, and that's that the is common true. ground we and have, on, and I think that's what we should really push as good. a community. <laughs> You're right, and on that note, we're running out of time, so just tell us. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much uh, for telling us all about this, and tell us where people can come and find you. Yes, if you go to YouTube, just search Post Disclosure World, and I'll pop right up. That's my channel. Oh, well, go and check that out. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on, and have a lovely day. Thank you. You as well. I appreciate it. That was very interesting. Um, and I'm just waiting for um, Elizabeth Bovos to come into the into the thing. I think she seems to be in the thing, but I can't see her camera on at the moment. So I'm just going to wait before putting her in here when she might not be ready. <clears throat> so I will just chatter for a second. Aliens, that would be something. As I was saying before, I went and looked for aliens in Argentina. Capicha del Monte, little, little village. Um, oh. It was working when it entered, Elizabeth says. Okay, well, I will wait until she... Um, I'll wait, Elizabeth, until you can get it working again, perhaps. So just, no, you know, you don't panic or anything. Just there's no rush. People people love listening to me talk nonsense, don't they? Are we alone in the universe, Kate asks. No, we're absolutely not. Sean, are we? It's so, there's so much out there, it is impossible, isn't it, to determine. If you look at infinite time and infinite space... The theory that everything that's happened, you know, could have already happened. Parallel universes, you just get lost, don't you, in all the different theories and all of the different possibilities. And I do Seems. find it absolutely mesmerizing to dive into these subjects. Yeah. Nosferatu, so, I want Andrew and Sean to go ghost hunting. <laughs> I'm up for that. We could do it on We're, living TV. Do you have a suggestion as to where we should go ghost hunting? Because my cousin actually had one of the, she man, used to manage one of the most haunted pubs in England. Right. And I went up there and there was a whole room upstairs that was just walled in. You couldn't even get into it. And this building formerly, I think it was a, a courthouse and a jail. And they had the cemetery right over the street. So back in the day, they used to hang people and uh people get executed they were being held for execution in those rooms but now it's a pub 
Yeah. Oh my God. The thing is, here's my issue with that is that the ghosts are always from like gothic times. They always come, which happens to be the time when we started talking about writing about ghosts. You don't get caveman ghosts just going like, oh, 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 you know, or, or like, or like <laughs> evolution people who are sort of the missing link. I know that's a misnomer, mm-hmm. but between, you know, you don't get them. You only get gothic ghosts. But do you think it could be ghosts could be the interpretation of a certain type of energy? For example. When I was in Supermax prison and there was a death row right there, you know, the energy, people people have been murdered here, the energy, you can just feel it. And when I visited East Europe, where was it? Um, Leipzig. So I was yeah. taken to a prison that had been run by the Stasi and they had the execution of the prisoner's room. They had the collection of the corpse's room and you, you could just feel that energy, you know, the, the, the death and yeah. torture. Wait, and, that, that's yeah. just being in Germany. <laughs> I lived there for two or three years. That's being in Germany. I went to Leipzig a couple of times. It's, no, I'm joking. Anyone from Germany, don't be offended. I do love it. That's why I lived there. You can mit dir auf Deutsch sprechen, wenn du willst. So I wouldn't want to offend those German, lovely German people. But... You know, you had a bit of an experience. Well, good. Good. We should do a ghost uh, podcast. Where we, uh, Sean and Andrew's, uh, because there's already the love one, isn't there? Sean and Andrew's couple romance or something. Um, but anyway, I think I've got Elizabeth ready now. Right. I'm going to continue with my veggie yeah. curry. Cheers. You can buzz right off, mate. Get out of here. <sighs> that guy. That guy. Right. Elizabeth, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for speaking with me and thank you for waiting. Oh, you are very welcome. Is that an accent? What accent is that? Is that like Texan? It, it's a mix of um, Arkansan and Australian. I grew up in Australia. Oh, right. Okay, that's what it is then. That's what it is. So we are here today. Or You know what? Why don't you just give us a little rundown of your background and then we'll get into some Assange stuff. Sure, yeah. Uh, grew up in Australia, lived in the US for a long time. I'm an independent journalist. I write for Mint Press News and Consortium News, but primarily I co-host our Consortium News' webcast, CN Live. And we've been covering Assange. We've been covering a lot of the censorship around Ukraine and lots of issues, you know, the elections. I mean, just all sorts of things going back a few years now. Okay, fantastic. Interesting. And, and what, what's, what is going on? Obviously, I, I'm always wary of being fairly lay person-y in talking just because we have it's such a a vast amount of listeners and you don't know who knows what so just again briefly could you give us just what i mean oh, do we go into who julian assange is i suppose everybody knows that so i hope oh, i don't want to offend people who don't know what what's going on just give us the basics sure. of what's, what's happening so assange uh, julian assange obviously was the um you know editor of wikileaks uh, he's been imprisoned in belmarsh since 2019 which is you know maximum security prison in the uk it's been compared with the us's guantanamo bay he is charged well he's, he's the extradition is being sought by the us uh, they want to charge him with uh under the espionage act with charges that would basically um see him if convicted face up to 175 years in us prisons uh, initially, he won his appeal, uh, his the extradition uh, case in uh, the uh, UK district judge Vanessa Breitzer found that he was a suicide risk and ruled against his extradition. The US then appealed that, of course, and uh, they basically uh, won their appeal. Um, the UK basically said that, or the the High Court said that uh, that the US assurances that they would not unduly you know punish Assange that they would be fair to him that he wouldn't be in uh, solitary confinement that they wouldn't put him in a supermax prison the high court basically found those to be credible 
Assange's lawyers had argued that, uh, you know, they weren't really able to argue about whether those were credible assurances, but I mean, clearly they're not. But they did argue that the assurances were not given until after the ru initial ruling had taken place. Um, mm -hmm. And their their appeal to the uh, to the uh, high court's decision was not heard. So at this point, uh, he uh, the lower court has uh, passed along the extradition order to UK Home Secretary Priti Patel. She has there are four weeks in which Assange's lawyers can submit an appeal uh, to to her. She's expected to basically rubber stamp the extradition. At that point, it goes back to uh, Assange's attempt to appeal. And if you know if he uh, is granted an appeal, then he'll the process will go on in the courts. If it's not, then he could be extradited uh, around the summertime, from what I understand. Hmm. So, from say Priti Patel's perspective, um, presumably they don't want to damage relations with the U.S. And is it just is that how it works? And it's just like, oh, it's easier just to rubber stamp this. Yeah, I pretty much. I mean, Patel is is hardly a friend to whistleblowers and uh, you know news organizations like WikiLeaks. She's really seen as kind of um, you know a, a warmonger and a friend of of the military establishment. So she's not someone who is expected to do anything other than essentially rubber stamp this order. Mm, God. And so right now, yes. Yeah, so he's now in the UK, basically awaiting extradition because you don't think that his appeal stands any chance. Right. Well, the appeal would likely be on the grounds that uh, the judge, uh, Vanessa Baratzer, initially ruled against him on. So basically, in her initial ruling against extradition, she only found that he shouldn't be extradited based on his health concerns. Now, that has been decided against his favor. So that's just no longer an issue. But what Assange's lawyers can argue against is her other findings, which were basically in agreement with U.S. arguments that he was, uh, you know, uh, you know, that he was uh, breaking the law in all these different ways, the, the national security points of their arguments. And, you know, I, I think one of the really important things to remember here is that the reason, like the, ori the origination of this prosecution was with Trump's administration. The Obama administration had wanted to prosecute Assange, but decided not to based on uh, press freedom implications. And what happened was, and this is where the US intelligence community really comes into the foreground, is that uh, WikiLeaks published Vault 7 in March 2017, and that was just a couple of months after Trump was inaugurated. That publication contained uh, CIA hacking tools, and that allowed, and it really embarrassed the CIA deeply. It showed um, electronic surveillance uh, tools, cyber warfare tools, uh, that or had been essentially lost, lost control of by the CIA. So what happened was Mike Pompeo, who was director of the CIA at the time, was able to use that publication to convince Trump to prosecute Assange. And dis I mean, despite that, uh, as I hope most of you viewers know, uh, Assange is not being punished or prosecuted for Vault 7. He's not being prosecuted for anything to do with 2016 either. He's being prosecuted for the Manning era publications of evidence of US war crimes, for which he's won you know, dozens of awards for journalism. So, uh, so the CIA though really had a, a vendetta against Assange to the point that as Yahoo News reported, uh, with a groundbreaking report, they uh, had plans to kidnap and potentially assassinate Assange. And it was considered so embarrassing by the Trump Justice Department that that's when they initiated prosecution against him in 2018 to kind of avoid embarrassment if the CIA went after him and, and killed him uh, you know, within the Ecuadorian embassy or kidnapped him from the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Is public opinion like... Is there a general consensus in the public that, you know, just just on board with Assange or are there, are there people 
against him because everyone I've met is sort of you know wanting him to be released yeah I mean I think that there's a, a, a widespread level of ignorance around the Assange case because even if you don't you don't hate him or you don't think you know even if you haven't bought a lot of the more vitriolic propaganda narratives around Assange there's so many layers to it and so many years of it even uh, people like Nils Meltzer who is the uh, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture said he had be been affected by the uh, propaganda narrative smearing Assange to the point that he initially didn't consider him in terms of uh, being a torture victim. But eventually he kind of educated himself about it and he did find that Assange was definitely a victim of psychological torture on the part of you know the US and the UK. So. And what is it? Is this just an overblown reaction out of fear that you know somebody might copy what he's done, somebody else might try and find out their secrets basically? I, de I definitely think that it's a level of revenge uh, on the part of the intelligence communities and the national security kind of infrastructure in the United States, especially. I also think that it is uh, a warning to others not to, um, you know, do the type of groundbreaking journalism that Assange uh, implemented. I think, you know, it's, and we saw the same thing with Chelsea Manning, that she was kind of made an example of as a whistleblower. And I think the same thing would have happened to Edward Snowden if he had been, you know, basically renditioned back to the United States. Uh, so yeah, I think definitely this is a warning to others to to not uh, conduct the type of journalism that Assange has been capable of. Yeah, where is Edward Snowden right now? Well, he's in Russia, <laughs> safe uh, oh, from yeah. the US hands at the moment. Wow, he must live a, a, a strange life, like elusive and different, and no one quite knows where he is. Yeah, I, I would imagine, yeah. Ah, really interesting. So you were saying that Assange's help was the original reason that the magistrate... Uh, uh, yeah, refused extradition. Um, how is his health now? What do we know? Well, in addition to the depression and PTSD and other, uh, you know, mental health issues that Assange was suffering at the time of the original um, extradition hearing, uh, since then and, and during the appeals process, he's also suffered from some type of event that was uh, characterized as a mini stroke. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something to that effect. And so that's an additional physical health problem that was not even considered in the original hearing and that hasn't been considered by the high court in their decision. And it, that's interesting because in the high court decision, basically one of the judges said that if Assange had had eczema, like Laurie Love, who was a, another hacktivist who, uh, whose extradition was refused on similar grounds, uh, Laurie Love had uh, depression and, and Asperger's or autism, which Assange also was found to have in his psychological um, evaluations. So Lori Love was refused extradition because of inhumane conditions he would face in the United States. And so when talking about that and comparing those two cases, the judge in Assange's case said basically, well, but Lori Love had a physical issue as well. He had eczema. So Assange didn't have a physical issue. So therefore, that you can't compare them. But, you know, with the fact that Assange had this, this uh, small stroke or something like it, uh, clearly he's having, you know, multiple physical issues as a result of the persecution against him. Do we all now have to accept that Assange is going to spend the rest of his days locked up in prison in the States? I mean, I think it's really possible. I mean, one of the things that Baritzer said, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that this is incorrect or that this has changed. Uh, Baritzer based, uh, I believe the psychological workup on Assange found that um, that Assange is, has the capability in, you know, intellectually and the willpower to, um, to unfortunately uh, commit suicide if he believes that that extradition is imminent. So there is a chance that he wouldn't make it to the US. Uh, I mean, it, it's just not a good situation, regardless of what happens, basically. And in a sense, he's just been locked up the last since when? How long has this been now? 15 years or something? 
Yeah, I mean, he was under house arrest and then he was he went to the Ecuadorian embassy seeking political asylum, which he received for years. I believe it was seven years before he was uh you know, expelled from the embassy and put into prison in uh, Belmarsh. And then he's been there for, I believe, around two and a half years, going on three years since um, uh, since being expelled. So it's been a very long time. It's And he's never been convicted of anything. It's really important to remember that. He's at this point, uh, he should be on bail at this point. He's fighting extradition, but he's not fighting, uh, you know, he's not appealing a conviction. He's not serving a prison sentence. He's simply being held because the U.S. Uh, you know, fears he will be a flight risk, uh, despite the fact that he has a very young family in the U.K. And he's very unlikely to want to leave them. Oh man, but yeah, but I, oh, so he's got a family there, but he's been just living in the embassy in Ecuador for so long. What's uh, oh, I don't know. It's yeah, Ecuador, Ecuador, Ecuadorian embassy in London, London, but yes, yeah, and then now he's in Belmarsh. Hmm. So, at this point, realistically, is there anyone who could intervene? To stop this extradition, is is that going to happen? Well, I mean, in theory, uh, Priti Patel could. Yeah. Then also, if, if Assange wins his appeals, then that could be, uh, you know, a viable option uh, in his favor. It's very unlikely that would happen. And of course, if he did win an appeal, then the U.S. would probably cross appeal back, and it would it's it would be a very very long process. Um, and all the while, you know, during the entire time, he would still remain in Belmarsh, very likely. Man, it's no life. It's it's so sad, really, because I mean, I suppose. Look, he was he was exposing secrets. Is there an argument as well? Uh, do do you have some sympathy with the other side that you know he was he was exposing secrets that could potentially harm um, certain people in the military in the country? Well, it's an interesting argument because uh, in 2013, I believe, during the Manning uh, proceedings. It would, the U.S. admitted, the authorities admitted that they had not had, they couldn't, didn't have any records of anyone, not a single person being harmed or killed by uh, WikiLeaks's publications. So hmm. mm. I think, yeah. Okay. I mean, what, what Assange has done has been really what journalists do on a day-to-day -day basis. As journalists receive often classified material and they publish it as leaks and they're not prosecuted for it. The reason that Assange is being prosecuted is because he did it in such a large scale and effective way and in a way that wasn't friendly to the intelligence and national security establishment. I mean, most of the time when we see leaks, it's somebody on the inside kind of leaking something favorable to a large news organization. This, is, this was completely different. So it's the same action, but it worked against the intelligence community and the, the you know, military establishment. So that's why we're seeing this level of prosecution. Hmm. Who is it then that is just pursuing and pursuing and pursuing? Is, does it depend on who the president is? Does it does that change? Does Biden coming in make it different or what? They're just after this guy. Yeah, not not at all. There's no change. I mean, from Trump to Biden, it's the same prosecution. I think that uh, that it's it's obviously it's the national security state that is mm. hell bent on on making an example of Assange and punishing him. Uh, you know, Obama wanted to hit the national security state under Trump was successful in doing this, and and Biden has continued it. And I think also, there, unfortunately, uh, Assange's dedication to the truth, no matter who it hurts, um, meant that politically, you know, he originally made made enemies on the right under George Bush. He then, uh, during 2016, uh, you know, lost a lot of supporters on the left who supported Hillary Clinton, you know, after the 2016 publications of the DNC and Podesta emails, um, which, you know, were newsworthy. They were real information. They were, they showed uh, true issues of corruption in the Democratic Party. They were totally newsworthy at the time. However, that meant that WikiLeaks and Assange were then associated with Russia in the due to propaganda narratives around it. 
and a lot of the kind of center left, the 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 left that is very pro-establishment then abandoned Assange. And I think that's given the excuse and the pretext for somebody like Biden to prosecute Assange without losing any of his base. Oh, yeah. That's really sad. And that, that shift in sort of the culture that, you know, has really, has really had a not come at a good time for him, I suppose. If he did get out, what sort of an impact do you think the PTSD would have on his life? I can't imagine. I, I think that, uh, you know, it would... Obviously, I mean, there would be no comparison between that type of suffering and the suffering that he would face in prison. But I imagine he would have a very long road of recovery because it's not. I mean, even when he was in the embassy, he was suffering from uh, physical and ment and you know emotional mental um, issues relating to being in such a small space for so many years without even being able to go outside. I mean, he was concerned. And uh, it turns out that his concerns were very justified about even going onto the small uh, the small little porch that was in front of the that was part of the embassy grounds, uh, the the little railing in which you know he was photographed a couple of times. So he was not he didn't wasn't exposed to sunlight for years. He was developing eye prop vision problems from having a small depth of field staying the same for so long. And I mean that's before being put in prison. So I can't imagine the physical and, and emotional repercussions if he were to be um, freed. I, I was remembering. I'm remembering now that when he was in the Ecuadorian embassy, there were a lot of there was. It's like he didn't get on with the people there or something. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I, I seem to remember that the afterwards it was like he wasn't a very welcome guest there. Yeah, there was a change in uh, in the government in Ecuador, and the 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 rulership under which he was initially uh, granted asylum was friendly and protective of Assange. The subsequent leadership, although they were in the same political party that would have. Um, theoretically supported Assange. It's it looks like they were um, persuaded by the United States to, to and the UK to turn their backs on Assange. Uh, there was a I believe it was a very large IMF loan that was granted to Ecuador shortly before Assange was expelled, and he uh, the uh, the security firm that was working for the Ecuadorian embassy UC Global was found to have uh, spied on Assange on behalf of the CIA for a few years there. And they were viewing things like his medical uh, appointments, his lawyer's appointments. So he, privileged legal information was being spied on 24 seven by the CIA essentially. And so that went along with this turn against Assange by the Ecuadorian government. And then eventually he was expelled, which, you know, it should be illegal under international law, but no one seems to mind. What about um, Boris Johnson? I know it's pretty Patel, but I know that people are sending, you know, uh, letters to Boris Johnson at the moment. Has, is there, is he getting involved? Has he said anything about about Julian Assange? Yeah, not to my knowledge. I think that any any um, action people can take to support Assange and talk to their local MPs, their representatives in the US, wherever you live, um, especially if you're in, you know, the UK, Australia, and the US, those three countries especially, uh, that's really important. Writing, you know, letters to the editor in your newspapers, talking to people you know. And I mean, one of the things too, I've noticed you asked earlier about the public sentiment around Assange. And I think the biggest problem is uh, a combination of apathy and no or very inaccurate news coverage. You know, people look at the Assange case and they just kind of say either, well, he's not that important or, you know, this case doesn't really matter to me. And the, the issue with that is that even if you don't care about press freedoms in terms of war crimes, even if you don't care about what WikiLeaks did or you don't like Assange personally, uh, his imprisonment and the persecution of him sets a huge precedent 
um, where the U.S. can basically treat the entire world as its jurisdiction. Assange didn't ever publish in the United States. He never lived in the United States. He's not a U.S. citizen, and yet the U.S. is prosecuting him under their laws, for one thing. Right. And additionally, the his case is going to affect activism in every sphere. I mean, if you're somebody who cares about the climate more than Assange, your activism will still be affected by this. So it's it's talking to people about that in that way, I think, is really important. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting point, actually. I was just thinking now, um, so he's an Australian citizen. So are the Australian government getting involved and saying, hang on, this is our guy? Because I would feel like if I didn't, if America were after me, I'd want my government to be like, hang on a minute, you know, he's ours and he's sitting tight here. Yeah, I mean, there's been a, a very much a, you know, vapid non-response from the US, uh, from the Australian government. There are some supportive um, MPs from uh, various political parties, from everything from Labour to the far right. But uh, that hasn't resulted in any definitive statement by the actual, you know, the leadership in Australia. And that's really unfortunate. Hmm. He must feel really deserted, I suppose. And yeah. And so so what do you think there are? I mean, what, what message does this send out to, to other people, to journalists? I mean, everyone's talking about Elon Musk at the moment and free speech and stuff like that. Is it like it feels to me like there's two worlds right now and there's that sort of Elon Musk world of like everyone can say what they want and then there's this actually what's going on in the macrocosm level countries and things and clamping down on that that free speech. Absolutely. I think, well, that's one of the reasons that so many people are excited about what Elon Musk is doing. Now, whether they should be or not is an entirely different discussion, but there has been so much censorship around the Ukrainian issue recently, around COVID before that, and on, and then Russiagate before that. I mean, it's just gone on, but it has really escalated um, from what I've seen during this the, the war in Ukraine. That has been absolutely insane. And I think that the normalization of that censorship goes right along with the prosecution of Assange. Um, you know, if, you know, and if Elon Musk, all he does is, let's say, um, unbans Donald Trump, I think a lot of people might take that as some sort of symbolic victory. But unless he unbans people like Scott Ritter, uh, Pepe Escobar, you know, real journalists who were doing really good work on the Ukrainian subject, uh, but who were suspended by Twitter unfairly, uh, then I think it's all symbolic. And, you know, that, like I said, that all goes along with the prosecution of Assange, and it really is concerning. Um, Assange is an emblem of all of that. And I think too often he gets uh, forgotten in the discussion of censorship. It's like people have just moved on. But without the information that WikiLeaks publishes, we can't have free discussions. We can't have informed discussions. Um, so whether we're censored or not, we need that really um, accurate information that WikiLeaks publishes, that firsthand documentation um, to have wider, wider discussions. Let's hope that Julian um, does somehow find a way out of this predicament um you have done you know work on the finders cult and things like that tell us a little bit more about the kind of work that you do sure i cover everything from like i said assange to uh some human trafficking cases i've covered the finders i've covered epstein i covered the belgian uh, dutro case a few years ago uh, i also cover election integrity i covered the dnc fraud lawsuit when that was happening i covered the um election interference with uh, Tim Canova's uh, election uh, down in Florida. Uh, and so basically I cover a, a lot of different subjects around corruption. I criticize intelligence agencies regularly, whether it's with Assange or whether it's in terms of like human trafficking. Um, I've covered the fact that the Epstein case was very much linked with intelligence as other people have pointed out, but that's the aspect of the case that the media uh, most often omits, whether it's in like ne the Netflix documentary or just news coverage. Um, so similarly, the Finders case was uh, connected to the CIA. It was, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to summarize a very large case quickly, but basically 
it was a, a group of people that were being investigated for potential child abuse. Uh, one of the investigators found evidence of a much larger um, operation that looked like there was evidence of, um, you know, very criminal activity ranging from uh, terrorism through to uh, uh, money transfers and child trafficking. And that uh, the evidence of that subsequently disappeared and that as an investigator stated that the CIA had shut it down and made it an internal investigation. So that's where the CIA comes into that story too. And that was in the late 80s. Oh, it's disgusting, all that stuff. Do you see yourself then sort of in the mold of a, a Julian Assange, like exposing uh, things at the, at the heart of governments? And, and does that worry you sometimes? Uh, not not at all. I'm, I'm covering, you know, information that's out in the open. I'm not, I don't have the infrastructure and I'm not, uh, you know, publishing the first-hand documents that WikiLeaks does. Uh, I think that's that's really where you get into the crosshairs of the government. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't have the hubris to think that I'm some sort of big target or anything like that. I, to my knowledge, I haven't experienced any targeting, but I do, I do criticize intelligence agencies regularly. So, yeah, see, that's the scary part. I, I know what you mean about the, the hubris and the, and the, the, you know, the, but, but they are targeting people. They must, I, I, there must be an office somewhere and they've got your name sort of written down. Just, I don't want to scare you actually. <laughs> Maybe they don't, they probably don't, do they? Well, I mean, if they do, then, I mean, they haven't done much about it. So, I mean, I've had a few, of course, there have been hit pieces occasionally, but nothing that I'm too worried about, so. Yeah, okay. Where would you like people to come and find you? And uh, not not the military, sorry, people <laughs> as in following you on Twitter and stuff. Not Don't give sure. me your, your address or anything. Yeah, sure. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Elizabeth, L-E-A-V-O-S, Elizabeth Lee Voss. Um, most okay. of the time I'm doing coverage of uh, the news with CN Live on YouTube. And uh, can, I publish uh, the occasional article with Consortium News and Mint Press News. So. Okay, fantastic. And I guess we'll we'll just end on just like what? Yeah, you said write letters. Is that what people can do? Is that the best thing we can do to get behind Assange? Yeah. It's such it's it's the question everyone asks, and it's the hardest to answer because so much of this is is really centering around the corruption and the powerful. And how do we address that? I mean, the best thing I think we can do is, as I said earlier, write those letters, uh, share discussions like this and other articles that are really good and expose the propaganda around Assange, share those with your followers, uh, talk to people in your real life and definitely write those letters to your representatives. Because I do think, and what a lot of people who are more informed than I have said about this case is that the only way this is going to be fixed is not in the realm of, of like justice, because this is so clearly an, an unjust case. It's only going to be solved politically because it is a political case. So if politicians know that the public will not stand for this, that is the only hope we have of stopping this, this issue. So. Well, fantastic. I hope, yeah, hope he gets out of this. And thank you so much for coming on. Have a lovely day, Elizabeth. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Right, that's, that was fantastic. Oh, no, here he is. Well done, Andrew. Brilliant questions, brilliant interviews. I, I listened Get to both. Absolutely fascinated. Yeah. Oh, well, cheers, mate. No, they were great. I mean, look, it's the guests, isn't it? We just sit here being handsome and the guests <laughs> do their bit. <laughs> handsome and hurry backed <laughs> hurry back that's what it's about you've got john guy in a minute don't you we've got, we've got two minutes before then how what's going on what you've been doing mate so i wrote to julian many many years ago when he was in the yeah. embassy and i sent him a book hard time and I, I put in um hope you don't end up in the u.s justice system like this and he oh. he, he sent me an email back and he asked me to you know ask the public to write to their mps and stuff like that and get try and raise some support for him 
So more recently, I've just sent him this massive book that is the guidelines to the U.S. federal prison system. Oh, I wish. Is I he wish. Replied? No, he's not. And I wish um, I had to do it in a way whereby I wasn't uh, attached to it. But hopefully, it got to him, and hopefully, it will be of use to him if he doesn't, if he's not able to stop what's going on at the last minute. And I, I, I pray that he does. Stop, he must he be is so able stressed to stop out. What's, what's going on at the last minute? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Awful definitely. What's going on with him? Really, really bad. Ah, oh, oh my. Right. Well, John's in the in the thing, so I should leave you to it, shouldn't I? You should. I will see you later, brother. I've been uh, having a great time, mate. It's been lovely. See you later. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you, Andrew. Ah, Cheers. Ah, 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 ah. Hey, John. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having We're... me here. Oh, it's a real honor. Whereabouts in the states are you? I'm in Wyoming. Wyoming. Okay, so for people not familiar with your case then, I'm just going to tell them, you spent your early childhood in a gifted and talented education program, but at 19 years old, you stabbed a guy and got sentenced to 17 years in prison. You've rebuilt your life and you have released your book, Think Straight, an owner's manual to the bind, which we're going to have all your links in the description box below this video. But uh, yeah, huge thank you for coming down. Let's just go back then in time. I'm sure the viewers are going to be wondering how the hell this <laughs> altercation came about. Yeah. Um, so basically it was a, it was a, I mean, to sum it up briefly, it was a stupid bar fight. Um, a buddy of mine and I were driving home from a party. Uh, we got into a confrontation with some people and uh, we ended up, um, that, that confrontation initially got broken up and uh, we got back in our car and took off and uh, we got down the street a little ways and we ran into another group and I think it was either a mixture of the first group um, and, and some more people or an entirely separate group, I'm not sure. Um, but we, we got on uh, with them and started arguing with them. And uh, I, I guess um, at some point I had passed kind of the antagonist from the first altercation. And um, that, I mean, to kind of paint the picture, there was about uh, 20, maybe 15 or 20 of them, and there was two of us. Um, and I had pulled my knife out early on when I got out of the car and nothing had really ensued. Nobody was like meleeing or fighting or anything. Um, so I just had it in my hand. And um, uh, at, at one point I, I was passing the antagonist kind of like this. Um, I don't know if you can see that. And uh, yep. I, I really don't have a good reason for why I did it, but I, I, I reached behind and I stabbed him as we were passing each other. And um, he kind of gave me this like quizzical look, you know, like he didn't really understand what happened or anything. And he kept walking. And uh, my buddy uh, was in a, he was, he was in a crowd behind me, kind of like with a semicircle of people around him. And um, so I kind of walked towards him and I, as, I, as I got close to that little crowd, uh, a guy came and grabbed me by the arm and he said, the smart thing to do is grab your friend, get in the car and get the hell out of here. So we took off and uh, I got arrested uh, maybe three hours later. What did you say the original confrontation was about? Um, well, w the first time we had stopped, we were at a, a red light and a bunch of guys had surrounded the car. We were in a Camaro and they were slapping the cars, you know, talking crap like, this ain't no hot rod. You guys don't know anything about Camaros and just, you know, 
basically just for slapping the car. And uh, so that's why we got out and confronted him in, in the first place. And during that first altercation, the reason that one had ended was one of the guys came out of the crowd and he said, hey, uh, I've been dealing with these guys all night. Do me a favor and get the hell out of here, you know. And like I've been on that side of the situation before and I've been on their side, you know, wanting to fight people. So um, I, you know, I respected where he was at and we got in the car and took off. And when we had stopped the second time, it was more of the same uh, obscenities, you know, you know, you know, screaming at us, slapping on the car and whatever. So. So they started it, but you did something that you were going to regret. And Joe has asked. How large was the knife? What kind of a knife was it? And I'm also wondering where, where this person was stabbed. Um, so the knife was, it's a typical pocket knife about the blade, I think is about palms width, maybe three and a half inches. Um, what kind of knife? I don't know if that's relevant, but it was a Kershaw, just kind of a, a spring-loaded Kershaw. Um, and then uh, what was the what was the final question? Whereabouts oh, where the person? Stabbed? Yeah, so he was stabbed. Um, that, that's there's a little bit of controversy about that. Um, so he was when I stabbed him, I kind of swung my arm around him, so it was like in his like lower mid back, I guess. Um, the controversy is whether or not um, it had punctured his liver, which I don't think happened, and uh, <laughs> other other people say it did. I don't know. There was never any medical reports or anything submitted at trial suggesting that he had a punctured liver there was never any testimony from a doctor that he returned the next day or anything like that just a restitution bill for sure <laughs> that was disproportionate right. to what was actually presented as far as medical evidence goes yeah people always beef those up don't they to get more money <laughs> they sure did in that one yeah so you left the scene then you were advised to get the hell out of there how were you apprehended um, so I guess they had put out an APB, uh, an all, all points bulletin on the vehicle. And um, one of the highway patrolmen said that he had seen a vehicle like that in this area recently. So they started looking everywhere. They saw the Camaro in the driveway and then they had surrounded uh, the house. Um, so I found out they were there because I opened I opened the door to let my dog use the bathroom before I went. Uh, to bed for the night and he kind of pushed the door open with his face and took off running and uh, one of the police officers shot him um, and that's kind of when everything got illuminated for me and I realized you know there was you know probably half a dozen maybe more cops that had been surrounding the house and um, yeah that was <laughs> that was a tragic moment all right before we get into the incarceration details then let I want to give the viewers a bit more of a backstory. I'm sure they were very curious about what the crime was. And we've, we've got that out of the way. So let, let's go back to what your life was like then. You grew up in California and you ended up being put on a program for gifted kids. Yeah, that that's um, sort of blown out of proportion. Uh, when I was in, uh, in grade school, um, I had got put in this thing called GATE, which was Gifted and Talented Education Program. Um, uh, and it was basically for kids who were, um, you know, excelling beyond the normal classroom work. And they thought that they had potential for, you know, extracurricular activities and uh, things like that. So it wasn't like I was, you know, on some pedestal, but it was, you know, it was kind of cool to be on there. Yeah. And then 
I just lost my best mate, so I know this must have hurt. In 1997, you lost your brother? Yep, that's true. And what were the circumstances of that? Uh, he actually died from a heroin overdose. Oh, dear. And were you aware that he was involved in the drugs lifestyle? Um, I think to a certain degree, I understood that he was involved in that kind of lifestyle, but I didn't know it to, to what extent until afterwards. How and old were you at that time? Uh, I was 11 when he passed. Oh, and um, I think he had been clean for a while uh, before before he died. And then it was kind of like a moment of weakness for him. And he, he used one last time and that's what did it for him. Holy shit. So what was that like? The, you know, the family, the shock that must have gone through the family, that tragedy. Yeah, I remember my mom saying that it was a shock, but not a surprise. Um, mm. Because, you know, she obviously knew more about his drug habits than I did, um, being a, being just a kid. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was really shocking. It was, <clears throat> excuse me, um, disappointing. It was my older brother. I loved him. I looked up to him. I thought, you know, I idolized him. I thought he was, <laughs> you know, the coolest guy ever. And uh, yeah, I didn't, that was kind of the first, no, not kind of. That was the first death that was, you know, close that I'd ever really experienced. And, um, yeah, it wasn't easy, for sure. And you were 11. You said he was your older brother. So how old was he at the time? He was 21. 21, right. And then the next year, you ended up in the juvenile hall. What brought that about? <laughs> uh, a, a slew of misbehavior. Um, I got after after my brother had had passed uh i i kind of didn't really have a lot of interest in going to school anymore and i got involved with you know people who an, an older crowd of teenagers who weren't you know they were using drugs and committing crimes and stuff and uh i kind of just fell in with that crowd and um ended up in juvenile hall for i mean i, I can't tell you what that time was for because i ended up I think I went to juvenile hall like 14 times between the ages of 12 and 18. So yeah, it was just a, it was, it was, I was a rotten child. <laughs> I was a rotten kid. When did you start taking drugs? Um, I started using drugs probably around the same time that Matt, uh, my brother had passed away. So you were self-medicating then for the tragedy. Yeah. I think, what, I think a lot of people have said that. Yeah. What drugs, did you partake in ever in my life no at that time in 1997 1998 oh, I yeah i started uh like smoking a lot of weed and um i guess smoking cigarettes and drinking here and there and i guess that kind of progressively led towards like um i took a lot of lsd and 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 uh mushrooms and um after a while i got into methamphetamine and uh, that was really the downfall. That's that was that's a that's a good one right there. That one really takes a toll on somebody's life. Yeah, I've seen that firsthand. All right, so that was back in ninety seven, ninety eight, and then if if people have just jumped on the live stream, we started talking about the big one, whereby John's car was surrounded by a bunch of people that were antagonizing him and his mate, and then john went too far and stabbed one of them so he's then gets arrested for attempted murder is it 
That's correct. Attempted second degree murder. So you've been arrested and is it the county jail that you, you, you got to go into first? Yeah, that's right. Which city is that in? Uh, I got arrested in Laramie, which is uh, the University of Wyoming is there. Okay, so it's, um, what's the name of that county jail? Uh, Albany County. Albany County. So could you just describe what it's like going into the county jail as an adult? Um, that, that county jail is, <laughs> it's terrible. So it's, it's not like jail and I'm originally from California and, and I've been, you know, kind of acclimated to the jail system out there. When I got, when I got to that jail, I was booked in and in a bed within like an hour and a half, which in, you know, the, the county I'm from, uh, Alameda County in California, I've spent like 36 hours waiting for a bed in there. I mean, the booking is crazy. And then you get into the pod in Wyoming and there's like 25 people in it, <laughs> which is not, the, you know, there's 10,000 people in the county jail back home. So, uh, and predominantly white, um, you know, uh, Wyoming is not very racially diverse. Um, Alameda County is predominantly um, black and Hispanic. Uh, so really big culture shock coming into that situation. I'd only been in Wyoming about two weeks before I got arrested. So the whole thing was a pretty big culture shock for me in general. So there's plenty of space then compared to places like Phoenix, Arizona, <laughs> LA, sounds yeah. like it. And what about the rules of racial division then? Are there any races in there? They would be the minority, it sounds like. Would they be, you know, you can't interact with the other races, things like that? Um, Wyoming is typically in, in jails and prison, that's that's the norm. In, in Wyoming, when you get to the prison, it's it's it, that's pretty much the norm, although the rules aren't strictly enforced like that. They are in uh, bigger states. Um, in, in the county jail, I, maybe it's different now. I was in county jail 20 years ago, but uh, it, it wasn't really like that uh, uh, when, when I was there. People went where they wanted, and uh, yeah, it wasn't really like that. What about the Aryan Brotherhood? Are they strong in Wyoming? No, I don't think I ever saw one. <laughs> oh, wow. It's, what's yeah, interesting is how different each state's prison experience is, because some people in England, they watch a guy like, for example, in Florida and hear his story. And then they hear a guy in another state and his story. And they think there's something wrong because the cultures are so different. But what they don't understand, it's like comparing a, a jail in France to a jail in Turkey, because America's so big, isn't it? So you've got yeah. all these different, the legal systems are different and the, the prison cultures are different. You've not just got the state, you've got the federal system as well, which is completely different too. So yeah, I mean, the, what you're describing is like nothing I've ever heard from all the people I've, <laughs> I've interviewed. Uh, primarily, we've interviewed people who've been in prison in Arizona and California, I would say the most. And it's just gang, drugs, mayhem. So is there a lot of drugs in the prison in Wyoming? Very, very little. There's not there's not a lot of drugs, um, which is probably another reason why there's not a lot of gang activity in Wyoming is because there's really no trade or commerce or need for protection or um well, you know what what makes doing time in wyoming so miserable is that it, it there's really nothing to do there it's just mostly idle time and like i tell people all the time that in bigger cities bigger systems you're worried about uh the inmate population other inmates what are they going to do what's going on with them 
in Wyoming, it's the cops. The cops are typically, you know, poking the bear constantly trying to get a reaction out of people. They're bored. They want to, uh, you know, stir something up or whatever. Um, and, and there's not like a lot of educational programs or, uh, rehabilitation programs. There's, um, you don't have like open gym time or open yard time in Wyoming. You have like a segment, um, in the weekly schedule, if the cops want to let you go do it. So it's not, it's, it's just a lot of idle time, which gets really monotonous. What were the guards like? How did they treat you? Uh, I mean, the guards pretty much treat everybody the same. Uh, as far as my personal experience, I mean, they're, they're, they're malicious, you know, they're, uh, the, the word Schadenfreude came to mind multiple times a day, um, because they're, 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 they're just pedants that just want to, <laughs> you know, poke and instigate. Uh, after a while, I actually got into um, uh, the legal aspect of civil litigation towards the end of my sentence. And uh, they started treating me a little differently at that point, because then I became like an enemy. If I wanted to enforce my rights and hold them accountable for things that they were doing wrong, then I became a, a target a lot of the time. Uh, and I, I really feel like they, they dislike that more than they dislike the inmates who are prone to violence and stuff like that. Cause those ones, they just, you know, they pepper spray them, they slam them in the hole and they forget about them. But you know, somebody who's actively involved in civil litigation and, um, you know, writing congressmen and senators and, uh, the, <laughs> the governor and the state auditor and, you know, saying, Hey, look at what they're doing. They didn't like that a bit. So I kind of had a target on my back for a while there. Can you give us some stories then of things that came about that caused you to litigate? Um, sure. Um, I guess the most recent one was uh, there's um, I tried to initiate a kind of um, like a grouply a, a, a weekly group meeting for humanists and atheists to meet and discuss their uh, beliefs and uh, whatever, because the, you know, the freedom of religion entails the freedom from religion and all of the religious um, sects in prison are entitled to certain privileges that the rest of the population isn't by virtue of their having a religion. And I, you know, that's not, that's not fair. So secularists should have some sort of, um, you know, some sort of platform that they can, you know, meet and discuss their religious uh, views and ideas. So, they told me no. They said humanism and atheism are not religions. We're not going to allow it. So that was that was the most recent one that I sued them over. <laughs> and what was the outcome of the litigation? Uh, I won that one. They uh, they they capitulated pretty quick and decided that uh, they were going to go ahead and write humanism into. Uh, they have a religious handbook which basically declares all the religions that are allowed within the facility, and they added humanism and gave us um like uh a one we were allowed one feast a year and we could have you know groups every week and we we could have a little tote with our you know religious if that's what you want to call it materials in it so off the top of your head can you remember all the different religions that were authorized in that corrections system um probably not i can name a few i know um, Buddhism, Hinduism, Catholicism, um, various forms of Christianity. Um, um, I don't know. I think there was like, I think 
when we got discovery in that case, I think there was like 27 that were that were permitted. And some of them were archaic, you know, like not even heard of anymore. Uh, Wiccan uh, was one of them. Um, and, you know, religions that barely anybody has anything to do with in these days, those are in there and those are bona fides, but then humanism wasn't. Um, so that was, you know, that was irking. So for the people who were in those various religions then, by being acknowledged by the system, what are they entitled to? Do they get religious diets? Do they get weekly prayer meetings and things like that? Yeah, it's exact, those exact things, actually. Um, if you're a Muslim, for example, you can have a religious no-pork diet. Or if you're Jewish, you can have a no-pork diet. Or um, uh, they celebrate um, Passover or Ramadan. And when they do that, they get special meals delivered to them. Um, you can have religious jewelry. Um, you can't have that as just, you know, a regular uh, person. You have to have some sort of religious justification for your jewelry. Um, uh, different property items you're allowed if you have uh, some sort of religion that's um, commensurate with your belief system. So, yeah, they, there's a number of privileges that go along with having uh, religion in prison uh, that, that other people don't get just because they're religious. So where I was housed, there was a period of time, albeit brief, whereby the Jewish food was considered the best food. It was blessed by a rabbi. And it was very fre fresh vegetables and stuff. So you got the neo-Nazi Aryan Brotherhood guys converting to the Jewish religion. There was Mexican Mafia Jews. There was Italian Mafia Jews. <laughs> Everyone was just lining up for the Jewish food. Did you see people playing the system like that? Oh, the exact same thing. The exact same thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what food was the best in your joint? I would say it was probably the Jewish food. Yeah, because it, it's the same. You know, a lot of fresh vegetables, a lot of, um, they had those, uh, what are they called? My own meals. They're like pre, like pre-cooked meals. Um, those were available. And those, I think if you buy those in the store, they're like $8 a piece. And, you know, that, that becomes a, um, uh, an item that you can trade, you know, and people, <laughs> people love that. It goes a long way. Speaking about trading then, about a third of the inmates, I would say, in the jail used to line up at pill call. I oh, saw yeah. some of them, some of them doing like the Thorazine shuffle. And <laughs> a lot of them would, a lot of them would mouth the pills and then they, they'd trade them later on. So was it, was it similar where you were housed? Yeah, they, they, they cracked down over the years on what kind of medication is allowed uh, specifically for that reason. But I mean, in prison, especially in a prison where there isn't a lot of drugs, people will take anything. People will cheat their Benadryl and uh, save, save those up for a buzz, you know? So yeah, definitely that happens quite often. Why do you think in prisons where there's like, the majority are injecting heroin and where I was, crystal meth was rampant. Why do you think there was, it wasn't flooded with drugs? I've never heard of a prison that's not flooded with drugs. Nobody has. They say Wyoming is like no place on earth and they're not lying. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, it, Wyoming is really, um, it's isolated. There's not a lot of people. There's, I was there for 17 years and uh, my prison, the prison numbers go in order of how many people get introduced into the system. And in 17 years, my number got lapsed by 10,000. So in, so in 17 years, so we're talking like maybe 600 people come through the system a year, which is not very much. 
Um, and it, yeah, just they don't have that sort of, um, I guess, like organization or willingness. I'm not really sure. So one of the viewers has asked, is gallows humor allowed in prison? I, I, I would say that it's essential. What would you say? I'm not sure what gallows humor is. Dark humor. Oh, yeah. I don't think th there's not any really regulations on what you can say or do. I mean, as far as like, like, obviously, you don't want to be blatantly disrespectful to the police using a lot of profanity or, you know, threatening gestures or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, they don't really go around walking around the yard, like policing what people are talking about. So did you get in any beefs with inmates or guards that escalated? Um, not, not really. I got into a, a couple of fights in there um, with, with inmates. I got into, I mean, multiple heated arguments with the police, um, but never anything that got physical. Uh, but Wyoming really doesn't have those sort of, um, those sort of mores, those cultural mores that they do in other prisons. You don't really, like you're not required to get into a bunch of fights to prove that you are willing to get into a bunch of fights. It's not, you know, it, it's not really like that. Those kind of social pressures don't really, they're, they're there, but not really. Yeah, I picked the wrong state, evidently. <laughs> what, what was the hardest part of incarceration for you? And how did you come to turn, you know, into writing this book? um just the the daily minutiae uh, like uh, i i tell people like when they say what is doing time like i tell them you know that you know when you put something in the microwave for 30 seconds and that 30 seconds takes forever it's like that but for two decades <laughs> so, oh. so it's just like time goes by so 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 slowly in there and um i guess i turned that around from uh I, I told you I had a, I had a, like a probably about a four or five year period where I got heavy into litigation and I got bored with that. And I started getting into um, philosophy and science and psychology. And, and I just started devouring, you know, books and articles and science papers on, you know, those topics. And I just fell in love with it. Yeah. I had a similar journey. You just, it's fascinating, isn't it? You go, go back to the ancient philosophers and read all the history of it and, you kind of get an understanding of how humans have evolved over the centuries and, and where a lot of our cultural idiosyncrasies come from. So writing a book is no easy thing. Think straight and owner's manual for the mind. How long, you know, were you, were you writing in prison by hand? Did you have access to computers? What, what? Yeah, we had, we, I wrote it uh, on a computer. Um, the biggest challenge to writing that book was, uh, th there's almost 800 bibliographic citations in the book and getting that material was, was painstaking because you don't really make a lot of money. So the, you know, some of the money I did have, I could buy books with. Um, but a lot of the time I had to rely on people on the outside to say, Hey, I, you know, I, I need this book, this book, and this book. And when people could, they'd send them to me. Um, and then getting research papers, you know, unless you have access to databases a lot of people you can't just get get you can't just google an article and get it you have to actually you know pay for it or, or uh, email the authors or go you know go through whatever route you can but so getting research articles was a really big challenge and i was fortunate enough to have um, a few professors that were helping me along the way and i would basically send them a list of articles that i needed and then i'd get a big envelope in the mail a couple weeks later with you know, 
two or three dozen papers and, you know, go through them and incorporate it into my work. Oh, brilliant, man. We've run out of time. Do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you, John? Uh, yeah, I support you. Yeah, they can. Uh, you you posted a link to the book. Uh, Pre-orders are available right now. The book should be published. Um, I, I'm thinking July. Amazon says August, but I th I'm thinking it's going to be a little bit before that. Um, so definitely go get your pre-orders. Um, I am going to be starting a TikTok series here in the next couple of weeks, um, basically going through how to how critical thinking works, what scientific skepticism is, that sort of thing. And I am uh, at John Guy two three nine three four on TikTok. And uh, I'll, you know, like and follow. And um, yeah, I'd love to see you guys there. Huge thanks for coming on, brother. I wish you all the best with what you're doing. So you take care, John. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. We're bringing one of our all-time most requested guests back. <laughs> <laughs> David Whitehead. And... He has released a new podcast series on his Rufkin channel. So we'll have the links down there. Please go and support David. Today, we're going to be tying it in with what we've talked about earlier, UFOs, Mars, outer space, and ancient Atlantis. This reminds me of like an episode of Coast to Coast. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going, Sean? Good to be back. Good to see you. Oh. Thanks for, for having me on. Huge thanks for coming back, man. And before we start, then, what have you been up to since I last spoke to you? If you can keep it within uh, safe terminology for YouTube. <laughs> oh, safe. We'll keep it safe. Um, yeah, well, yeah. I've, well, yeah, because I've been officially banned from all of the socialist media platforms. So uh, I'm now on all of the rogue rebel alliance platforms <laughs> where they don't censor free speech. Um, but, anyways, yeah, I've been up to a lot. I've been working really hard on a documentary series called Cult of the Medics which is basically a deep dive into the occult history of the medical industrial complex, unlike wow. uh, has ever been told before, in my opinion. And so I've been working on that. It's a free series. <laughs> People can check out the first seven chapters right now for free over at cultofthemedics.com. Let me know what you think. It's sort of an open source. Uh, I want everybody else to weigh in. And I'm just trying to roll out all the notes that I've collected on this type of subject matter in that series and, and get people's feedback. And then the other thing we just started just because I was so sick and tired of talking about the, uh, that which shall not be named, um, <laughs> on my show, I said, well, let's start talking about some Mars and some moon and some weird anomalies and ancient history and pull out all the subjects that I grew up loving and researching and go on the quest to answer some of the mysteries of our world and the mysteries of our time. And that's what this new podcast series that we're calling the Mars Chronicles is all about i've teamed up with my good friend josh reed over at the red pill project he's definitely a guy you should bring on the guy's uh got a wealth of knowledge on these subjects and so we said hey it just sort of happened organically in one of the shows we were doing on ancient serpent cults and all of a sudden he just starts pulling out some mars stuff and i went oh my god the mars let's talk about mars so we turned it into a whole podcast series and we're uh, we're doing that every saturday night for you know as long as we have to to get it all out Great to hear you're focusing on content that's not going to cause algorithmic strangulation. Uh, speak, speaking of which, we had uh, many requests for David's original interview on the channel that had to be removed to get reposted. Um, we have reposted that to my Facebook wall. It's pinned right now on my Facebook wall. Link's in the description box. And people are showing it like crazy. The comments are coming in quick and fast and people can see what, what David is about. So if you want to see 
the unmentionables. Uh, check that first interview out that we did or go over to David's other platforms where he's not getting censored. All right, so the first question then is, was there an advanced civilization that once existed on Mars? What evidence do we have of that, David? Well, it's a question that we're just pursuing. Um, I don't have any smoking guns, but we've got some signals. We got some smoke, you know, and usually <laughs> where there's smoke, there's fire of some kind. And I know this type of subject is really, really, everybody's got their opinion on it. But I find that interesting as well, that it's not really settled, is it? Um, so there is a mystery to be looked into. And that's all I'm trying to do with people is say, guys, you're being told that all the questions of the universe have already been answered by NASA and science. And so you don't have to go look into any mysteries. You don't need to pull out any of those old myths and legends. That's all just in the dustbin. We don't need that anymore. Don't worry about anomalous photographs of pyramidical shapes all over the moon and Mars. And don't worry about that kind of stuff because all the questions have been answered. All the mysteries have been solved. Don't you dare start thinking for yourself. Uh, actually, contrary to that, what we're trying to do is activate uh, people's curiosity and say, hey, let's go dig up some of the Richard Hoagland stuff. Let's go and take a different look at it. Let's look at some of the modern discoveries. Uh, let's take a, take a deep forensic analysis of this allegedly public scientific organization known as NASA, which is actually uh, essentially an extension of the Department of Defense and um, a bunch of private uh, aerospace companies like JPL, etc., and there is a classified element to NASA. And so I'm curious, you know, what is it that they're worried about telling us? Why would they be hiding uh, some of these some of this footage? Why does some of the footage look like it was staged on a movie set? Why are we looking at these types of anomalies like faces on Mars or pyramids on Mars or, or even just if any one of those photographs that came back from these orbiter missions uh, of Cydonia or these other places, if any single one of them turns out to be something anomalous or artificial, uh, there goes the entire uh, package of, of uh, what, what would you call it, the whole narrative of what we've been told about our cosmos, about our history. And so that's a question that we're looking at and we're going into all this information. I know it's hard to determine always, you know, are these some of these photos CGI? Are they altered? Are, are we just like, is it tricks of light and shadow? We're going to go through all of that. But then also, Sean, to go into the ancient myths and legends of the world and see why there's so much discussion about ancient cataclysm of various kind on this planet, no matter where in the world you look. Were these all just campfire stories where they were just making stuff up? Uh, or were they really witnessing pole shift like events where you know, writings of things like, you know, seeing whole mountains formed in front of their eyes or meteors or cometary strikes or floods or these types of things um, are it's interesting when you put it all together, just how much information there is about this. And so our question is, well, interesting how when you look at some of the photos on Cydonia, the Cydonia region on Mars, if some of them were artificial, okay, some of them might be mountains that look like they're something else, but some of them have geometry and mathematics built it like when you look at it, it it's it's precise right down to the degree of the angles and some of them are three-sided pyramidal shapes four-sided pyramidal shapes are they mountains or are they ruins like the ruins littered all over this planet these cyclopean ruins of structures that sean we still haven't been able to reproduce a lot of these to this day i mean go show me where they've reconstructed a pyramid of giza perfectly in the world <laughs> and you know i'll concede but, um, you know, so you go, well, if there's all these ancient megaliths on Earth and we're seeing similar types of structures, allegedly, 
on some of these photographs of the moon and Mars. We've even had people going back to the 1800s, going and looking at telescopes and seeing what look to be artificial lines that are too symmetrical and perfect to just be something that's random. Um, well, maybe are we talking about how humans, did they only evolve on this planet or were there civilizations and life on planets like Mars and Venus, possibly even the moon? Did they build Nazi bases on the moon? I mean, who knows, right? Like we're just looking into this. And I think that uh, there's enough smoke to show people that there is a fire of some kind. And then we're going to let the people viewing the information over these podcasts to decide for themselves, you know, unlike the media where they're like, no, no, you must only accept this one <laughs> narrative. We're not going to do that to you guys. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to tie in something you said at the beginning with something you said at the end, though, Dan, you talked about the origins of NASA and you mentioned the Nazis. What about the Nazi origins of NASA? Did the CIA incorporate a lot of Nazis post-World War II and did, were some of those Nazis shuffled over to NASA? Well, absolutely. I mean, Werner von Braun. I mean, you've got to start with the sort of uh, Operation Paperclip, the Vatican rat lines, the whole connection between the Vatican and Nazi Germany. That's a whole thing. But then you see the evolution of how a lot of they pulled a lot of these guys out ostensibly to say, oh, well, they were really brilliant German scientists and we wanted to recruit them to help us in our future war efforts. But uh, a lot of them were installed at NASA. And I think along with that was the ideology of a lot of these what you you could call them secret societies that, you know, the fool societies of Germany, um, which had their origins going well before any kind of Nazi empire. Uh, they're into the occult. They're into the sort of Masonic knowledge. Um, that is stuff that I've been looking at for a long time. And you see it all over their symbolism. You see it over their sort of rituals that they do, the way that they, um, you know, there's many people, individuals that you can track that have connections to various, uh, like, you know, like the Werner von Braun's and many others. And then you also just look at the idea that there is this obsession with going to these places and then showing the public only one perspective of it and then censoring anybody else that wants to come in with a different viewpoint. And, you know, I kind of went, well, that means that maybe they're hiding something from us. So what, what was their interest in these places? Um, and then why are they hiding all the, the story from us? Why are we missing reels of footage? Why is there so many questions still unanswered? And that's because I believe that the, a lot of what NASA is, is it was, founded to be a branch of the military industrial complex, essentially, where they could keep this kind of information to themselves and only tell the public what they feel the public needs to know, and then block the public from knowing what they know, because that gives them a distinct advantage. That's kind of a nutshell. But yeah, there's definitely, a, a, I guess, a, a dark side to NASA that a lot of people maybe aren't aware of. And that doesn't mean everybody working for NASA is part of some big, gigantic conspiracy. I think it's compartmentalized, just like every military structure is, where you're on a need-to-know basis. Um, and then uh, we've got many hours of whistleblower testimony of people coming out and sharing some rather interesting stories. And so when you chase it all down and you put all the puzzle pieces on the table, you start to ask yourself, you know, can we trust blindly these types of organizations and what they're telling us? Does that mean they're lying about everything? No, I wouldn't go that far. There are people that are just like 100% of everything NASA is telling you and showing you is all CGI and it's all lies. I'm not in that camp. Um, I definitely believe though that they are not showing you the full story um, at the top. 
And uh, because it's compartmentalized, it's hard for the full story to come out. And that's why you got to go to the maverick scholars and authors and some of these renegades that are trying to tell you the other side of the story, whether it's all right or not, is to be seen. But I find it interesting that when you put it all on the table, a very, very interesting picture emerges that a lot of people aren't aware of. You touched on something there, and you used terminology that lay people may not be familiar with. I think it's a, a fascinating subject that perhaps we could just expand on that before we go back to Mars. Sure. The role of the Vatican in the exportation of Nazis to the CIA and NASA. There was a route, wasn't there? And there was a system in place. Absolutely. I've got a little book here. Actually, my wife got it for me for Christmas. It's by an anonymous author who just goes by Maury. It's called The Vatican Rat Line. You could read it in a, like an hour um, and it's just to sketch over. And there's many other great works I could recommend forever on this subject about how there was a, a connection between the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, as uh, enshrined in the Vatican and the Nazis. It was actually funded and built. You could even see the direct connections to the symbolism alone uh, coming out of, you know, these iron crosses and the eagles and everything. It's all Roman symbolism. And there are a lot of people that believe that the, the Nazi empire was essentially an extension of the, the Catholic Church, the Roman Church. And, um, you know, there's many different intricacies to get into there, but there is a connection. And I think there's a connection to the Vatican and its history, being that the Vatican City, first of all, is a city state. So it's a state within a state. It has its own police, which are Swiss, which is interesting. It's got its own, um, it's like in the city of London, the square mile in London. It's another city state. And what is the most prominent symbol in the Vatican Square? St. Peter's Square. Well, it's the obelisk from Egypt, as is, you know, you'll see these obelisks in the city of London. You'll see them um, in Washington, D.C. So what's this obsession with ancient Egyptian symbolism in those three major city centers? And when you start with the symbols and then you look into the rites and rituals and you get into the history of these different orders, these uh, chivalric and equestrian orders, the Opus Dei, you know, the P2 lodges, you know, all of these different orders that are housed in Vatican City, you start to see connections in the way they think and the way you would see a lot of these Nazi uh, ideologies being written down in their time. And you also, I got, I show uh, in chapter six of Cult of the Medics, I do a section called the Deep Church, which was coined from Archbishop Vigano, who came out as a whistleblower, one of many from the Vatican, to basically uh, talk about the fact that there, just as there's a deep state in politics, there's also a deep church in these religious centers, and they have uh, a very insidious agenda, and they they've been seeking world control since since the days of Rome, and they don't ever want to give that up. So the Nazi Empire was an extension of that project, and uh, when that sort of failed, they deviated to a much more subtle approach, which is the approach that we're seeing them use now with all this great reset and all this kind of stuff. And so I think there's a connection to all of it. And I think all roads lead to Rome in the end. And the final statement I'll make is that it's very interesting to me that Rome, the Vatican city is built on top of ancient Mithraic temples going into the cults of Mithras uh, that are ancient uh, Roman cults. And that'll open up a whole can of worms. And when you find out that one of the satellite organizations that I believe was funded by Rome called the club of Rome, which is basically some think tank that basically dreamt up the whole idea that there's too many humans on the planet and we have to start depopulation and uh, they're going to cause the climate to melt down, et cetera. That that cult 
um, is run by Mithraic cultists. And I have that actually directly from Dr. David Martin, who I'm going to be having on my show because he was invited to be recruited by the Club of Rome. And he found out that they were basically an old Mithraic cult, which confirmed all the research I had been doing. So there's connections everywhere, Sean. I could talk to you endlessly about it, but uh, we're going to roll it out in these different podcast series and these different documentaries. Yeah, that's uh, one of the viewers just Nosferatu. This is fascinating. I was thinking that just as you posted that comment, I'm getting goose bumps listening to all of this. The uh, research that's been done here is phenomenal. And I think it was in a David I book that I saw the pictures of the pyramids on Mars. And I went to watch his talk that he did at Wembley, which was a multi-hour talk. He may have posted them up there as well. And I found it quite mind-blowing that these structures did exist and I'm still perplexed to this day as to the explanation of them. All right, so in, in uh, the points here then, we've got a connection between Mars, the story of ancient Atlantis, and possibly even humanity's origins. What is the story of ancient Atlantis? Well, that's another subject. That's a big minefield, but um, you can get is into <laughs> oh, the Atlantis. Oh, my God. Most of the times people are going to laugh you out of the room, which is interesting because there are many ancient recordings coming from different Greek historians. Um, even Plato talked about it in his conversations with Solon. Um, you can get into Herodotus having some references to it. You can, and also remember Atlantis wasn't called Atlantis by everybody. It would have had different names based on the, the place that you were in, but it's funny how you get into all these myths and legends, you know, um, that are very similar in the way they describe basically a lost chapter of human history. And, you know, it's like history begins with Genesis or history begins with Darwin and that's the end of the story. Well, I beg to differ. I think they're both I think they're both missing the major point, which is that, um, you know, there is a whole missing chapter of human history and that we, we call that subject, you know, the subject of Atlantis, because we're looking at a civilization that was lost that wasn't just located, you know, in the Azores of Portugal or wherever or on the Atlantic Ocean somewhere and sank. It was actually an empire similar to Egypt, similar to Rome. Uh, it expanded all over the planet. And then the myths and legends tell you that this great civilization that was highly advanced was destroyed in some kind of war or cataclysm. So the scholars all differ on whether they think it was some kind of war of some kind that wiped everybody out, or they were tinkering with some kind of new technology or something. Or you could just go with, nope, a comet hit the earth and messed the whole thing up, the, the whole thing sank. And then you, this is why on earth, we see these structures all over, whether you're going to Pumapunku, whether you're going to Bolivia, whether you're going to Egypt, whether you're going to Adam's calendar in South Africa or Ireland and Britain, all over Britain, you know, all these different megalithic cyclopean ruins um, that are all aligned astronomically and have all these mysterious elements to them, that there's a connection to this lost civilization and that that is the remnants of that civilization, that Egypt, the Egyptians themselves, in this theory, didn't build the Giza Plateau. They inherited that area and built around it. And you can even see a lot of the pyramids and the structures they built are fading with time. Yet there the pyramid stands, there the Sphinx stands just in your face. And it just gets deeper than that. So the question would be, did we lose a chapter of history where humanity had risen up at a high level of development, civilization, technology, and knowledge, and then something happened to destroy that and we've been building back ever since. And our history books and our religious texts start 
after the cataclysm, after the loss of the civilization. And so then our question in this series is, well, I mean, come on, guys, do you really think we're alone in the universe? I mean, just think about that for a second. Uh, and if we're not, if humanity wasn't only seated on Earth, could it be that we have a history or at least a faction of living beings had a history on planets like Mars or some of these other planets, possibly even other solar systems and galaxies? And could there have been an ancient like the story of Atlantis, could some of that also be dealing with something going on off planet, not just on Earth? And could some of the descendants that we're looking at in these bloodlines and these secret societies, could they actually be people that fled from co cometary destruction on these other planets or even on our own? And that's what we're, why we're dealing with this underground secret order, secret society stuff, is that they just wanted to maintain control of the knowledge and not let all the surface dwellers get access to it so that they could maintain uh, power over the, over the planet and the resources. And so there's some interesting questions there, man. We open up lots of, uh, lots of boxes with that one, but I think there's a missing chapter of history. I think it's immortalized in stories like even Lord of the Rings. You can even look into different sections of the Bible and other ancient scriptures for hints at it. And then to all the scientists that go, oh, that's all hogwash, it's all just mythology. Well, then we start getting into the archaeology and the suppression of science by the Smithsonian Institutes and whatnot. Uh, the, the fact that I tell people every day, hey, if you think your news is fake, we've all been learning about how fake our news is lately. Oh, how bad do you think your history departments are, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I think that is most possible because if you ponder infinite time, what you described there, the, the resetting and the rebuilding, it's probably happened over and over and over and over again. And perhaps the Atlantis is just the one we've got some slight traces left of. I like that. I like that view. Actually, if you got on somebody like Michael Cremo, you should get him on. He'll blow your mind with telling you, look, we've got all kinds of stuff showing human evidence on the planet going back millions of years. Uh, so everything we've been told about, you know, humans being just, a, what, 100, 200,000 years, he would tell you there's evidence to the contrary, and they're suppressing that evidence. Um, and there's been many scholars to come out with those types of ideas. So what you're saying is it's almost like a yuga cycle, where instead of a linear point of time of start and end, Genesis, Revelation, it's, no, it's a cycle that we keep repeating because we're actually not just part of an earth cycle. We're involved in a galactic cycle that is far bigger than I think we can even imagine. And so here we are just looking around and seeing little remnants of leftovers of the evidence of that, which is why it's hard to conclusively show. But the evidence enough is there to say, if even one of these points is true, all your history books need to be rewritten. So I know you've touched on this next question, but perhaps you could expand on it a bit more. Does Mars hold evidence of ancient cataclysm in our solar system that may explain the numerous cataclysmic references in Earth's mythological and geological records? You're such an eloquent reader, Sean. Well done. Uh, that was awesome. <laughs> I always point people to, to get into the subject. You got to go with one of the great scientific heretics, Emmanuel Velikovsky, who was banished from the kingdom of science for his heresy against the Newtonian physics. Um, and he basically came up with the idea that, yep, there was massive cataclysm in our solar system. He believes that it had to do with uh, it was Venus or a, a moon of Venus or something that basically uh, caused a total disruption in the order of our solar system 
which is why you have accounts from ancient uh, mythologies and, and ancient peoples. There was even a time they would talk about a time before the moon. You know, what, is, what are ancient legends talking about a time before the moon? Could be nothing, but it could be everything. Uh, and then even a, a, the idea that Saturn would have been in a different position at a different time. They, they talk about this idea of a second sun. Um, but, but Velikovsky himself gets into specifically just his theory that massive destruction took place in our solar system that affected all the planets, the order of the planets. You see massive scrape lines all across Mars and other planets. Look at the moon. It's pockmarked, you know, as if it's been just hit nonstop by all kinds of different meteors and asteroids. And then uh, the question is, did that cataclysm that took place in the solar system, is it recorded in the ancient myths? And is that what they're talking about? So not only was there cataclysm on these other planets, but there was also cataclysm as an effect of that on the Earth. And this is where you get the stories of Tiamat and Marduk and the Anunnaki and the, you know, you bring in all this kind of stuff is it's, it's talking a lot about this ancient cataclysm. So we're looking into it. Um, I'm not saying Velikovsky was right about everything, but he was right about a lot of things. And it was horrible what the scientific establishment did to him to completely suppress the man, slander the man, even to this day. Uh, they just scoff when you bring up his name. Yet you look and you go, yeah, but he predicted a lot of things that ended up being true. And what a great place to start. And I admired the man for having the, the, the sand to start his first book, Worlds in Collision, talking about the myths and legends, because all the other scientists just throw that in the dustbin. They don't trust it. Whereas he said, well, what if we bring it in and look at current, the current uh, astronomy and the science we have? What picture does that form? So that gets into the, nut, the nuts and bolts of that question of was there an advanced civilization on Mars? Was there catastrophe? I think that uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows that there was. Um, I think that's why you're seeing NASA coming out now saying, oh, we found little bits of water on Mars and we find water on the moon and we, we, we see little maybe microbial life is there. And there's even the, the uh, theory of panspermia that's coming out of science now where they look at it as uh, the elements of life itself may have come from Mars. Um, and they look at it like microbial life and all that. But uh, I take it even li more literally and go, well, let's just zoom out and ask some big questions. If we're not alone in the universe or humanity on Earth isn't the only place where living beings are, then what does that do to our whole understanding of history and the nature of the universe that we live in? And I love these kind of questions, Sean, because whether we get to the answers or not, it's the question that drives you to explore the mystery. And that's the most important thing is I'm here to tell people, if anything else, you don't have to believe all the stuff I'm talking about, but just if anything else, don't fall for the old trick that says there is no mystery. Come only to us for the answers. Come only to NASA. Come only to the government. Come only to, no matter what it is, don't follow your own curiosity and, and think for yourself. And don't go listen to those who are the heretics of our own cults. You only listen to us because we are the authority on truth. And as Gerald Massey said, you know, they must find it difficult, those who hold themselves as the authority on truth, rather than putting the truth as the authority. So in my investigation, the truth is the goal. Doesn't mean I always have it, but we're looking at deep mysteries here that are layers upon layers upon layers. And if any of these investigations turn out some answers, we might get some clarification finally on our origins, on where we came from. Because Sean, I think one of the biggest issues we're dealing with right now in our world is that humans are suffering from historic amnesia. We don't know, it hasn't been settled 
completely as to our origins. There's been the debates between creationism and evolution and all this forever. Well, what if there's a missing component to both of those arguments that would answer and finally settle it once and for all for the human race? This is our history. This is where we came from. This is who you are. And if we get access to that, would that help correct a lot of our uh, the weird things we all suffer from and will we have more clarity on where we are so that we can finally think about a positive direction that we could go in the future? Until attention spans expand beyond the length of a TikTok is the hope. But uh, just, t just touching on what you said there, then. So we're only used to what we experience in our own lifetimes. And we've seen with the pandemic how destabilizing that has been for people who have never experienced anything like that before in their lives. So have you ruminated on the possibility of a new solar system cataclysm and what that could mean for humanity? Well, I've definitely ruminated on it. Um, it seems like no matter how long I've been doing this research, every year there's some people coming out saying, oh my God, they're gonna, the solar flare is going to hit, the, the world's going to end, there's going to be another meteor is going to hit, you know, there's another asteroid that's going to go by the planet, it's going to tow us into another dimension or something. There's always been this stuff. And I don't write it off as a possibility because here we are with evidence of it happening in the past. Um, so yeah, there's always that possibility. But um, I just tell people, in order for us to be able to crack that, we need all the evidence on the table. And if the people who are in power have been suppressing the true story of our history and many of these elements, then we're kind of in the dark and we're not going to know how to deal with something like that if it happens again. Uh, another interesting little point to bring up real quick as I'm thinking about it, about ancient cataclysm, is this theory might also explain why all over the planet, starting in places like Derinkuyu, Turkey, and many others, there are deep, deep, deep caverns that have been dug into just sheer mountainous rock uh, of these underground cities and underground catacombs and underground refuge. And you just start to wonder if ancient man had, had been experiencing these different cataclysms and had found a way to get into a place within the earth to be able to hide out from the storm that was happening on the surface. And it, it just kind of makes you think about these modern preppers. Maybe they have a, a genetic memory or something and they're just sitting there going, guys, we better be prepared. And while I'm not a doom and gloomer at all, I think our future is bright. I think as long as we are able to discover the truth and we're on the right track, um, that if you're prepared, then you don't have to have that fear of, oh, what if, what if, what if uh, you can be prepared for anything but then strive forward and, uh, and keep trying to find out, you know, what the truth is in all these different areas. Absolutely mind blowing. David can't thank you enough. There's been a surge in the chat towards the end of the show here, um, revolving around what you've been saying this evening. And we would love if you and Josh Reed could come back on. Do you want to tell the viewers then where they can find your podcast series? Absolutely. Yeah, I can definitely, get in touch with Josh and come back on. Um, yeah, they can check it out at dwtruthwarrior.com. Just my initials, David Whitehead. So dwtruthwarrior.com. It's got the links to where you can find my streams, where I'm hidden in the dark hallways of the internet now. And, uh, and then if you want access to my free documentary series, that is cultofthemedics.com. And then I must mention for the deep analysis of these ancient occult subjects in psychology and philosophy and world history, Go check out my premium show with the great Michael Tessarian at unslaved.com. It's a premium show. It's about a cup of coffee a month, 
but it is a treasure trove of knowledge and information that you literally can't get anywhere else. All right. Huge thanks, brother. You have a good rest of your day. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Take care. Bye. All right. Thank you, everybody. Now you can hear me okay. We are commencing on the second half of Atwood Unleashed. Without any further ado, I'm going to bring in the next guest. And the next guest is Lee Camp, who is on page two. The most censored comic on the planet. So let's bring Lee in, shall we? Let's find him now. Here we go, Lee Camp. All right, Lee is about to join the screen. And just a bit of background. He's the former host of the show Redacted Tonight, which you can now watch on his Patreon. Redacted Tonight was the only anti-war, anti-corporate comedy show on American TV. In the same week, his podcast Moment of Clarity was removed from Spotify and the Redacted Tonight YouTube channel was banned around the world. Oh my goodness, I know how that feels because I was terminated twice and I've been watching his stuff all week and he is absolutely bombarding the New World Order and the military industrial complex. So a huge thank you for coming on, Lee. Uh, we salute you. We salute you. Yeah. Thanks. And, and, and the forces that be were trying to keep you on mute too. So. Indeed. It's a weekly thing. That's something they get us one way or the other. The tentacles manage to infiltrate. So Lee, Lee for people who are not familiar with your work, could you just start out telling the viewers a little bit about you and what got you on this mission? Sure. I'm a comedian, been a stand-up comedian for close to 25 years. But uh, eight years ago, I got, uh, you know, the show Redacted Tonight. Uh, I created it and uh, wrote every word I ever said, was never censored, was never told what to say, what not to say, completely uncensored. And that's why I was on RT America. Uh, because it was the only place that I could do that. I could be anti-war, anti-corporate, anti-imperialism on a weekly basis. And uh, yeah, so after eight years, 500 episodes, um, they, you know, the, the channel was shut down by U.S. sanctions about two months ago, a little less than two months ago. And uh, all the past shows, yeah, deleted or banned on YouTube. Uh, mine, Chris Hedges, Abby Martin's old stuff, Jesse Ventura, all uh, all banned and uh and then uh, my yeah my podcast deleted on spotify in the same week period so incredible level of censorship uh you know now i've gone over to patreon.com for the moment but uh it yeah it it's it's incredible to see it all crack down at once you know it's uh, pretty amazing how long have you been on rt for eight years I've laughed my ass off at some of your stuff over the years. I re it's all coming back to me now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what, what, what were the first warning signs that it was going in that direction of algorithmic well, stimulation? Some level of the crackdown started years ago, basically when after the Bernie Sanders movement and Trump got into office, the, the suppression. I mean, you saw it too, the suppression online. But uh, they made RT, hilariously, they made RT the network registers a foreign agent, even though that bill, that act in U.S. Congress had had uh, in the U.S. government had only been used on lobbyists. It was not meant to be used on media agencies and never had been. It was so they just used it on RT and then later later uh, Chinese media as well, as if uh, as if all other countries aren't equivalent. Uh, but yeah, so they did that and they, you know, our stuff was shadow banned and suppressed and everything. So that was started four or five years ago, but, um, 
the the true like we're going to delete you from the airwaves didn't start until two months ago. I, I you know, I'm opposed to the Russian invasion, and I said that from day one. Uh, but that doesn't mean I'm not willing to talk about the what led up to it, the expansion of NATO, the funding and arming of of neo-Nazis in, in Ukraine. So you can be opposed to the invasion and also be willing to, uh, you know, have the intellectual honesty to look at the the, the things that precipitated it. Uh, but yeah, so Russia invaded and, uh, and they came after us. I'm lucky that I haven't been labeled Russian state media on Twitter, uh, even though they did that. They did that as RT America was shutting down, which means these people are no longer associated with Russian state media. And yet they kept putting the scarlet letter on people, uh, including Ed Schultz, the well-known newsman in America who'd been dead for four years. So apparently (laughs) in death, he is now a Russian agent. Yeah, I've been on RT a few times, so perhaps I will, if, if you can get these things posthumously, perhaps I will get struck <laughs> with that brush. So, um, if, if, if your show gets cancelled on YouTube, they send you like emails saying the strikes, what the strikes are. My, in my <laughs> case, it was, it was cyberbullying. Did, did you get, I was cyberbullying Epstein and Maxwell and Prince Andrew. Right. What, 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 what did they cite you for? What were your infractions? Nothing. They the only thing that you could, I guess, call some sort of notice is that Google said Google and you know Google Ads, which owns YouTube, said uh, said that they were going to shut down or stop channels that were something like minimizing violence or denying you know harm to victims or whatever it was. And and I was like, well, it sounds like you're defining violence. You know, violence on one side doesn't count, and violence on the other does. Or like. It's completely ridiculous, uh, and you're defining who are the victims and who are not the victims. Uh, apparently, the uh, the neo Nazis uh, are the victims, um, but uh, it's it, it 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 was a hilarious statement. And but other than that, that other than that public statement, they gave no reasoning. I mean, there was no you've had three strikes or anything. It was just suddenly banned. Um, uh, first, it was in Europe, and then a day later, it was globally. So no appeal process or anything. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Oh my god! So you know, g- growing up, then what got you interested in all this? Well, I started out just wanting to be a comedian. I mean, I did, I wasn't that political. Uh, I was I was maybe left leftish uh, growing up, but um, I wasn't heavily political. I just wanted to be a comedian. I just uh, most of my stuff was. Uh, fairly observational, you know, why do the candy bars not fall out of the vending machine sometimes? <laughs> uh, just that stuff. And, and, uh, but, you know, started doing comedy in college, um, moved to New York city right after college and, uh, and it was just doing comedy every day since. Uh, but I became more political, more of an activist. Uh, I think the Iraq war definitely woke me up. Uh, it was amazing to see, us just obliterate uh, an entire country, entire cities, killing, you know, a million people. And and it with, with, didn't matter. There was no WMD. Didn't seem to matter. We're going to do it anyway. And I think that that helped wake me up to the reality of, of how the ruling elite function, what the, the, the crimes they're willing to commit uh, and and the lies they're willing to tell. And, you know, that <clears throat> maybe maybe being 23, 24 seems a little late for some people, but that was around the time that I really woke up to this stuff. And, and I felt like as a comedian, you know, being on a stage every night, 
that I wanted to be talking about something real, something that mattered, something important. I didn't just want to be observational. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, it kind of grew from that. Uh, I started doing YouTube videos that were successful called Moment of Clarity, and that led to the TV show. Yeah, that's the exact same time I woke up because I was trading the stock market in America oh, yeah. when 9-11 when happened, and I was an options trader. So I saw the trades come in the week before, betting that the airlines were going to go down. Really? And that was, that was reported. Yeah, the average daily volume, it went up like 20 times, 30 times wow. as it got closer and closer. Yeah. The put options. And that was headline news after 9-11. And they said, we're going to track these insider terrorist traders down. And then it was years later, I was in a jail cell in Phoenix, Arizona, and someone shoved... David Icke's Alice in Wonderland under my door, and those what? trades. How did you? How did you end up I, in a jail cell? I tried. I tried to set up my own rave counterculture. Ah, okay. With my with my stock market money, and we were importing ecstasy. Yeah, so SWAT team came, put me in Sheriff Joe's jail. Wow. Yeah, no joke in that place. All neo Nazis and everything. But yeah, so so David Icke's book that woke me up because he traced those trades back to an investment bank run by XCIA. And actually, one of the biggest hosts of RT, what's his name, Max Kaiser? Yeah, Max Kaiser. Yeah. He's done loads of research on this, and he's done videos on this, and he's yeah, confirmed he be, it. Yeah. He used to be Wall Street as well, yeah. Yeah, he's confirmed. So not only did the CIA know it was going to happen, they profited from it. Yeah. Absolutely despicable. Yeah. So did you feel then that your worldview had been shattered when you woke up at that moment around the time of the Iraq war? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I, I think in order to be a long-term activist, you know, a lot of activists burn out. A lot of people that are, are talking about the reality of our world, they tend to burn out. And I think you need something along with just... Uh, rage, I think you need to see that you can have an impact or, or uh, you know, see that, that what you do matters, even in a small way. And so I think combined with waking up, I also had a few, you know, activism successes. Uh, I was part of a small group that helped uh, save a man who was going to be executed in Texas named Kenneth Foster. Uh, they, they commuted his sentence, even though that governor executed everybody. They loved executing people. Um, so, you know, you, you have some small successes and I think that shows you that a small number of people can have an impact, can change things. And I, I find that most of the activists I know that, that stay with it long-term, uh, found that out, you know, so we're able to see that with their own eyes. I think Occupy was another, uh, pivotal moment, although it came a few years later, but, you know, I, I, many people say Occupy is a failure, but I think in many regards, the, what, it, what it did for, uh, you know, the, the ideas and the topics and the, the discussions across America and perhaps the world, but definitely America, uh, I think it, it, it had so much impact. Uh, you know, people, people still use the term the 99% and people still talk about the, the immense greed of Wall Street and the, the, you know, the housing uh, collapse and, and people's lives being destroyed. So I think it had a huge impact. And, and seeing that, while I was there on the first night of Occupy Wall Street, I helped uh, put out a call for a previous occupation that, that didn't uh, take as much in June of that year. And then the big one happened in September. 
Uh, and just watching it ripple across the country and then around the world was uh, pretty incredible. So what was Foster's story then? The guy you guys helped save off death row? Uh, Kenneth Foster was, he, he unlike just about everyone you've ever heard uh, executed in America, he even the prosecution admitted he had not killed anyone. He was in a car, <laughs> his friend got out, got in a fight, and they were going to execute the driver. They'd, I think they'd already executed the, the guy who did the killing. But they were going to execute a guy who was driving and didn't know what the hell was going on in Texas's quote unquote law of parties, meaning essentially if you're near someone who kills someone, they can kill you. They can execute you. And so, you know, it was his all he's exhausted, all of his appeals, everything. He was about to be executed. And the only thing that could save him was to have the, the governor, Rick Perry, uh, commute his sentence. But like I said, this guy executed more people than George W. Bush did when he was governor of Texas. Um, and what, and, and I, I couldn't have, I really, you know, when I learned about it, it wasn't a huge story. It got a little bit of maybe national attention, but not much. Um, but once I heard about it, I called the governor's office to say like, you know, here's why you can't execute Kenneth Foster. And the woman goes, okay, I'll add you to the tally. Like you're taking a tally on whether the guy should live or die. It just seems so outrageous to me. So, you know, I went home that day and I thought there's gotta be a way I can have a little more impact. So I called back the next day lied through my teeth and said I was part of a, I was a director of a film and I gave a fake production company. And I said all this, I had all this money and uh, connected to the film. And it was about the execution of uh, Kenneth Foster. And, and it was, the, so they put me through the press secretary and I give her the whole story. And she says, and I say, I want to get Rick Perry on record about this. And she says, well, I'll, I'll bring it to the governor. We'll see what we can do. And I say, great, you can email me back at the, uh, the web, the, the, the film's uh, email address. It's info at bloodontexashands.com. And, uh, and it, 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 there was a pause, a long pause, long, awkward pause. And I have no doubt. I mean, she took it seriously, and I have no doubt she probably did bring it to the governor, and he probably ignored it. But it added the pressure. I mean, this, this is before he ran for president. So he was thinking, well, I'm getting ready to run for president. If this is going to be a big story and perhaps a big movie and perhaps all these other things that people were talking about, I don't need that on my record. And so I think that's why he did it. Not because he gave a shit about Kenneth Foster. <laughs> all right, then. So in, in the aftermath of the Iraq war and Afghanistan, it came out about the Bush crime family and Dick Cheney and Halliburton. And... Is that just something that really governs the world, these forces of evil, the military-industrial complex, these contractors, and the amount of money that's involved? Yeah, and, it, and it, I think George W. Bush, perhaps better than previous presidents, showed how much the president is a puppet. I mean, you know, that guy's not very bright. His job was to go out there and look like a good old boy and say, <laughs> ah, I'm, I'm your buddy, I'm your pal. And that was his whole job. I mean, I, I don't I, I have no idea what decisions he actually made. We know Dick Cheney was essentially running the show and Rumsfeld and a few others. And they just told him, you know, here's what you're doing next. And he went out there like a good little puppet and said those things. And and that doesn't let him off the hook. I'm not saying that, you know, it wasn't his fault. But uh, the U.S. presidency largely and, you know, Biden's doing it now because Biden doesn't even know where he is. So, you know, they're. They're weekend at Bernieing uh, Biden around, uh, propping him up and telling him to smile. And sometimes he smiles facing the wrong direction. And and that's what the U.S. presidency is. So it's who's re really running the show. It is these, you know, the, and people associate the term deep state with Trump now. But the term deep state was 
around well before Trump. And it refers to the Pentagon, these weapons contractors, the Halliburton, the, the corporations that have the far more money than our Congress people and, and are really running the show. And of course, when you talk about running America, you're basically talking about running most of the world. Yeah, so we've interviewed David Icke multiple times and he said it's the psychopaths that rise to the top. So what hope is there for humanity, Lee, if that is the case? We've got to build stuff outside of that system. We've got to, we've got to largely stop putting our faith in the, in the uh, you know, electoral system. I do think, I do re highly recommend people keep voting. I don't tell people not to vote, but largely that's because you can have an impact on local elections and some ballot initiatives and things like that. But federally, I mean, it's just a, it's just a joke. It's, it's bought out every time uh, the, 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 Here's the thing there there. You can go read tons of studies about how the person who spends the most in an election wins in the Senate 80 percent of the time and the House 90 percent of the time. But what they never say on those studies is the two people who spend the most win 100 percent of the time. And those two people are in the two corporate parties every time. So they have it bought out. And I think we need to build up the alternatives. We need to, uh, you know, build up and, and you know, uh, I think Zeitgeist Movement has talked a lot about the engineering that needs to happen. And the, uh, I think mutual aid is an example of people working together outside of the systems that are, are governed by uh, the, the ruling elite. And, and you, that is what we need to build up, those type of things. Again, keep voting. Don't, I mean, because, you know, the ruling elite would love nothing more than for you not to vote. But the, the truth is, that's uh, that's not that's not where the real real change is going to come. And activists and things, you know, and especially online activists, I guess, uh, armchair activists, uh, that it's they spend 95 or 90 percent of their time talking about these elections, which I think is a waste of 85 percent of your time. You know, yell about who's going to win the presidency or the prime ministership or whatever. Yell about that 5 percent of your political discussions. Spend all of the rest of the time talking about how to create a better world. It seems like society, there's a pendulum. War on drugs goes to an extreme and then, you know, next thing, weed's getting decriminalized and legalized. Do you think that Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter is a sign that the pendulum is swinging away from fascist fact-checkers and algorithmic strangulation? Away from the sociopathic billionaires to other sociopathic billionaires. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, no, I have no faith that uh, Elon Musk will change much. Uh, there's a great thread I retweeted on all of the time. He's tried to crush free speech from people who've said bad things about him to, uh, you know, I noticed he has Public Citizen, a, a pretty great organization, blocked on his Twitter. Uh, he's had certain images of himself uh, wiped from the Internet that they're almost nearly impossible to find. Uh, so this is a guy who doesn't actually believe in much free speech. Now, maybe Twitter will get a little better because if he it, as as Elon Musk ruler, but that's it's inconsequential. I think we cannot look to billionaires to fix this. It's because, like you said, the sociopaths rise to the top. And if you are a billionaire, I've said this several times, if you're a billionaire, you are a sociopath. Just like if someone had a billion cats or a billion shoes, you would say, wow, they're out of their fucking mind. Well, we should say the same for someone with a billion little pieces of paper, you know, hypothetical pieces of paper. Uh, we should, anyone with a billion dollars or $200 billion, 
is not an okay person. Uh, you know, the estimates are you could give clean water to the world for $10 billion, which is the number one killer of human beings on this planet. So they, you know, Bezos or Musk or Gates or any of them could give clean water to the world, save off whatever it is, mm. tens of millions of people, and none of them are going to do it because they're sociopaths. So I don't think we should, you know, yes, I'd love to see Twitter become a little less censored, but I don't think we should look to them to save us. So there's the possibility it might be the lesser of two evils because I'm getting my, <laughs> yeah. my hopes of getting kicked off Twitter are getting crushed right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's if, if Twitter were to get better because of Elon Musk, I think it would be the exception that proves the word rule. It's it'd be a, an odd uh, little happenstance, not the way to go, because you look at the covers of these magazines and newspapers, and everything, they want us to look to these people to save us. Uh, they want us to look to Bezos and Gates and uh, Soros and Warren Buffett and the Koch brothers as our saviors. And none of them are. They are the ones who got us here. They are the ones who put us in this position. <laughs> We've only got a few minutes left to discuss the deeper meanings behind current world events. But the question has been asked over and over, who runs the world? The Illuminati, is it a conspiracy of the wealthiest? Are the nations competing to run the world of various cliques? What the hell is going on? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm one of these, I, this might piss off some, some viewers. I'm one of these people that doesn't, doesn't care much about the new world order discussion. Uh, not that they're not being had, but because I think we're there. I don't think they need a new world order. These, these <laughs> motherfuckers control the systems, they control the elections, they, they have created in many ways uh, what Goldman Sachs, a leaked memo years ago, talked about as a plutonomy, meaning not just uh, ruled by the wealthy, but an economy based on what the wealthy are doing. So they no longer need to care much about what the bottom, you know, 30 or 50% are spending their money on or doing. Uh, it, to me, we're, we're already there and, you know, yes, you could keep losing more of your freedoms. That is true. You know, I don't want to see that and I want to fight against that. But let's face it, most people on this planet right now uh, are doing jobs they largely hate or dislike, meaning they are wage slaves. They were born free and they spend the rest of their lives trying to rent back what? Their weekends and their evenings. So to me, we're, we're already in this position, like a dystopian reality uh, where people are not living their life to their fullest, are not able to pursue their passion. Many are not even told as children, you get to even look at what your passion is. They've never had a moment where they thought, I get to do what I want with my life. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. In, in my view, uh, we don't need... There, there's a lot of there's a lot of good clicks to be had on oh my god the the wealthy are about to take over but i think we're already there and do you think these vested interests are going to take us into a world war or do you think what's happening in, in ukraine will be limited to a proxy yeah i did a video uh, i i think what you're referencing i did a video uh people can check out patreon.com slash lee camp uh about how i it, it seems very likely and uh, economist michael hudson has kind of to address this as well as others, uh, uh, Ellen Brown, but that we're seeing the buildup to kind of a World War III, but hopefully it won't be with nukes. It'll be, I mean, this is not, this part's not hopeful, but it'll be an economic world war and it'll still, 
you know, n- nuclear war could kill almost everyone, whereas economic world war will only kill millions, tens of millions, because people die from economic war. Sanctions is a nice little euphemism we, we use as people die. More people will die in Afghanistan from our economic war on that country this year than died from our bombing last year. So, uh, yeah, it's, it seems like we're gearing up and in the early stages of, you know, and Ukraine is a proxy war that's part of this, but the early stages of an economic world war, unless people kind of wake up to it, realize that there is this uh, economic clash of, of nations. Um, there was a lot of cooperation going on between Russia, China, uh, several nations in the EU and the U.S. Because we're losing our hegemony, we're losing our empire, wants to stop that. And they created the conditions for this proxy war in Ukraine. You know, I don't need to go into all the details, but uh, and and now we're in that. And so they can use the sanctions to cut off that cooperation between EU and Russia. And they're hoping to drive a wedge between Russia and China that hasn't happened yet. But, you know, economic war kills. And I think people should be as upset about that as they are when they see bombs raining down. Huge thanks for coming on, Lee. It's been a real honor and a pleasure, especially after seeing you over so many years. I just remember being on the road in hotel rooms to get our tea on, and there you are. I'm just pissing myself laughing at some of oh, your, thanks, some thanks, of the man. stuff that you said. That really means a lot. Yeah, please, please tell the viewers then uh, where they can find you and support you. Yeah, the number one place right now is uh, patreon.com slash Lee Camp, but my Twitter is at Lee Camp. Maybe Elon will make it free, uh, free and free and unfettered. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and then if you, if you forget any of that, you can go to LeeCamp.com. Thanks, man. If there's anything for you, we could do for you, you just please let us know. Cheers, Lee. Really appreciate it. Take care. Bye. What a great guy. That was a blast. Yeah, honestly, I've watched his stuff on RT over the years and he is bloody hilarious he gets very loud but he hits the spot time after time after time just bulldozing the nwo with his humor with his acerbic wit so we're gonna bring in william stone next well this is gonna be interesting he was kicking it with Epstein and Maxwell. Yeah, definitely stuff that we're not uh, we're not going to be able to um, talk about this anywhere else. Let's see. So, William Stone. How I came to meet Jeffrey Epstein and Glenn Maxwell. Wow. All right. <laughs> Let me bring him in. He's on page two. Here we go. And he's also an author. So he's got a book out describing these interactions in more detail. And there was a sexual liaison with Maxwell here. So this is going to be rather unique, isn't it? We've not heard, I mean, we've interviewed everybody on the Maxwell Epstein case, but we've never heard anything quite like this before. <laughs> Hello, my friend, William. How's it going? What's going on, Sean? God bless you, man. Thank you for having me. Huge thanks for coming on. Congratulations on the book. Um, before you. we get get into this, because I've watched your other stuff, and it is mind-blowing what you experienced personally. Do you just want to tell the viewers a little bit about your background, please? Well, my background is I grew up in a... Brooklyn, New York, middle-class family, and 
Um, my mother was mentally ill. I grew up defending uh, her from the bullies and all that. And uh, was in real estate. I became a locksmith and alarm technician for a while. And I started messing around with a little cocaine. And as you know, you quickly get your life derailed. I ended up trafficking kilos, guns from Florida to New York. Um, and I met a lot of interesting characters along the way. I was incarcerated, unfortunately, for some of these crimes. And uh, while I was incarcerated, I became a law clerk. I became a, an advocate for the offenders with the administration. And I became an author. I started taking university courses. And I realized that I want to go back to the old bill and somebody who wants to help people and defend uh, people from bullies and, and stuff like that. So now I have a TV show. I'm a crime victim advocate. And I'm trying to build up my YouTube channel. And I'm writing books. I have a couple of books out. One slated for a possible drama series. And again, this summer, 10 episodes. Wow, man. C congratulations. Yeah, I can see it behind yeah. you. William Steele, the book right there. Uh, right. Ghislaine. And, you know, so many of the fellas, they get into the lifestyle. They cycle in and out of prison. They can't get readjusted to society. And I, I fully understand that journey and, and how hard it is. So we, we salute you for that then. So going back to how you met Epstein and Maxwell. How on earth did that come about? Well, I was, uh, I said I was a jewel and art thief, um, stole millions of dollars across the country. And one of my fences was in Palm Beach, somebody who buying stolen property. And he owned a diamond salon on Worth Avenue. And I went in there to sell him some things. I was actually wanted at the time, jewelry, gun on me, um, and wanted who I now know to be Jeffrey Epstein was standing at another counter right across being waited on. And he had his hand down the pants of a young lady. She looked mm. like a taxi driver error, uh, Jody Foster. Uh, Holy shit. Yes. Yeah, so that's how I met him. And I confronted him there. What did you say to him? Well, I actually followed him out. I told my friend I'd be back, followed him to a restaurant called taboo back in those days and uh, confronted him, had him come over to the table. I, picked up on his New York accent. And I said, look, I don't appreciate what you were doing in that store. My friend owns that place. And you know, you're on camera there. And he just kept saying that it was a, a relative, his niece. And I confronted her. She said the same thing and she held her composure. They kept their story straight. I was wanted at the time. I had a gun on me. Uh, my, my guns back then always had a silencer on for effect. I wasn't hurting anybody, but for effect, if I was running around with jewelry or, or drugs, I would always have something on me just in case. Um, but so that's how I first met him, Jeffrey. That kind of makes it worse, doesn't it? Because you, you got pedophilia and incest. If he says it was his niece. Well, yeah, that's what he said. You know, who knows who she was? I, I would never been able to determine who she was. That's what they said at the time. I guess, yeah. you know, they had a, their story straight if he, if he had somebody out, out there. So. And did you, you were known to carry a gun around during this, these times, you said. Right. I was running kilos and, and guns of all types, you know, from South Florida to New York. And again, with the jewelry and the artwork, if I went to fences, I'd open a briefcase. I usually had a gun in there just to send a, a tacit message, you know, don't screw me over, you know. And, and because um, of this, ironically, over the years, many people have come to me, hey, can you take care of somebody for me? And I'm, and I'm like, why are you even asking me this? You know, in my mind, I'm saying this, but because of the way I carried myself, they thought I was the guy to go to, to, you know, when I wanted to make a threat on somebody's life. So what basis did he give you his phone number for? Well, I was selling jewelry and I, he told me a little bit about himself. We talked about Brooklyn 
And he said he'd be interested in buying some jewelry. I think he was trying to put my anger down a little bit because my outrage about what I witnessed. And so he kind of baited, baited me up a little bit with that saying, well, I'll always, you know, be interested in buying something. And he gave me his number. Um, at that time, I didn't give him any way to contact me. And as I looked him up and we, you know, I saw him a few times. I actually brought him cocaine a few times, you know, an ounce here or there. He eventually introduced me to Ghislaine in the Palm Beach house at the Palm Beach mansion. And that's how I met her. Yeah, because we've gone over a lot of the police reports from South Florida. And they describe, you know, the method of operation. There was even a school out there. I think he, they were sending flowers to the girls in the school. Right. Um, I, can't, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it was like a pyramid scheme, wasn't it? Whereby they got the girls in and if they would, under the pretext of doing a massage, and then it would escalate into like a sexual assault. If the girls wouldn't participate, they, they hired the girls as procurers. So there's this like pyramid scheme going throughout the school. All the girls knew that um, they could make money from this rich man if they gave him a massage. That's that's uh, how, how they tricked them. So what did, did you see anything like that going on in there? Did you see school high school age girls coming and going? I saw a lot of traffic look like young, what he said were models and masseuses and household staff or whatever. Um, sometimes some topless women out by the pool. Never saw that activity um, up close and personal. There was a time later when I was kind of forced when they had somebody standing at the door, not letting me leave where he displayed some videos and he was bragging how he had Prince Andrew, that Prince Andrew was his uh, Super Bowl trophy. And when he showed me that video and the things I've saw literally with Prince Andrew, I, I wanted to get out of there, but I was with Ghislaine at the time in bed and he was refusing to let me go and show me some other videos there was family members of Prince Andrew, who I don't know if it's appropriate for me to name them, but I know who they are now. And some other very famous people, some politicians, a lot of this is still uh, ongoing and under investigation. So, you know, we don't know if Andrew, how well he's protected as far as criminal charges at this point, if that'll ever happen. But I, I'm confident that some of the other people that I and other people are, have seen and are aware of and who are on video will be held accountable. So I'm totally with you on this, William, but I'm just going to have to say for legal reasons, because we have been in trouble going down this road before, that right. Prince Andrew has not been convicted of any sex offences and that everything that we are hearing is just an allegation. There's, right. no, there's, there's, no, there's no actual uh, charges pending or convictions. And Andrew and the royal family have completely denied all allegations and have said that they, you know, he's, he's actually settled um, with Virginia over this and uh, there's not going to be any action from Virginia against Andrew. So right. I, just need to, I just need to get out the, that out of the way for legal reasons. So you allegedly saw Andrew then on a video. I literally saw. I don't have to say allegedly. I literally saw you literally saw, okay. And was he clothed or was he participating in some kind of insidious act? He was unclothed and it was clearly with one minor in one video and two in another. Right. Clearly, clearly, clearly underage. Okay. And were there other prominent people in these videos that you saw? Yes. There was uh, some politicians. Uh, you know, we all 
have heard some of this. I'm not sure is out publicly yet. Their direct connections. I know they're claiming just friendship or professional, but uh, both Bill and Hillary, um, other people that are business uh, titans, were on some of these videos. And ultimately, um, fast forwarding quite a bit, I was able to get some videos and USBs out of this place and turned them in. This was years ago. Nothing ever became of it. So that's oh just goodness. goes to show you the nature of the cover-up that's going on. So did you turn them into the South Florida Police Department or was it the feds? I don't want to say in this setting. I could tell you privately. But if you read into my book, I hint about where they went. But two different agencies in an abundance of caution. I split up what I had and got rid of it. Don't know if it was incriminating because it didn't happen on the same day that I was made to view this material. It was another time when I left there with what I could to prove that I had been there and I had written something inside of a closet wall um, inside that Palm Beach house to make sure that if anything happened to me, I can say I was in that house. Because we interviewed John Mark Duggan and he'd been given files by, I think it was Ricari who said that he didn't trust his superiors with the Epstein files. He thought there was going to be some kind of cover-up. And then Duggan, uh, Recurry died mysteriously in a young, at a young, healthy age. Right. And D Duggan ended up having to flee to Russia. So do you know anything about those characters? Um, I heard that one of them had to flee to Russia. I don't know. Maybe you can get his interview. <laughs> I, I'm, I've only... I've, been locked up for almost 18 years. I was out a brief period when I escaped from prison. Um, 2005 is the last time I saw Ghislaine. And far as I know, um, I've been trying to tell this story for almost two years now. Um, I think the sun has covered me before the New York post, but there's still things I can't discuss that are, that are still under investigation. So other than the abominable activity that was going on in the Palm beach house, I mean, what did the house generally look like? I mean, how big was it and what kind of ornamentation was in there? Because the New York property had very distinct ornamentation in that one, weird eyeballs and all kinds of things. Right. There was new pictures of women and paintings and photographs all over the place. Um, the bedroom that I spent the most time with was, my understanding, was actually Jeffrey's. I was never with Jeffrey. I was with Ghislaine. I had threesomes with Ghislaine and an assistant of hers and another adult woman, adults. Um, what thing stands out for me and I was going to try to steal it from the house was a jet that was on one of the uh, dressers in the bedroom and had Epstein's initials on the tail. And it was, it was on the, yeah, I was going to take that with me to, as, as another proof that I was there. Um, but I had my own legal problems at the time, but I just wanted to get out of there with some evidence. So how did the sexual stuff start with Glenn? Glenn and I got kind of close and she confided to me some of what was going on, that there was some investigation coming down on them. And uh, she had, I guess, something to drink and she was talking freely. She was crying. And I said, you're over your head with him. And I don't like hanging out around here. It's kind of creepy. And I don't mind the money that I was getting for bringing, you know, drugs over or um, jewelry but I didn't like the whole vibe and I didn't know the really what was going on until I saw those videos. And it was during one of these periods, uh, actually the last time I saw her, where she said, not so much a specific plan, 
but that she wanted Jeffrey Epstein dead. And could I help her pull it off? And her specific words, you, you have to read the book. It's in there um, that, that he was going to be the death of her. And at this time, it looked like they were really getting ready to flee or that this investigation was coming down on them. And that's the last time I saw her. It was all I could do to get away from her because she was threatening basically to either pay me or turn me in if I didn't help her. So I, I pretended that I was going to help her and then I left. So we've all heard in the various news stories about her bizarre appetite in sexual activity. Uh, I don't want to get too uh, extreme here, but did you experience that yourself? Well, I'm engaged now to a beautiful woman who's standing nearby here. She's my partner. And, you know, without getting into too much detail, you know, uh, I think, that you know, <laughs> obviously... Yeah, obviously. Okay, let's um, leave that at that. And then she was potentially hiring you to coordinate a hit on Jeffrey. Right. And I said to her, I said, with all your security and bodyguards and all your wealth, which I can't even touch, you know, and I didn't know what I heard about now, you know, connections to intelligence community and all this, which I learned a little bit of something about, but I'm not going to talk about that because I want to stay alive. Um, she, uh, I said, why don't you go to them? You know, she said, well, you're, you know, the outsider who nobody really knows. And I was just stunned. I was stunned. I was tell her anything to get out of that house when she came to me with this. So I, I kind of went along with it, but just to get out of the house. And I did, I left. So you said, you know, you had possession at one time of these incriminating DVDs, USBs and hard drives. Do you that I believe have, may have been incriminating? I don't know what I took. I don't know if it's what I viewed, but there was a lot of stuff around, and I left with some. So, in your heart, do you believe they were running a honey trap operation in, in association with the intelligence agencies? Absolutely, I believe that now everything, certain things have come together in hindsight. Um, absolutely, and I believe that probably. Um, I didn't let them log my name or anything. I was very adamant about that. I had already pulled a gun on him. And I think his payback was uh, when he had me trapped in the room with the security and was showing me the videos. It was kind of payback for me, you know, threatening him at, at Taboo, at the restaurant, um, that they had all these powerful people, that they owned all these people, and it scared the crap out of me. So I'm sure one of these days, maybe videos of me, but with adults, with with Ghislaine may surface. I don't know. I was very cautious, but you know, who knows? I was never with a minor, but I was, I was there. I was at the house. So do you think writing this book, Glenn uh, by William Steele, which is available, I imagine worldwide on Amazon. Do you think you have put yourself at risk from the intelligence agencies? I believe possibly, probably more from certain politicians who historically, allegedly, have a history of having their enemies and people that come against them killed. Um, you know, I don't know. You know, I know one thing, the more spotlight and flooding of, of me and attention that I can get, whether or not I sell books, is really irrelevant. I'm a victim advocate now, and I want to stand up for these victims and say, look, I was essentially held briefly as a hostage in that house, drugged, restrained, and threatened with being turned in if I didn't help her do something, which she was willing to pay me for if I agreed to do it. But so 
she needs to be held accountable. I'm intending to be up in New York for the sentencing. Um, I have some other events arranged at the same time regarding my TV show, but uh, she needs to be held accountable. You know, I was a, a witness to certain activity, though I couldn't put my finger on it specifically until I saw those videos. You're obviously a very street smart man. How did they come about to drug you? Um, she did. I was with her and she put something in my drink and that she wouldn't let me go. I woke up and I was literally restrained. Wow. You know, she made it into a joke, you know, a sexual joke. But uh, to me, it wasn't a joke. You know, no, to me, no means no, whether you're a guy or a woman or, a, you know, or, or a guy. You know, I don't view myself as a victim. I've spoke to several of the victim advocate attorneys on this ca this case. Um, they have wanted my statement. They I'm willing to help any one of them or any of the female victims. But I was there willingly with her as an adult. And I don't view myself as a victim, even though I was restrained, because I was the idiot that put myself in that situation. And, you know, I, I kind of wear that. But uh, I got out of there, I felt, with my life, or at least not getting arrested in that house. Because at that time, they had, they had, they didn't have these charges. And I was a pretty known uh, burglar kind of guy, you know, I was doing a lot of illegal things. And I wouldn't have come out well if they called the cops on me for being that, in that house for any other reason. How did you get out of that situation? How did you get out of the situation of being restrained? Um, she eventually untied me because I agreed to help her, and I stuck around and stalled around for a few hours and took a shower and got out of there. And what help was she trying to get out of you? She was specifically looking for my help um, or running it by me to kill Jeffrey Epstein because she said Jeffrey was going to be the death of her. There's yeah, other things she, she explained to me, you know, like with her father, like when she was crying, you know, about how they had, you know, sex, whatever, with her with her dad. And, he, you know, he taught her, you know, to please a man at all costs, do whatever it is for the man you love, you know. And so I don't know how in the world she sunk, how these people become what they became. But, you know, that's a little bit of the backstory right out of her mouth. Yeah, we've looked into the entire Maxwell family and there was definitely something bizarre going on between the two of them. For him to select her as the chosen one, name the yacht after her. And right. I think some people who were close to the family talked about some twisted punishments that the dad gave her when she was a kid that kind of had a sexual uh, BDSM component to them. So well, I, I didn't I didn't hear about that. I know that, you know, she specifically explained that, you know, she was good at what she was doing because her father taught her from a young age. So. Yeah. So I've had you know, to stay quiet. I've had to stay publicly quiet about this for a long time. But when I was incarcerated writing a book about my life, some of the characters I met along the way became like infamous all of a sudden. And they were just going to be footnotes in my book. I was in touch with media in the beginning saying, hey. When Epstein, I said, I, I knew him. Oh, that's not newsworthy. I said, you don't understand what I what I know, what I saw, and where these things are that I literally removed. You know, and so now it's it kind of exploded because I decided I'm only released from prison a year now, and I was on escape status at the time I last saw her. Um, so I decided just to tell it all as quick as possible and get it out there as fast as possible before they could shut anything down. And what's motivating you to go to the sentencing hearing? Just, uh, I don't, I doubt I'll ever have a chance to be actually heard at the sentencing hearing, 
but just to be there in support of the victims. I have uh, um, some book signings also to do up there, obviously, but uh, also related to my TV show, what's coming out in August, the uh, the network and the production company. I'm going to be meeting with some executives there trying to uh, seal this deal to get my first book produced into a drama a drama series. That's going to be fascinating. How many years did you say you served? On the last one was just a little over 18 years, and then there was intermittent ones. Uh, so it was a few years beyond that. I've served time in New York, South Florida. I've been in the Las Vegas Detention Center. Um, I've been in one of the worst prisons in the United States, also Comstock back in 1988 in upstate New York. Um, there was more murders there than like any other prison in the country at the time. So I've been through hell and back, but I always worked in the law, law library. I've always uh, helped the chaplain's office, the medical department. I was always advocating and trying to help inmates understand their rights, the law, you know. Comstock, did you say that was this deadly prison? Comstock was horrible. It was absolutely miserable, uh, miserable. I, I went there um, 1988, I believe it was, and it was just so, so violent. It was built probably in 1800s or something. I don't know. And, you know, the old bars and I'm short, so you got to kind of duck to get in the cell and one light bulb hanging down from there, roaches everywhere, you know. Um, what was it, What was it like going in on your first day? Uh, what did you encounter? Did anyone try and test you? No, I, I've come from Brooklyn, so I'm a little streetwise, and at that time it was very clickish. You tried to click up with people from your neighborhood. I'm from Bensonhurst, Sheepshead Bay, Grave, Gravesend, and it was kind of a lot racially divided. So you kind of stayed, you know, for your survival to yourself. And I met a, a guy, he, he put me on to law. I had a little bit of college background. I had sold houses for, for a real estate company. And he says, look, you know, you're a smart guy. Learn some law, man. You'll be useful to everybody. And you, you, you seem to enjoy helping people. And, and it's always been in my heart. It's like you, Sean. You know, you realize that the stupidity of what you did with the drugs and selling people drugs when you saw the horror it cost when you're living with these guys. And I did it to my own life because I was on coke for quite a while. I don't smoke, don't drink, but I was using a lot of coke. And so when you live with people whose lives are torn up by this, it really opens your eyes. And so I went back to being that good guy. There's a quote I put in all my books. Um, all that's needed for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And I do believe from what I've started reading up about you and studying your stuff and your bio and stuff, you're that good man. You just went bad for a while. But oh. – you know, higher power puts you in a position to see the damage you were doing. Like me, it took a little while. It took more than one bid. But I just really became an advocate for trying to help people. Uh, we're helping actually innocent people now. Dr. Leslie Scholl, um, uh, Mary Bass, uh, she's being retaliated on for uh, building a racketeering case against an uh, inheritance scam. We have actually innocent guys in prison. Um, David Michael Reinhardt. Uh, Dana Ewell, California cases, big, big cases where these guys are innocent. They've been sitting there. You know, I can't turn my back. I have to try to help if I can, you know, try to get them attorneys, try to talk sense into whatever police. You know, I don't hate the police because of what I've been through. I put myself in these messes. I have very good connections with, you know, law enforcement. A lot of them now support what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm not perfect, but I like to tell my stories and I'm trying to do it to help people to help the victims. And that's going to be on my TV show. It's about my life post-incarceration. And it's on one of the biggest networks out there. We've already filmed in Elkhart, Indiana, of all places, 10 episodes. 
That's fantastic. We salute you for that. Definitely, you're on that humanitarian mission, especially right. helping you know people who are still behind it. It's so corrupt, isn't it? The system. People on death row. Yeah. They, they estimate up to a third of them could be innocent. It's obscene. So yeah, that's that, that's great. Now I'm curious because we had a guy on earlier who was, had been in prison in Wyoming, and that was complete opposite of what I experienced in Arizona. I asked him about the Aryan Brotherhood and the rules of racial division and things like that. On the East Coast, then, are the, are the Aryan Brotherhood present on the East Coast in the East Coast prisons? And is, is it some kind of Nazis that you know that run the white race out there? Or well, they're everywhere. You know, you have to kind of be careful who you, you talk about on these things. Um, I had some that were acquaintance with me that were younger. And when I would talk to them privately, why why do you hate Jewish people, for example? And I'd had really good people tell me, I don't know, it's just what we believe. So I think half of them don't even know what they're doing. They're just trying to maybe find safety in numbers, you know, or maybe when they were raised, they were ingrained to hate another race or this or that. You know, I don't know. I judge people by how they treat me, and I'm quick to cut them off. You know how it is in prison. People are always trying to run a scam or take advantage of you. Um, but... You know, I have a little bit street smart before I went in, but yeah, but I've been tried in every way, shape, or form. But I know how to come out on the other side. You know, so. But so yeah, who's the biggest? Who's the biggest gang on the East Coast in New York then? Well, don't forget, I did my time in New York back in the '80s, but my recent time was in Florida and Virginia. I was trying to do an interstate compact transfer to Wyoming because I heard it's supposed to be nice there. I don't know if it is or not. <laughs> yeah, he but, said it but, was. <laughs> yeah, because I, I wasn't federal, but I was trying to interstate compact transfer there. But anyway, uh, Virginia and South Florida, they have like a lot of the Hispanic gangs, a lot of the uh, you know the black traditional, I guess. I don't want to name the gangs because I get some blowback every time I do that too. So <laughs> You must have seen some things over the years in those prisons. I bet, I bet you could do hours and hours, couldn't you, and all your prison stories? Oh, my God. I was writing a book strictly on those and, like, my legal work. You know, there's a law in Florida. If somebody is uh, the victim's under 11 or something, it's mandatory life. So this guy's on the news. He comes in. My friend says, hey, show him the law that it's mandatory life. No deals on that because what he did to that is his stepdaughter. And so, yeah, one of the stories so I show him, I said, hey, we've seen you on the news. You might want to go to protective custody. Um, he said, well, what am I facing? My lawyer, you know, I'm hurt. I'm going to get out. I told the police the truth. I says, well, here you go. You're, you're never getting out. And here's why. And when he read it from the law book under 11 mandatory life or 12, whatever it was, he collapsed and went into a seizure and was taken out. So stories, stories of people getting killed, stories of, you know, horrendous, like, you know, one of the places you were at with the roaches, putting mm -hmm. your, your coffee cup on the bars for a cup of coffee in the morning when you're sleeping, they fill the cups up well nobody tells you put it upside down they'll flip it because they put the coffee and then there's the roast boiling in your coffee and you know? <laughs> yeah the green bologna we've all done that you know the black box like this i got a little belly so the transportation box my wrist to this day is is like damaged from having the the, the restraints on me now i'm a locksmith and alarm technician i used to just play games if i was on a long trick a long trip like, cause Florida's a super long state on a bus. I'd be in the back with whatever I had with me, just like opening the padlock, opening the cuffs, letting other people go to hang out, you know. <laughs> and, and then before we got to our destination, I cuffed back up, you know. 
Wow. With, with, but I used, to with, have, I used to have fun with that. They considered me an escape risk. I was yeah. uh, because of my escape and then because of my skills. So I spent almost four years in solitary in two different states, supermaxes. I've seen people shot there, fighting, gang members fighting, you know, the, the bullets. My first day there, I was misclassified, I thought. And the shooting starts, the fight starts, the horns go, you got to lay down. I, I'm not laying down. I ran to myself. So I sit on my bed and I'm covered in blood. And I told myself, man, holy crap, man, I've been trying to get out of here. I think I got shot by accident. I've been writing everybody, get me the hell out of here. They're shooting, they're shooting people. The officers were. But it was the gang members fighting. So he said, he said, man, he said, you didn't get shot. You, when you ran to your bunk, the, the TV shelf caught you. <laughs> I bumped my head when as soon as gunfire going on. I thought I got shot. I was like blood everywhere. You know, wow. so I said, no, I don't want him to think we were fighting, you know. <laughs> We're going to have to get you back on if you're up for it to go over some of these prison stories because we've run out of time right now, William. But huge thank okay. you for coming on, man. Right. Really appreciate what you're doing. And this is absolutely mind-blowing. And, and all the best with your book. It's called, called Galen and it's by William Steele. It's available worldwide on Amazon. All the links will be put in the description box below the video. So please check out William's work. And uh, yeah, all the best in what you're doing. Cheers. Sean, one second, if I could. I thank you so much. I admire your work. You're doing it, man. I appreciate what you're doing. And I ask all your followers, please go to my YouTube channel as well. We're trying to build those followers up. William Steele, author on YouTube. Hit subscribe, like, subscribe, share. I, I found out that's how it works. I've been out a short time. I'm new at this, <laughs> but I'm trying to build it up, and we're going to be doing an interview program as well. And we'd love to have you on as a guest one day. I will be honored, and you, you know you've only, you've you've only been out a year. Did you say out of prison for a year? Just thirteen months now. Yep. Oh my God, you're doing phenomenal. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's going to continue. So yeah. yeah, thanks so much, my friend. You take care. Cheers. Thank you, Sean. Take bye care, bye. everybody. Bye Thank bye. you, everybody. Bye. Well, great guy. Please go and subscribe to his channel. I'm going to subscribe to his channel when I get off this and hand it over to Andrew to go over to Mike. Rothschild. Let us bring in Andrew first and then Mike Rothschild. One second. Let's see where Andrew is. Just bear with me. And Mike Rothschild is going to debunk conspiracy theories. Our sacred conspiracy theories. <laughs> no, he's going to debunk the ones that are erring towards the more unrealistic we will see hey, my um, whole computer just collapsed like what collapsed I, like my screens and all that I've, i was just moving it into position and the whole thing went and i've just been like under the table screwing it back in <laughs> thinking well, while ash is messaging me going hurry up you're gonna be late and all <laughs> well you fix that just in time Whoa. and yeah. you're looking gung-ho and energetic so I'm going to hand you over to Mike Rothschild, who's going to come yes. in now. Let's see. There we go. Oh, golly. Did yes, you have fun man. there, mate? You were, you, were, you were good there. It was good stuff. Always having fun. Always having fun. Yeah. It was good stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, the David Whitehead stuff earlier. I don't know if you got oh. a chance to hear that. Oh, wow. That was brilliant, yeah. wasn't it? Well, I didn't actually, but Ash told me about it. I went for dinner. I took my missus out for dinner. Did you? Yeah, I went for dinner. Good, good for you. I'm going to toggle off. Hmm, okay. I think he's purposely suggestive when he says he's going to toggle off. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing well. How are you? 
I am well. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Where are you where are you talking to us from today? Uh, I'm in the Los Angeles area, so oh, uh, just just north of Los Angeles proper. Okay. Okay. Lovely. I've been there a few times. It's yeah. a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. It is. That's why everybody uh, wants to move here and make everything more expensive. <laughs> yeah, it can't get more expensive than it currently is. Or I suppose San Francisco. I never say is. that. Never, never say yeah. it can't get more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell. Right. So give us a little rundown on your background, obviously the QA non-stuff, the book sure. that you've written. And, and also I'm interested in, in well, actually, yeah. Let's do that. Let's hear. Let's hear that. Obviously, the question's already going. On. Are you, you know, are you a Rothschild as in the well, Rothschild? Well, uh, sure. Let's let's dispense with with that uh, upfront. No, I am not related to the uh, to the Frankfurt banking dynasty. Um, <laughs> the the actual members of the Frankfurt banking dynasty don't talk about the uh, conspiracy theories and rumors that have swirled around them for a long time. It's actually what I'm writing my next book about about the two centuries of conspiracy theories about the Rothschild family. And very early on in pitching the book, I tried to reach out to members of the family. There's not even that many who have any kind of discernible public presence, but the few that, uh, that did, I reached out and said, Hey, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear your side of the story. What have these theories meant to you? They don't talk about it. They, it, right. for them, and one of the people who's connected them actually gave me a really good reason that they don't want to put themselves in a position of proving a negative. So when, you know, some interviewer says, prove that your family doesn't control every central bank in the world, you can't actually do that. The burden of proof, as I'm sure you mm -hmm. know, rests with the person who's making the accusation. I can't prove I, I'm not part of the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds can't prove that they ha don't have $500 trillion. So you just don't address it. Yeah. But that's the, that's the book I'm working on right now. Um, my background is, yeah, it, I, it's really interesting. I'm learning so much, um, mm. so many sort of weird little obscure corners of history. A lot of stuff that's never been translated, that's really been, never been available commercially. Wow. So it's it's really really interesting. Do you, but, do you think they let you? They give you sort of extra access because of your surname. I would, if I were you, I would be thinking that. Like, I bet they'll let me sort of. You know, they won't. I've already asked. Um, <laughs> uh, they've uh, the, the the archivists. You know, they they keep their archives. You know, very tightly controlled. I've talked to the people at the archives. I've asked them a few mm -hmm. questions, but uh, you know, as far as a longer interview or just sort of leafing through things, they don't they don't want people doing that. They have told me they don't really have a lot of material about the conspiracy theories. Uh, they get asked about them all the time, but they really don't have anything there. There's not like some hidden letter where Nathan Rothschild, you know, blows the roof off the whole thing. That stuff's just not there. Other people who who have written books about the Rothschilds have gotten access, but to very specific aspects of um, some of the financial stuff, and which is not something I'm probing in this book. I have no background in that. Okay. Okay. But yeah, my, my background is as a writer, as a researcher, I, I've always been interested in the fringe world and conspiracy theories. I, I listened to uh, Coast to Coast AM as a lot when I was in college. So I would be on with Art Bell, you know, in the middle of the night talking about UFOs and crop circles <laughs> and the face on Mars and all this stuff. And I was just fascinated by it because it wasn't, it wasn't anything that people I knew talked about. And it was being talked about in a very humane kind of way. It, it was not, hey, you're, you must be crazy for thinking this. It's, well, let's figure this out. Why do you think this? What do you think happened to you? Tell me, tell me your story. And I, I became very interested in writing about what we think of as conspiracy theories 
much more as storytelling and then, and as an object of belief than in, um, you know, trying to sort of run them down like that. And uh, after a, a long while, I started writing for the blog of a podcast called Skeptoid, which uh, looks at critical thinking topics in a very, very short, very shareable kind of way. And I, I did a lot of writing for that. And that, you know, one thing kind of led to another. And I started getting some journalism gigs off of it. And I'm very fortunate now in that I'm able to write about conspiracy theories and research and talk about them as a full-time job. I, I never could have imagined doing this really even yeah. just a few years ago. It's a pretty cool job. And yeah. okay. So let me, let me ask you, I mean, okay. So I, just having that name Rothschild, um, are, are you, you don't have to answer. Are, are you of Jewish descent and all that yes. stuff? Yes. Okay. I, I mean, so am I. So, so, I, I always feel like the Rothschild thing is a sort of macrocosm of what it feels like to be Jewish in general, in that everybody you meet, you go through your whole life, you almost normalize it. You think they're thinking, and they're not always doing this, but you always worry that, oh, they're thinking that I've somehow got some secret money or power right. or uh, nepotism and all that stuff. And and it's so appealing as a conspiracy theory. It's so appealing that even I, at times, I sort of wonder, oh, I wonder if it is true and I'm the only one they haven't told. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I just never got the memo, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be so typical. Like They are actually all being nepotistic. They are all giving each other jobs. And I'm the one who didn't get it because just I rub people the wrong way or they don't they, like it. They had my, uh, my name misspelled on the email list, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all that kind of... Uh, yeah, they missed me out. And then I don't know. Do you know what I mean? So I guess I don't know. It, it, was it even harder, I suppose, for you with the name Rothschild? It's even more. Did you notice that kind of thing? I didn't notice it growing up because, mm. um, you know, I, I grew up in a very middle class northern Chicago suburb and like nobody thought we were rich and nobody I knew was rich. It, it just wasn't, you know, we all lived in sort of one of three different kinds of suburban split level houses. I mean, there were no hidden millions that that wasn't nobody, nobody had that. Uh, when I started writing about conspiracy theories, it would start to be like, Oh, of course, a Rothschild or Rothschild debunking conspiracy theories. And at that point, um, you know, my name was already out there. And I'm like, if I try to use a, a pen name, People are just going to figure out who I am, and then it's going to look like I'm hiding something. <laughs> yeah. If I just if I just use the name, and I'm like, look, it, like if I were really a member of the Rothschild banking family, I I would never go on the internet. I would live on a yacht. I would you know count my paintings. I'd give to whatever causes I felt like. I would never engage with any of this stuff. So the fact, even the fact that I'm just here, should sort of prove that I have nothing to do with that family. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We changed our name well, before I was even born from Goldstein just because it was oh. too much. And, you sure. know, there are certain places where that can be dangerous just having a Jewish name and that kind sure. of thing. And, and also just in the comments, I often get, you know, you must get more with Rothschild, but gold does get a lot of like, oh, oh yeah. Sure. Even, even today, tonight, I've seen it like five times, you know, oh, what about Israel yeah. and all this stuff. So it's, it's just madness. But I suppose it, that's it a good place. Well, go on. Yeah. It, it just yeah. gets tiresome, you know, and yeah. it's, it's so unimaginative. Yeah, yeah. And you can't, you know, you're not going to win. You can't convince right. people. So you just don't, right. which is what you were saying about the Rothschilds, why they don't. But tell me, so what, what is the, the should, should we start with that? If, I mean, we'll get on to QAnon as well. Sure. But what, what is the Rothschild conspiracy? Is that one you've taken interest? Well, you have because you've written this new book about it, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the one of the things I wanted to do as I'm working on the book is sort of unpack why this particular family. You know, there are other wealthy families. There are other wealthy Jewish families. 
why why is it this family? And one of the things I wanted to do is run down kind of the beginning of these things. And and what you what you see is very early on in the first maybe half century after the Rothschilds really built began to build up their fortune, you know, where Meyer Amschel Rothschild became a court Jew and was dealing in in metals and coins. And then they moved on to hiding the uh, treasure of the Elector of Hesse from Napoleon. The the press profiles of the Rothschilds were actually very flattering. Um, there was some kind of dismay about how they could become so wealthy so quickly, but there was clearly a kind of a grudging admiration. And you get that a lot in, um, you know, 17th and 18th century literature about wealthy Jews. They're, they're seen as almost a, a shamanistic power that they have to create wealth out of nothing. Um, there was even an anonymous pamphlet written about Nathan Rothschild, the head of the British uh, branch of the family, called the Hebrew Talisman where he's suspected of having a, a magical object that gives him clairvoyance for making money. The, the time when it really began to turn against the Rothschilds was actually in France in uh, around the 1830s and 40s with the rise of socialism and the revolutions of 1848, where the Rothschild ownership in particular of the railroads was seen as monopolistic, was seen as harmful for French society. And there started to be an outbreak of anonymous or sort of semi-anonymous pamphlets calling the calling James de Rothschild, who was the Paris head of the family, the king of the Jews, and talking about how diabolical they were, how, how they didn't care about ordinary people. There was a very obscure train accident in northern France on the Rothschild-owned Nord Line, where uh, something like 20 or 25 people died, and it was written about in a pamphlet that became extremely popular, that took the idea of um, James Rothschild as this sort of like king of the Jews and merged it with Nathan Rothschild and the already sort of existing canard about him having been at Waterloo and known the news of the battle long before anybody else. Now, none of that's true either, but this pamphlet became this massive seller, translated into a bunch of languages, and really within a couple of generations, it started to become almost common knowledge that the Rothschilds ran all of global finance based on the gigantic amount of money they made from the Battle of Waterloo. And it's just not true. None of this really happened in the way these pamphlets tell the story, but it was a compelling enough story that it really took off among people who were already predisposed to anti-Semitism. Yeah, it was. It's a convenient uh, sort of thing, isn't it? To, to, if you're going to be anti-Semitic, okay, Rothschilds, that'll do. And, and it's it's a bit of a it's a shame, really, that, that the socialists turned against them. Obviously, it makes sense because they're right. very rich, and that happens throughout history, of course, turning against the richer people. But also, they they, from what I know, and I don't know very much at all, so you'll correct me if I'm wrong, uh, gave a lot of money to left-wing causes. Or, was, or am I thinking of someone else? Uh, well, I mean, George Soros, you know, Soros is you're thinking later, of, you're right. was given to an enormous number of leftist causes. But the Rothschilds That's are extremely right. philanthropic and they were very philanthropic toward other Jews. And there was kind of a stigma that went up around them that they only gave their money away to other Jews and, you know, all yeah. kinds of things like that. Mm, man. Okay. So that was Soros. I was thinking of you're right. So both, the, both those are the sort of the two, aren't they, with the, with the Jewish ones? Um, yeah. 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 And it's, sorry, what were you going to say? No, and one of the other things I'm doing in the Rothschilds book is charting how the this cycle of conspiracy theory was really repeated again with Soros. It just happened in two decades rather than 150 years. And these things, it's the same things recycled over and over. They just move faster and they're more virulent. 
here's the sad thing and, and the really unfortunate thing and I, and I compare this um, to you know if you're a Muslim person what it must be like to wake up and you see a terrorist attack or something like that sometimes bad you know bad people are everywhere and sometimes they happen to be Jewish and sometimes conspiracy theories sure. turn out to be true one of them being Jeffrey Epstein of course so you know there was for a long time this idea of elite people who would who were you know doing things with children and taking them away to a secret island that was all going on and obviously for me to wake up to that news and see it's like, oh it's, why has it got to be a jewish person yeah that's, with, a, with a very jewish name yeah as well because yeah. there are plenty of jewish people who don't have those names you wouldn't even know it's really really frustrating for us so what do you do as somebody who debunks conspiracy theories what do we do about that because sometimes they're true you know, I, I think you have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis and understand why people believe these things um, and, and why people believe some things and not other things. You know, when the when the Epstein thing happened, um, I, I'm, I mean, maybe I'm in a minority, but I, I truly do believe that he took his own life. And I think that you're confronted with a guy who has gotten away with everything, who has never faced any real consequences. And for the first time in his life, he is. He's going to have to go to court going to face his accusers and he's going to be found guilty and he knows it. And I, I look at a guy like that and think he's going to take the easy way out. He's not going to, he, he's not going to face justice. He's not going to give his victims the satisfaction of seeing him go down. He's going to, he's going to do it himself. But I, I also completely understand why there are so many theories about what really happened to him. It, it, things like that aren't supposed to happen. And I think whenever you see a worldwide event or a major event and something happens that isn't supposed to happen. You know, things like that don't just take place. Somebody has to be in charge of it. It's not just random chance. That's that's where conspiracy theories come from. And I think for me, particularly with anti-Semitism, you know, I look at the footprint of Jews in the media, in finance, in banking, and it is outsized. Um, Jews have done better in certain fields than other religious groups or ethnic groups for a long time. There are reasons why Jews went into banking, why Jews went into finance, when Jews went into money lending. For a lot of it is they weren't allowed to do other things. They weren't allowed to own land. And the, the majority of, uh, of you know, working people in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance uh, were, were farmers. And Jews couldn't be farmers. So they had to do something else. And they did something that Christians were, by canon law, not allowed to do, which was lend money at interest. It was considered usury. So for many centuries, that's what Jews were able to do, this, this one particular field that other people didn't want to do. So if you look at the, the anti-Semitism that goes on around wealth, you look back at its origin points, you think, okay, there are real reasons why this happened. There are real reasons why there, there, there became this resentment over Jews um, building up wealth in a way that it looked like other people weren't allowed to do. So I think when you when you demystify things, when you find out the real reasons behind something, they become a lot less salacious. And I think when things become less salacious, they become less attractive. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, it doesn't change it. Like you say, I mean, those are the reasons for it. And then, but it does mean that maybe there, it, I don't know, there are a lot of Jews, for example, in Hollywood, for example, they sure. did help start Hollywood at the beginning, didn't they? So there are some sort right. of facets of the stereotypes or the conspiracies that, that are true. Uh, but then there are reasons, as you say, there are sort of, you know, ex explanations behind it. Um, we should get on to QAnon. Well, what's Q <laughs> what is Q QAnon for people who, sure. don't, who don't know? Sure. And if, you, if you've if uh, you gone this long without having heard about QAnon, uh, I uh, bless you. 
Uh, yeah, I envy you. Um, so QAnon is a cultish conspiracy theory that started on the image board 4chan in late October of 2017, based around a very cryptic comment made by then President Trump, uh, where he was meeting with a group of um, military officers and their spouses. Everybody's in their, you know, their dress uniforms and their glittering ball gowns and the, um, you know, cameras are clicking. And Trump says, you know what this means? This could be the calm before the storm. Could be the calm before the storm. And everybody's like, what is he talking about? What, what is the storm? You know, is it something about North Korea? Is it something about ISIS? Is it something even worse? Nobody has any idea what this means. So with over a couple of weeks in October of 2017, a group of anonymous posters on 4chan kind of decided that they knew what this meant. And there's already a tradition on 4chan of what's called LARPing, live action role-playing, where mm -hmm. you pretend to be something else that you're not. And a lot of people would show up on 4chan and they would pretend to be a, an FBI insider or a White House insider. There was an MI5 insider, you know, dispensing kind of cryptic, unintelligible nuggets of what's about to happen. And, you know, none of it ever happens. And it's just a big joke and everybody goes about their day. Well, Q just started off as another one of these prophesying a very specific event that Hillary Clinton was about to be arrested. She had had her passport flagged for extradition while she was trying to flee the country. And there were going to be riots that would happen when the announcement of Hillary Clinton's arrest was made. And you could tell that that was happening because the Marines and National Guard would be called up and there would be troops in the streets and there would be mass chaos. And over the course of a couple of weeks, the person who started calling themselves Q claimed to be a military intelligence insider who was working on this great purge side by side with Trump. And it was going to be a, a, a new utopia. Everything would be wonderful. All the terrible people would be brought to justice. And it very quickly built up a very fervent fan base. These influencers on YouTube and on, on Reddit, uh, who had very small followings, started making videos and decoding threads about QAnon and suddenly found they had huge followings. And it, it very quickly took on a life of its own. It jumped from 4chan to Reddit to Infowars. And within four or five months, there was an entire industry of people decoding these uh, secretive drops for what they really meant and, and sort of unveiling what would happen when the storm finally took place. And, and that really went on for well over three years, really up until the inauguration of Joe Biden. Wow. It's so funny how these things happen, especially online. And you get to see it yourself when you've got a YouTube channel. Because I, I, for example, I, I put these videos up and then, you know, you change, for example, the thumbnail, uh, the, the image on the YouTube video, just mm -hmm. because you want to see if it does better when you change it. You've right. always got to be fiddling with those. And then sometimes, sometimes it goes through the roof because just something about the thumbnail works. The amount of people who comment going, oh, so you changed the thumbnail. What's going on there? You've, got, you've <laughs> yeah, got an ulterior yeah. motive. You're, you're yeah, trying but, to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, the, the the baking uh, is a, it's a Q term because the Q drops are also called crumbs and yeah. the bakers would be the ones who would decode the, the crumbs and turn them into breads. I mean, never mind. That's not how you make bread. <laughs> you know, if, if you're making a loaf of bread out of a bunch of crumbs, your bread's going to be pretty crappy. But hey, I'll um, eat it. I'll, I would yeah. eat anything. I'll, I'll yeah, eat it. well, that's true. I'll eat any bread. But um, 
so so this there became an industry based around this. And now, you know, there hasn't been a, a Q drop in a year and a half. But the baking of uh, public communications by uh, figures around Trump, figures in the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and the media has become has completely taken on a life of its own. And so the QAnon that we knew, that I studied, that I wrote most of my book about, that doesn't really exist anymore. Now what you have is a very mainstream set of beliefs. Um, all of whom dovetail with each other. So you are just as likely to believe that the election was stolen and Donald Trump is the rightful president as you are to believe that COVID was a hoax designed to uh, spur mail-in voting, uh, as you are to believe that big pharma is suppressing cures for cancer and we have secret bases on Mars, as you are to believe that cancel culture is going to kick down your door and take away your stakes and your Dr. Seuss books at gunpoint. It becomes a belief system much more than a theory that you're trying to prove or disprove. And then, so what, what was the idea of QAnon? Um, so the idea was that these sort of elite leftists were sort of stealing your children and abusing and stuff like that, but it was never the yeah. right wing people it, it was you know there's some lip service paid to uh you know oh both parties do it we're not democratic or republican we're just patriots uh. but the the worst abuse is always reserved for democrats and the that sort of child sex trafficking pedophile mm -hmm. cult stuff was yeah. was one part of QAnon. oh you still there yeah. what's going on i don't know oh, sort of bouncing ah, in like there you are. nightclub uh, you could be. I, I feel. I feel like I need to go dance now. Um, yeah. th that that sort of pedophile cult stuff was was one part of QAnon, but there's a whole bunch of it that that really doesn't have anything to do with that. It was very focused on the kind of the minutia of American politics, on like cheerleading for the Republican Party, um, and on like world events and on technology. Social media was a big part of it. Uh, like the Mueller investigation was a big part of it. They, for a while, they thought Robert Mueller was a good guy pretending to be a bad guy. And then they thought he was a bad guy pretending to be a good guy pretending to be a bad guy. It gets impossible to follow. Um, yeah. you, the, the storyline is not consistent or coherent. It doesn't need to be there. There, no one, no one was following QAnon because it was telling a really consistent story. People were following QAnon because it, it fit with things they already believed with a worldview that they already had that powerful people get away with things. Well, powerful people do get away with things. I mean, we, we know that for sure that, um, big tech does not have our best interests in mind. Well, I don't think big tech no. does necessarily have our best interests in mind. I mean, <laughs> that's, you know, that's not crazy. There's a reason why that was, that was appealing to people. So yeah. it, it, it took something that people really already were into and made it more interesting, more participatory, and ultimately kind of fun. There was something kind of fun about following those drops and decoding them and talking about it with other people yeah. and watching videos. And it was, it was enjoyable. It was something that livened up your sort of dull workaday existence. Yeah, it's like Pokemon or something. You're playing yeah. on your phone. Yeah, I, absolutely. I watching wrestling or whatever yeah. people like those the storylines the patterns that's why there are people like i say hanging around my youtube channel just waiting for to see if i've changed yeah. an old video they shouldn't even see the old video but they're looking back through it and then it <laughs> becomes you know if, if it was a bigger thing than that oh god all, 
they could be on message boards and forums going, yeah. have you noticed he's changed that little thing? So I guess we're pattern seekers as well as humans. Sure. Absolutely. That's, that's us doing what we do and it's exciting. And then, and like I say, the problem is sometimes they, they are right. Um, and the, you know, the one, the one I go back to is obviously the Epstein one. I don't mean the conspiracy about him killing himself. I mean, right. the conspiracy about, about, um, the actual Island of, of children right. that the elite people were, although, you know, it wasn't quite young children, but it or was it? Right. I don't know. But but yeah, so that kind of thing. So I guess, are you open to the idea that sometimes some of these crazy conspiracies, let's say, just to pick one out of thin air, nine eleven or something was an mm. inside job. Are you open to some of these being potentially correct, or are you just like no, no conspiracies? Well, I'm I'm always open to to learning about things more. And, and I'm open to thinking about what would be sort of the most conspiratorial explanation. And I think about like using the 9-11, for example, for 9-11 to have been a, an inside job. I mean, let's just say that they knew it was going to happen and they, you know, dropped their defenses. That that's, I mean, that is plausible. That is, that is something that could happen. But the thing is, is that it very quickly goes from hey, there is a possibility that this could happen. It very quickly goes to so many things would have to happen in just the exact right way. And so many people would have to be involved. And there's so many unanswerable questions. I mean, you, you look at the, the controlled demolition theory and, and a lot of people still believe that. You know, people believe that right after it happened, 20 years later, people still believe it. Yeah, I try to go down to kind of the, the most pedantic, most basic questions. Okay. So the World Trade Center was destroyed in a controlled demolition by explosives. How long were the explosives there? Who put them there? Who paid for them? Who knew they were there? Were they sitting there for decades after the building was built, just kind of waiting for somebody to hit the button? Or did somebody rig the building? How do you rig two gigantic buildings with explosives in a way that nobody figures it out? It just, you, you start to ask very simple questions and very quickly the the conspiracy theory becomes so convoluted and so impossible to execute that you it, it just doesn't have a lot of value for you anymore. And I, and I think a lot of, about that with QAnon. You know, if QAnon were a real thing, like how would this all work? Why is this being done on on a place like 8chan, which is like one of the worst places on the internet, and also like a really rickety and difficult to use image board, like. I, I've I've looked around HN. I've never posted on it, but I've looked around it. It's like impossible to figure out even how to use it. It's full of child porn and and really horribly racist and anti-Semitic memes. Like, if I was a classified military intelligence operation, why would I be giving classified information to the people on HN? Why why would I be doing it like that? And then of course HN went down for months over the summer of 2019 and there were no new q drops q had already said there will be no outside comms you know we q will never post outside of hn i'm going i'm going well okay if q is a plan to save the world which is literally what people thought it was um if this is a plan to save the world to rescue children to you know to eliminate the worst people in the world are they just taking the summer off like what mm. are, are do you know do the children being trafficked from like July to November 2019 to those kids. I uh, forget those kids. They, we're not going to go save them. We we need to get our really crappy website back up. It, it's just it's just yeah. stuff like that. It's just like it sounds like you're nitpicking, like you're like like you're sort of looking for reasons to to think something is not true. But I think you have to do that. 
I think if you believe in something that's kind of outlandish, you have to apply that rigorous skepticism to it. And so many people don't. They just believe what they want to be true. Yeah, no, I th- I think you're right, and I, I wonder as well. And we don't have much time, by the way. We've got to go in a, in, a, in a minute. But sure. and, and um, I wonder if going back to what I was saying at the beginning, growing up Jewish, I wonder if you are more sensitive to uh, conspiracy theories because they almost always come back to you. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I grew up, and every time I heard a conspiracy theorist, I thought, Oh God, how long till they get onto me? So, <laughs> what did we do now? <laughs> yeah, and I just thought, like, I've just, I'm just a guy walking around yeah. being rubbish, bad at football, and bad at stuff. <laughs> I'm not like some guy with. And no. it was so, it's painful. It was, you know, it yeah. was painful. So, so I wonder if that has made us. And I come on, and I, I sometimes disagree with Sean because Sean's a little bit more open to some conspiracies, mm-hmm. and obviously he hasn't had that same background. So I wonder if that is an intriguing thought to sort of go out on today. I I think that's a really interesting point of view. And it's not something I've thought about that being Jewish inherently puts your radar up to how Mm. are you going to be blamed for whatever just happened, you know, and and kind of preemptively um, trying to get in front of it. I think that's why, uh, you know, Jews flock to journalism so much. It's because you're trying to figure out what is really going on. Who are the real power players? It's not the Rothschilds. It's not, the elders of Zion. It's it's people in, you know, back rooms publicly doing a lot of these things in a way that is almost transparently obvious and everybody knows it. You just can't prove it. Yeah, yeah that's it. Uh, and also trying to you become a journalist because I wanted to find out if there was that secret Jewish club that I could sure, sign up. Sure. And, and how can I get in? <laughs> yeah, but they didn't never let me in. Um, where can people find your, your stuff and everything? Sure. So uh, my book on QAnon, The Storm is Upon Us, is available everywhere. Um, hardcover is going to be a paperback coming out in August. There's a terrific audiobook. It's on Kindle. Uh, I tweet uh, too much at uh, Rothschild MD. Uh, that's that's basically where I have. I you know I publish articles other places. I've got some other projects I'm working on that hopefully will be coming out uh, soon. And just staying very busy, uh, trying to make sure people have good information and the tools they need to act on it. Oh, fantastic. Mike, you're a great speaker. I need to get you on my podcast, my own Absolutely. other podcast, On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Maybe sure. we'll all, we can, if you want to, we can organize it for maybe in like six weeks or something. So we've forgotten some of the stuff we've already said and we can talk about <laughs> it again. I, I will have forgotten. I have, I have kids and it's a pandemic. I, I can't remember what I have for breakfast. Fantastic. So <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much. I can't take yeah, you off absolutely. the screen because I don't, I don't have the power. Oh, you're gone. So <laughs> sorry about that mike the powers that be got you god there was so much more that i wanted to go in there and i'm sorry to the people on the side um who were asking questions we just didn't have the time in in that particular time because i thought he was a really really good speaker on it i know some people will disagree about the 9-11 stuff and the the epstein having killed himself stuff but uh you know that's the whole point of it is plurality of opinion speaking of which one a person with opinions is david arthur johnston how are you doing i'm doing really well how's my mic your mic sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Really good. What are you are you holding it? What are you doing? What's going on? Uh, no, I have it set up on a tripod in front of me. Oh, you were leaning. You can lean if you want. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to tell you. I'm not also to lean. standing up. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Okay. Okay. How annoying does it get? Here's my first question. So, so you are somebody you don't use money. You don't like money. You chuck money away. You're angry about money. And I think and how annoying does it get for you that everybody says to you the like how did you afford that how have you got that are people asking you that all the time uh it's just a a quaint thing you know the (laughs) then i get to explain how i don't use money and then they 
instantly go to, well, how did you get such and such? And you walk on sidewalks and sidewalks had money in their construction and, and whatnot. So that there's a, I'm not, I'm not worrying about pleasing other people's sensibilities. Yeah, too right too right it's just that i was you know obviously putting together some questions for this and i read an article about you and like the first thing is like and it was by uh it seems to be a, a good writer tori marlin and the first thing was like i want to ask him how can he how can he afford this coffee cup you know and i thought oh god that's what i was going to ask him and i just wonder if that gets <laughs> frustrating to be asked and how do you get a cup of coffee uh half the time i pull a cup out of the garbage that's still half full but also I take advantage of the certain homeless programs and whatnot, the soup kitchen in the morning and such. Okay. So what I, what inspired um, you to, to not want to be involved in money? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> initially, I was doing somewhat of a, well, I call it a monk thing. I just, I couldn't stomach working anymore. I had a big epiphany. I was living outside. And I made some interesting friends and one friend stopped using money and it was quaint. It, it was like, uh, cool. <laughs> and so I figured I would, uh, well, I actually, I, I got really drunk on, uh, my 27th birthday and just pukey drunk. And I had this revelation where the only thing I was spending money on was coffee, pot, beer. And because I had discovered dumpsters by that time and, and humbly, there's enough food thrown out every day to feed an army. Yeah. Uh, so I just stopped using it. Not, not specifically as an experiment. It, it wasn't a, there was a reason to stop money. It wasn't just this uh, trifle. Mm -hmm. Like the, I, I saw that somebody had to do it, or at least in my mind, I saw that somebody had to do it. Like the food grows on trees and the money dependency is sort of killing everything. Like it, it doesn't allow us to adapt. Sure. I'm reading, I'm reading something just in notes about you, about uh, the pra pragmatic, stoic understanding of implicit nature of God, which sounds um, over my head. But <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> it's just the, the nature of the whole, like the, the universe itself as a single object. Yeah. Uh, which is... Well, it's fascinating, really, to understand and and to perceive it that way. But the the problem is, well, and and my most contentious issue, I guess, would be that it's impossible to understand what God looks like when you think that humans have individual wills, hmm. like that. Uh, if you think humans have this capacity to make a thought out of nothing, you sort of are stepping away from the basic understanding that everything in the now was led to by the moment before it. Mm -hmm. And so that, that everything's a single thing 
it's also a martial arts thing as well, but we can get into that later if we have time. But uh, is, is this determinism? Is this is that what is that what this is? Like, uh, you could call it that. I call it objective truth, like just mm -hmm. that the the believing that humans have individual wills is an implicit belief in magic, and I see that magic doesn't exist. Yeah. So you're determined to do whatever you're determined to do. And your path was to not use money. Uh, it seems it. Uh, I, I was always poor. I grew up poor. When I was 12, I had to stop putting sugar in my coffee because I figured I might not be able to afford sugar one day. Hmm. And then so I was sort of, you know, always a, a stoic, like even as a child interesting does it it does it come as some sort of relief having grown up poor or to have been poor to then just go you know what i'm just not playing the game anymore uh i try not to gloat just because i i see everyone having their nervous breakdowns you know <laughs> slaving 40 hours a week just so they can afford to sleep uh and and doing tax well just money's driving everyone nuts and then here I come along with a, you know, a jaunty smile. And, and then it's like, get the heck out of here. I'm thinking about other stuff. But yeah. yeah. You just sounded more Canadian when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't usually hear it, the difference between that and American, but uh, a boot was there. I always hear, I love, I love it. I love the Canadian accent. Um, I've got Fred asking me in the comments, how do you feel about having a family and dependence? Do you have a family and dependence? Uh, I have a couple kids uh, that I haven't seen in over 10 years now. Hmm. Uh, I see it as a, that there's very much a reason monks don't generally mate. Uh, and so to do the best for my kids right now, I have to be maybe the most unconventional person I can imagine like I have I'm all in you could say hmm. like the if I ever want to have a life with my kids again I have to gain a certain notoriety that gets people to start giving me houses yeah so the yeah very much so that uh to stop using money is sort of to recognize that we're in the middle of a war and that traditionally in war, the kids go to the grandparents while the, the people, you know, the dads go to the front lines. But this is a war that, you know, I think in your heart, wh whether it's whether it's virtuous or not, you probably can't win, at least in your lifetime. Oh, heavens. Uh, even though magic isn't real, miracles are a thing that happens. Like you look at the world right now and it's it, madness and, and exponentially more and more people are having bigger thoughts to, to break out of the systems that they're in because, you know, everyone's seeing that, no, I'm, you know, I'm never going to be able to own a house. I'm never going to, I'm slaving here at this job. I'm having, you know, on the perpetual verge of a nervous breakdown. And this is the majority of all humans. Yeah. And so no one's happy. 
and at some point mayhaps a, a certain thought may permeate and just show people that they don't have to be afraid and mm. that yes food does grow on trees mm. and and yeah so so mayhaps the the systems that are there need not last forever and may not be there for very much longer I, either and and do you would you like to rekindle your relationship with your children that must be very difficult to have not seen them for 10 years uh i look at it as work like uh I'm just on a multi-decade shift right now. Mm -hmm. And they're they're happy and healthy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I, it's not as I'm sure many people would like to presume that there's an abandonment issue, but there really isn't. No, I wouldn't want to presume anything, but it must, but it must be difficult. The only thing I would presume is it must be difficult sometimes. Uh, it makes me serious. It, it like thinking of them reminds me that I don't get my own life and that I have to do everything in my conceiving to uh, change the world. Yeah it's hard it is hard i i, I feel like i want to and it's not my job to do so but i feel like i want to sort of push you and go oh you could come on you go and i want you to call your kids and get back together with them i'm sorry it's not my business really is it uh well it is and i understand where you're coming from and the the one the girl's definitely old enough to get on facebook like i'm i'm thinking that well, and also my dreams suggest that there would be a, a rekindling hmm. uh, at, at the same time, you know, their dad's this fellow who hasn't used money in 20 years. And I'm not sure what picture the mother is, has been painting of me. Hmm. Yeah. At, at the same time, it might be it seems cold and mayhaps borderline sociopathic but for their sake i remain determined hmm. to to do what to to win the the war and not not using money well to shine with the truth that will cure everyone of their fear hmm. lee's asking are you a free man i don't know what that means is that a Mason? No, no, I, I know what he's talking about. I, I wouldn't consider myself classified in, in that, that area. What does uh, that mean? Uh, there's a, a section of society that have been calling themselves freemen and they oh. sort of think they can operate apart from government procedure, but at the same time, if they're still using money then they're bound by money social contract so i i don't uh give them much credit or or the dalai lama for that matter or sad guru like these are people that are not thinking you know how to end the tyrant they're just thinking about how to best get along with the tyrant how the thing with the thing with 
you know, you know what? Where where are you calling us from now? Where is this place? Uh, my friend's place in Victoria, BC. Okay. So I don't want to ask you the same questions that I'm sure you get all the time, like, oh, you know, oh, you think you got, look at that. You've obviously got to rely on the money of somebody because I presume you want a society where, where nobody has to have money for all this to be possible, right? Well, I won't be sad if my friends go bankrupt. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess so. But then you won't have anywhere to do this call from. Well, um, that's why I'm savoring it while it happens. You need everyone to go bankrupt at once. You can't have your friends all going bankrupt one at a time because then you won't, know, you won't be able to use any comfort and go to people's houses and things like that. You need the whole world to decide at once not to use money, right? Uh, ideally, that that would yeah. be, you know, if everyone picked a day, hmm. then we could all start, you know, getting together in rooms with maps on the walls to plot where all the gardens are going to go and and how we're going to deal with you know the well in each city with the thousands and thousands of addicts that are not going to have their drugs anymore uh like there's there's many considerations and so yes it would be a lot easier if we all did it at the same time yeah but i can't see that day coming anytime soon but you never know you never know um oh, man it's so complicated isn't it because money has been going for thousands of years, hasn't it? Or types of it, barter and all these, you know, people would exchange one thing for another. If lots of people in a society, some people are good at one thing, some people are good at another, doesn't it make sense for people to sort of trade what they do so that they can all get a bit of it, right? Well, that I don't necessarily call it the barter system. I call it more of a karma system. If, if I have this stuff that I'm not using and you can put use to it, then you're welcome to it. Hmm. Uh, the money is is at first glance uh uh you know intriguing and, and and could be useful but at second glance once money establishes itself it can't allow for redundancy it 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 always needs to be necessary and so we're not allowed to move without paying off someone we, there's no land you can have just to live on without having to pay taxes, which involves getting into the system. And so uh, money at its very core is anti-freedom hmm. and, and un unnatural as far as a certain level of natural goes, but natural as far as everything that exists is natural. Like the, the, the devil's as a natural as a mountain stream it's just to respect it for what it is it's a it's a tough one because i think you know a lot of the stuff you're saying i think is is not wrong i mean it, it money does uh prevent us in some ways from being truly free or you need a lot of it to feel freer but then you want more of it so you're not really free and a lot of the stuff you're saying does sound about right but we live in a society of seven billion people and a lot of those people quite like the idea of money and all that stuff in society so i do you know what I mean? I, I do. And I, I also imagine that most would say that they actually don't like money, but they do like money. Yeah. Like it, it gets them what they want. But if you could remove that, that middling process and just get what you want without the money, I think most people would do that. Hmm. Like a, at, at the same time, I'm, you can't just say, you know, 
put a big notice out and say, hey, everyone, quit money, money's bad. <laughs> what you do do is point out, you point out that everyone who thinks free will is real is naively psychotic. Like the, when you understand that the whole is a singularity, it means everything. It means evil's not real and, and hate is absurd. And so once you get over the first nervous breakdown of realization that you just naturally don't want to continue enabling that system anymore. Like you, you won't stop money for stopping using money's sake. You'll stop money because you'll see that continued use of it is contrary to truth and you you just won't be able to stomach it anymore. So, so, so just from my point of view, it feels like there's a leap that's happening here. And I, I'm with you on both sides of that leap, and I'm missing the middle bit. And that is that, on the one hand, you know, free will is not real, and I agree with you. And I suppose that gives way to sort of nihilistic tendencies and like, okay, well, what is it all for? Anyway, it's all a bit of a... And then that's leading you to say, so let's not use money. And I think somebody else could e just as easily say... It's all abundant. It's all just not real anyway. And we're all it's all determinism. So let's just use loads of money. Well, it, it, it's not just that free will is not real, but in the belief that humans have individual wills is a discounting of what it is to be life. Like the life goes towards peace. Like the that we we pretend that humans are special, but really. I've seen cows express joy. Like I, I've seen happy dogs. Like why, how, how are they different? Like we have mm -hmm. thumbs and we discovered fire and that, that cascaded into this domination. Yeah. But if you knew that this is all an extension of a, a, a single motion that is sort of, been shot through what we would call a big bang that that every galaxy spinning like every leaf falling like that there's no at no point has anything been random and so you have to ask yourself you know that might be true but then that means that me myself and these thinking processes and these words coming out of my mouth are also an extension of that. Yeah. See, I'm with uh, you to here. I'm I'm completely with you up to this point. But then money in particular, what's why is that? Well, the, the the, because it it's just the the consequence when you see that the dependency on money requires you to pay the wages of people who think evil's real. It it, it requires you to settle uh in in adherence to money's whims and especially now in in a time where if first world countries admitted that there was a state of emergency that that we're, we're ignoring complete financial collapse at the cost of making a totalitarian state mm. uh that if we acknowledge the financial collapse, 
we could actually all get together and start planting food and and you know get on with a, a, a refugee civilization but one that's enlightened instead yeah. of making it illegal to sleep outside and uh you know flooding the streets with crack crystal meth and heroin so people will pay extra for their apartments to stay off the streets yeah i get what you're saying and you know it's what you're saying is a larger version of i suppose sometimes how i feel when you know i've got my own podcast and i've got to do adverts on it and sometimes i feel a little bit that that way it's sort of dirtying yourself and it's not just the the thing itself it's not just the content itself that people are able to consume it's like got to have this dirty money aspect to it so i do get what i think i think that's what that's sort of a well, very small version of what you're saying that th there's no escaping a grain of monkishness like when when you're facing those situations just remember patience like mm. we've all grown up in the middle of this system and and all of our you know techniques of survival are, are rooted around knowing how to work that system. And so if, if for some reason we got to a point where we couldn't adhere to that system anymore, then our systems of survival are, are, are put us in a, a, a quandary. Well, what do we do next? And then I suggest it's not about having an alternative plan it's about rather being dead than corrupt mm. and 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 then there's a, a karma that comes with that like the, the the capacity to survive will be presented like you don't have to make a new system the system's already there we've just been corrupting it sure. and, and and whatnot so for most for just to go back to like because we only got a few minutes left we've done a lot of the theory i guess just to go to the practical you know how are you living you're i think you're making use of some of the uh you know stuff that's for homeless people shelters stuff like that food and stuff like that yeah well tent cities have been made illegal like sleep was made legal here in this town uh in 2008 and then three days after they said sleep's only legal at night and so that made tent cities uh, uh, an impossibility, which is fine because tent cities categorically don't work when there's an addiction epidemic, which so that right. becomes my, you know, first thing that needs to happen is ending that. Right. Uh, what was the question again? I'm sorry. Just what you're doing, like to sort of get by food. Oh, stuff well, like if, head, if I was in a tent got... city, I wouldn't be so much taking advantage of the the whatever the mat program and the drop-in centers uh but as it stands that has that option's been taken away from me and so you know while that happens then yes i have no problem taking advantage of the services that are offered hmm. well fair enough hey usually at this point i ask people you know can they follow you and stuff like that have you got all that stuff set up twitter and all those things yeah, yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, Temple of Ninpo. Cool. Uh, and any other links or interesting things are along there where people can find me. If you look up David Arthur Johnston, 
you might want to tap in Victoria, BC, because there's a, it's a common name. Okay. Okay. I can see you on Twitter here. So you, yeah. So you're playing the game in that respect, the Twitter and all that stuff, but not the money stuff. Well, savoring it while it lasts, mm. like the oh electricity God. might not be forever. Yeah. Okay. Well, fair enough. Uh, yeah. And that's true. <laughs> David, you talk a lot of sense. Um, there are a lot of things that I, I find sad as well. And, and I, you know, I hope you're able to reunite with your family at some point. And I, cause I, 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 I think it's a great idea. A lot of this, I just, I just don't know how long it's going to take for this war to be won, you know? And I just, I hope. Well, I hope that's why patience you know. becomes the mainstay. The, yeah. the fate and patience are, the be-alls of philosophical endeavor mm, and so if well, people want truth then they will find it yeah i guess so i guess so well oh, thank oh. you david you speak beautifully and you know have a lovely evening and everything thank you for coming on uh thank you for having me on you're very welcome right i don't know how to close oh yep you're done <laughs> that'll be sean with his magical fingers behind Oh, no, here he is. I'm always watching and listening. <laughs> oh, Sean is always listening. Sometimes when we're doing our, our pre-talk before the show, I go to the toilet and I've left my headphones and I can just hear him breathing. Oh, my talk, goodness. Talk, talking about me to Ash. Lots of good thoughts. No, it is a good so, thought. before we close the show out then, we were earlier talking about Johnny Depp at the very beginning, but we didn't get a chance to finish. And if people think this was interesting, I think Elon Musk is going to get called to the stand, isn't he, in this trial? Yeah, it has become like, it is like watching wrestling or something. It's like this big, crazy soap opera that's going on, isn't it? It's mad. Amber Heard's, um, she dated, didn't she date Musk? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Heard was dating Elon Musk during the time she was attempting to reconcile with her ex, as in Depp, and he had advised her dating famous men meant things would be public. Further testimony was given by two officers who responded to a domestic abuse call at the couple's penthouse in May 2016. They said they found no evidence of a crime. Heard was uncooperative and didn't want, did not want to file a report. So what, what did you make then of the teacup poodle story? Was it a poodle, teacup poodle? What's what's a teacup poodle? Is this about the bed? The bed, yeah. I thought it was her own feces. Yeah, and she said it was the teacup poodles. What's a teacup poodle? It's a poodle that's like a, a small poodle. I don't know if it's a poodle, but it's a teacup something or other. Let me have a look. Let me find it. You know what's funny uh, about Elon Musk and her? Because I've always had a theory that couples often go out with people who look just like them. And my girlfriend does look a lot like me. Uh, and there is something in the faces, and, and just a little, just the below the foreheads of Elon Musk and Amber Heard, they look sort of, they've got a similar stare. Symmetry. Obviously, Amber Heard's better looking, of course, but they they look quite similar. Oh my god! Look at these pictures of teacup poodles. They are like, they're like a fraction of a poodle. How how yeah. a tea, how a teacup poodle could produce a human log. <laughs> I'll tell you what, sales of them must have gone through the roof. That's, what, yes. that's what's come out of this. Somebody is farming teacup poodles and has just made an absolute fortune. <laughs> I never even heard of a teacup poodle. 
No, well, that's what they're that's what they're about. I'm a Duxon fan myself. Look, the whole thing's just mad, isn't it? She seems really odd, and you know what? Because you know, I'm not giving. We had that discussion before about conspiracy theories, and you know, I think you and some of the people, some people here, are a little bit more taken to them. I'm usually, you know, sometimes, but in, in not in a good way. I might be wrong because I'm I'm so closed off to conspiracy theories, and sometimes I need to be more open minded. Um, and so I'm immediately when people start saying, oh, she's this and she's that, she's the devil. My mind instantly shuts down and goes, oh, come on, no one's that bad and whatever. And the stuff coming out, it does seem really bad. Like, I've got to admit that. It does seem really bad. But have, you ever, have you ever watched one of those crime shows where the defendant gives his case and you think he's innocent? Yeah. And then the, pro- the prosecutor gets up and then you think he's completely guilty? Yeah, I hope that happens just for the fun of it. She's not been up yet, has she? Is she going up? Must when, be. When she... She's got to get up, hasn't she? Isn't this mad that we can it's even just, see this? It's just his side, isn't it, right now? Yeah, yeah. And so she'll she come up and go, what on earth have you been saying about the beds and all that? That was you. You fell asleep drunk. Here's some pictures of it. You were out with Sean Atwood and your cronies. You come home and you wet the bed. Out with Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> For some reason from Yorkshire, is he? Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, it's, 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 it's madness. I mean, he must have done a cost-benefit analysis on the whole situation. Because if you're going to go all the way with a defamation case... Everything from your entire life is going to come out. So he must have said to himself, "My career is in so much tatters right yeah. now, yeah. and so many people believe what she has said. I've got nothing to lose and everything to gain by just putting my alcoholism, my drug addiction, getting my sister understand. Yeah. It's all going to be worth it to try and restore his reputation." Well, and also his reputation was as somebody who was a drug addict and alcoholic. I mean, that's not going to change from these admissions. Nobody's going to go, what? The Pirates of the Caribbean guy was an alcoholic. Like, come on. Yeah, we knew that. So it's fine. Yeah. Did you see his sister on the stand today? No, no. Yeah, it was very moving. You could see he was uh, hurt by having her up there. I'll just read one of the latest headlines on this case then about Johnny Depp's quirks, which are keeping him sane. As in the courtroom. So, on the 10th day of his trial, Depp's black SUV was blurring Exodus by Bob Marley as he pulled up and was greeted by adoring fans with Justice for Johnny signs. He's been flashing a $2 bill, a lucky $2 bill, that he had in a plastic bag as he pulled up to court. And in the courtroom, the 58-year-old has been doodling between testimony with a purple marker and keeping a supply of jelly beans, gummy bears, and mints on hand. His notebook reads, built to last, with a drawing of a green figure with a crown on its head. And then always in front of him is a large silver tumbler filled with what people believe is black coffee. And he's brought that every day. <laughs> every day. <laughs> I love how it's written. I like what people believe. Filled with a substance that people believe Alleged, is allegedly. Black, allegedly black coffee. We won't say in case the coffee sues us. What do you think of his outfits? Yeah, well, I mean, look, he's just always looked sort of a bit nuts, hasn't he? And he's just wearing these weird things. Oh, did you see that thing about her copying his outfits? Yeah, when they both had like the grey on and stuff like that, mirroring him. Apparently every day she's doing it. <laughs> is, was, was that, is that to psych him out? Is, is she yeah. copying him for sure? And how, so. how would she know 
What no, is going to wear that? I think I think it's the next day she's coming in. No. I think so. I think it is that. She's messing with his head like that. <laughs> you know what? You know when it's... It doesn't have to be a relation, like a romantic relationship. You know you've got a friend or a parent or whoever it is and they are just like... They're telling the narrative and all your other friends think it's that. I could, there's no worse feeling and you want to get it all out there. So Johnny Depp must have been sitting there for months like, can't wait for this. And he's going to look like he's all miserable but he's thinking, finally, I'm saying what I've been thinking for fucking four years. Yeah, Ray J in the comments saying she's she's doing it the following day. <laughs> you can't do that. That's not a good thing to set to the jury, is it? No. That's no. showing Bonnie Boiler mentality. Could be a coincidence, but it looked so similar. No, there was no way it was a coincidence. <laughs> There's no way. She's oh. proper got something going on upstairs. She's odd. And that's why she looks like Elon Musk to me, because they've both got that sort of slightly psychopathic face in my mind anyway they've got those sort of just robotic eyes whereas i look at you sean i see there's just beautiful caring eyes indeed yeah what about the boot story the boot oh that she always takes his shoes off i came home one day and she was on the phone and i was in a dilemma (laughs) do i take the boots off myself or do i just wait for her to take the boots off oh man you know i I decided to take them off myself (laughs) She came running in the room. What have you just done? <laughs> oh my God. What have you just done? You know, I am in charge of taking the boots off. Get them on now. How, do you think she's going to rebut that story if she gets up there? Yeah, well, this is it. She must be writing down stuff. And just going like, you know, this is, you know, all the stuff I'm going to have to rebut now. But yeah. I mean, also how many people up and down, not just the country, the world have now been doing that when they get home. Because I did it earlier and I sort of got home with my girlfriend and I sort of put my feet towards her like, <clears throat> waiting for her to take my <laughs> shoes off for me. She did not budge. She did not Did she budge. at least give you a glass of wine? She just turned, no, she turned and walked off. That's all I'm used to. <laughs> But that's a normal relationship, isn't it? That's a normal, hello, how you doing? Yeah, all right. You don't start taking each other's shoes off. So Ray J has said, Amber stopped the clove mirroring this week. Too much publicity about about what she was doing. Well, yeah, that's the thing. You can only do it for so long once you're caught. That's almost worse, (laughs) isn't it? Because now you've been caught. It's like, no, you want to later go, by the way, I was doing that because I love him so much and I'm still doing it today and I love wearing what he wears. You can't be taking the piss out of the courtroom procedures (laughs) because... That's you're trying to win people over. You're not trying to take the piss out of the whole situation. Well, well, now do you remember what I was saying the other week? Where Depp was talking, he kept talking about how she knew all of his favorite music. Now that doesn't seem so unlikely, does it? That when they started dating, that she might be the type of person who would research all of his favorite music and pretend she was a huge fan. Yeah, esoteric. What was it? Jazz music from the 1920s or something? Something mad. Something mad. Like that. <laughs> she couldn't possibly know about so i think she did do that she look i'm sure i'm sure look they say what is it the psychopath test they say one percent of people in the world are psychopaths among ceos that's supposed to be higher it's still only two or three percent right and it's a spectrum so even of the other 97 percent uh ceos would be slightly further towards that because you've got to have certain personality traits well the same obviously goes for actors and stuff right i mean there's there's a million actors who probably are just as good just as talented as all these people i'm sure there's another actress who's as talented and good looking as amber heard it's the ones who have got that drive who really get there so i'm sure there were quite a few psychopaths in hollywood 
So I wonder how much money he's lost over all this then if he's suing her for 50 million. And she's countersuing for 100, isn't she? Yeah, but how's she going to say she lost 100 million? That's not possible, is it? She's... I mean, he, he was worth so much. That franchise, that Pirates franchise. Well, he got cancelled he... from Harry Potter because of <sighs> her. So he has literally lost tens of millions then. That's but she, she's not going to be able to show she's lost 100 million, is she? She's just no, doubling. but I might be wrong about that. Ray J, tell us if we're wrong about countersuing for 100 million. <laughs> she's <laughs> countersuing, though. But for wait, wait, look, at the end of the day, she she could say, this is the end of my career. It's Because until this, now he might make a comeback now, Johnny Depp, but before this, he may not have done. He was seen as a wife beater. He got kicked off of Harry Potter. Harry Potter's mad money. Now it's all going to that Danish fella, Mads Mikkelsen, who's taken his place as uh, the bad guy in Harry Potter. Oh, Matt, he's a good actor, Mads. I've watched a lot of stuff with him in. Did you see that one where he was um, supposed to... They, the village thought he was a child abuser. Yes! Ooh! Ooh what's, it, what's it called, that one? Is it called something like Doubt? Mads oh, I've watched the Pusher ones as well, yeah, Lee. I've watched those. That one were... They thought he was an abuser. Bloody hell. Hunt. Yeah. The Hunt! I'd forgotten that one. It was classic. We need to do a Sean and Andrew film podcast. I used to be in a, a club called the Harrowing Film Club. Ah. I, think that, I think that was when we watched that one. I'm sure. It came out in 2012. 2012, good old Mads. So do you think he will resurrect from here now, Depp? Or do you think that, there's, you know, as far as some people are concerned, there's no smoke without fire and he's always going to be tainted? So much depends, as you've said before, on um, what Amber gets up and says. But everything, and again, you know I'm not, and everyone watching and listening to this knows I'm the last one to be swayed by these kinds of things. I always say, well, hang on. Let's see what the other person says. We haven't heard both sides and all that. She is giving vibes of like, I, I am starting to go for that now, that narrative. Like, wow. Like the copying, the clothes, the stories that Depp's saying are so outlandish and they seem just right. I'm hearing other stories about her as well. So I think this has changed the narrative. And you've got to remember as well, like, yeah, I, I think nobody believes he's an abuser, so he'll be straight back. And even people like Woody Allen, he still works. I mean, he has to do it independent films and stuff like that. But, but Depp quite liked all that stuff. How much money does someone like him need, anyway? I know. And his sister got up today, and it was really sad to hear about the abuse from the mother. Oh, yeah. She called him one eye, and it was just accepted, and because he, he had a lazy eye and all this stuff. and Yeah. Wow, it was, it was it was really heavy. So I think they're setting the stage there for, you know, the fact that he was abused and he, he came he, abusive parents. He, he set a standard whereby he wasn't he would never do that. You know, he would avoid that at all costs and be the complete opposite. And yeah, yeah. As, as, well, as you a know, per, as a parent, he was supposed to have been really good. See, I I did a video on that on my channel the other week because just talking about all that because I was saying it. I think that is what he's playing. He, that's what he's going for. It's like he's he's his dad and he's chosen someone who's like his mum because that's the repetitions we get into. But I think the the risk there, and I don't think it's a big risk, but the risk was that the jury would see it and go, okay, well, there was abuse in his family. He's copying the abuse. Because there's no, you don't necessarily copy your dad or your mum. It's one or the other. And if he were to relate more with his mum, he could become an abuser in that sense. We had an excellent suggestion from Rachel. Depp will be okay. Have you watched the Bavial panel's analysis of Amber, which was posted a year ago? No, but I'm going to suggest that Ash reach out to the Behaviour panel 
yeah. and perhaps we open with the YouTube section next week with the behavior panel on Depp and Amber. I think that would be mind-blowing. Yeah. Really good, really good. And who knows what, what more stuff would have come out by then as well, so it'd be a great Exactly. Yeah. That's going to be Tuesday yeah. for YouTube. Tuesday is the next Atwood Unleashed, so if you are watching, huge thank you for tuning in tonight. Huge thank you to Andrew. Please support his work. Please support his podcast and subscribe to his channel. Thank you. And yeah, huge thanks, all, huge thanks to all the guests. Thanks to all the patrons and everyone watching it wherever you are in the world. Cheers. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Ash, who's don't know what he's up to, but thank you to him. And yeah, On the Edge with Andrew Gold is the podcast. Love you all. You've been beautiful. Good night, beautiful people. Take care out there. Cheers. <laughs>